Uh, good afternoon, everyone. My name is Jim Ryan, and I am the president of the University of Virginia. I would like to welcome members of our board of visitors, members of the trustees of the Thomas Jefferson Foundation, Foundation President Leslie Green Bowman, uh, Dean Golyuboff, and the law school community. Uh, thank you all for being here as we award the Thomas Jefferson Medal in Law to Justice Stephen Breyer. Um, I will be very brief. I'll talk just a little bit about the Thomas Jefferson Medals themselves and then turn the podium um, over to Dean Golyuboff. So every year, except when we're in the throes of a global pandemic, um, we award the Thomas Jefferson Medal to individuals who have made outstanding contributions in one of three fields, architecture, law, and public service broadly defined. We also, on occasion, offer an award in a fourth category, global innovation. As you may know, the university does not award any honorary degrees, and for that reason, the Thomas Jefferson Medals are the highest external awards that we offer. We do this in partnership with the Thomas Jefferson Foundation, which has not only been a great partner in this context, but has been a great role model in how to understand and convey the contributions and contradictions of Thomas Jefferson. And Leslie, for that um, and for everything else, I thank you and your team. Many of the ideals that Jefferson espoused remain central to the American experiment and remain at the heart of UVA, including the idea of citizen leadership and public service. Today, we honor Justice Breyer, a lifelong leader and a public servant whose devotion to upholding the values set forth in our Constitution has touched the lives of every American. Justice Breyer joins a long list of incredibly accomplished recipients of the Thomas Jefferson Medal in Law, a list that includes, includes names like Lewis Powell, Sandra Day O'Connor, William Rehnquist, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and Elaine Jones, just to mention a few. But even among this august company, there is no one more deserving of this recognition. Justice Breyer, we are honored to welcome you to Grounds, and we thank you for your service. And with that, I'd like to call to the podium my friend and colleague, Dean Risa Golyabuff. I'll do as I always do. <laughs> Lower the podium. My first act. President Ryan, President Bowman, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, I am thrilled to present the Honorable Stephen G. Breyer, Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States, as the 2022 recipient of the Thomas Jefferson Foundation Medal in Law. For the highest honor given by a university dedicated to the training of leaders and servants of democracy, there is no more fitting recipient than this exemplary statesman who has devoted his career to such service. Justice Breyer was born and raised in San Francisco, where he attended the oldest public high school west of the Mississippi River. Public service was a family value. His father was an attorney for the San Francisco Board of Education. His mother volunteered with the League of Women Voters. The sparkling intellect, public spiritedness, and appetite for dialogue that have been hallmarks of Justice Breyer's career were obvious from an early age. 
High school classmates and fellow Eagle Scouts described him as a peacemaker and the troop brain. <laughs> Justice Breyer honed his intellect at Stanford University, where he was a member of Phi Beta Kappa, at Oxford University's Magdalen College, where he studied as a Marshall Scholar and graduated with first-class honors, and at Harvard Law School, where he served as an articles editor for the Harvard Law Review and graduated magna cum laude. Justice Breyer honed the faith in democracy, deliberation, and the positive force of public institutions that he absorbed from his family throughout his 60-year career, spanning all three branches of the federal government. He clerked for Supreme Court Justice Arthur Goldberg, practiced law at the Department of Justice, and returned to government service on three occasions during his more than a decade on the Harvard Law School faculty, as an assistant special prosecutor on the Watergate Special Prosecution Force, special counsel to the Senate Judiciary Committee's Subcommittee on Administrative Practices, and chief counsel for the Senate Judiciary Committee. What Justice Breyer accomplished in these roles, as well as the brilliant and collaborative way he embodied these roles, led to his nomination to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the First Circuit. Justice Breyer was the only judicial candidate President Jimmy Carter nominated after losing the 1980 election to Ronald Reagan, and he was confirmed 80 to 10 by the Senate. It was a different time from now, yes, with different politics and less polarization, but President Carter chose Stephen Breyer and not someone else in that moment and for that bipartisan confirmation process. 14 years later, when President Bill Clinton nominated him to the Supreme Court, he too highlighted Justice Breyer's, quote, gift as a consensus builder and, quote, his extraordinary intellectual talents. Those virtues have been on full display during Justice Breyer's 28 years on the Supreme Court. His belief in deliberation and the importance of relationships have made him the glue among his colleagues, and his commitment to the court's unique role in the American constitutional scheme has made him its greatest institutional champion. Justice Breyer's commitments to democracy and deliberation are equally core to his singular approach to constitutional interpretation. His theory of active liberty, that government not only can help people, but that government is the people, in his words, calls for judges to facilitate democratic participation on terms of equality. To Justice Breyer, the people are both the theoretical bedrock of the Constitution and the real human beings who make and live by the law every day. Justice Breyer holds out a basic humanity to all he encounters, from those who lack health care to immigrants detained without bail, from the children to whom he reads on National Literacy Day to the new Eagle Scouts to whom he annually writes congratulatory notes. His sense of shared humanity motivates and complements the judicial pragmatism that grew out of his background in administrative law, a field he transformed as a law professor at Harvard. As Justice Breyer retires from the Supreme Court this spring, his legacy will be manifold. It will be found in his dozens of books and scholarly articles, in his lucid and consequential majority opinions, and in the clarion calls for pluralism, equality, and justice that populate his impassioned dissents on issues from school segregation to campaign finance to capital punishment. Justice Breyer's legacy will be found as well in the model he offers us all as a person and a judge. Pragmatist and humanist, institutional defender and great dissenter, capacious intellectual and authentic and joyous human being, Justice Breyer will be remembered as a statesman of the highest order, whose gifts and service have redounded to the extraordinary benefit of the Supreme Court and this nation. It is one of the happiest and greatest honors of my life to present the Thomas Jefferson Foundation Medal in Law to Supreme Court Justice Stephen G. Breyer.
I mean, that was really nice. <laughs> Thank you for all those very kind words. And, and my legacy, if there is a legacy, I hope there is, my law clerks. Right, of which Risa was one. And uh, President Ryan really said what I was going to say. He used the two words. Uh, the two words were, uh, uh, well, what were they, ideals? Um, experiment? That's it. I mean, why do I say that? I mean, you know, actually, very few people know this, but Thomas Jefferson was not actually awarded the Thomas Jefferson Medal. Well, he should have been. I mean, my goodness, what an honor it is for me. What a, what a real honor it is to receive this. And, and I, I think of Thomas Jefferson, and I think of that word values and so forth. Because I just read, which is a pretty good book of McCullough, uh, Friendly Rivals, and, uh, or Friendly Enemies, I think that's the name. And it was about Adams and Jefferson. And the question is, of those founders, who was the greatest? And McCullough thinks, he says, well, you know, uh, Adams was much more of a realist and actually knew a lot more about politics and was very good at getting uh, uh, something done that would work. And Jefferson is, oh, God, he's up there. So, or, or he has his friends in France he's trying to impress, or whatever. But, but, uh, uh, but he ends up with Jefferson. And why? That's because of the word you said, I think, in large part, the values. So we had to learn that in, in school. You look at the Declaration of Independence. There it is. I think in a single sentence, I mean, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, mm -hmm. that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just power from the consent of the governed. And there you have it. You have to say, by many meant women, too. And there we are. Uh, the ideals of America in a single sentence. And that's the word. And uh, we have that right in our minds. Whether Joanna, who's trying to encourage our grandchildren to memorize this stuff, uh, is there or not, but there we are. All right, but the other word you used was experiment. And I like reading that not necessarily in, in, in Jefferson. I read it, George Washington wrote a very good letter about that to uh, one of his friends. And then what Joanna did make our grandchildren memorize for $20 each is the Declaration of Independence. And some actually, I mean, I think it should have been $50 because some of them did. But, but they needed a little more incentive, but so they, well. And you didn't have to go beyond, which I, and I sometimes can get it right, uh, that Gettysburg Address. Uh, four score and seven years ago. Right. Why four score and seven years? That's a good question. That's not the Constitution he's referring back to. It's Declaration of Independence. And that word equality is right there. And that's what he's going back to, the sentence of Jefferson. And then he says, uh, Four score seven years ago, our fathers brought forth upon this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition of all, that all men are created equal. Right? That's Jefferson. Okay? We are now engaged in a great war to see whether this nation 
or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. Yeah, that's the experiment. And why is it Frederick Douglass says that Lincoln was more interested in holding that union together even than ending slavery? And that's a big historical debatable point. Very interesting. But if he was, it's because he understood this experiment. Can we get that ideal really there, really there, not there on paper? And, you know, and he knew those people in France. He knew those uh, Enlightenment figures. Now, I don't mean to sound from the, my tone of voice that I don't respect Voltaire, my God, of course. But, but, <laughs> but, 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 uh, these intellectuals, all for it, all for those ideals. But from time to time, they might say, ah, but it won't work. You know, it won't work. Let them try. Oh, no, we want them to. Oh, well. Yeah, yeah. But what the founders are thinking is they're thinking, and that's what Lincoln's thinking, we're going to show them. We will show them that it will work. It will work. We'll do it. And my goodness, that civil war, well, it's going to end slavery. So, ah, if who wins? Not such an easy question, my friends. But there, Lincoln is reminding people of that. We're going to win. Terrible cost. We'll win. And that will show that the experiment works. So I like those two words very much, President Brown. <laughs> what? <laughs> Word value, values. Word experiment. And why particularly? Well. We're in it now, aren't we? Same experiment. Same experiment. Can we make it work? Will we? Experiment what? Experiment to go back to those values, back to those values that we hold. The values are there, and sometimes some of them are realized to some degree. And can we do better and make them work and do more? Yeah. That's a question. Mm -hmm. And uh, every day. And so when I think of the answer to that question, I go back and I think of the values and I think how really an honor it is, an honor it is to receive this medal and the book, the words of Thomas Jefferson. Quite right. I think of that honor, but I think too, I think back and say, uh, well, I'm not the only one who has received recognition through the words of Jefferson. So are the teachers, the administrators, the students, namely every one of us. We're all part of being the recipients of the medal and certainly the part, certainly the part that takes up the word experiment and says, we will succeed. We will do it. And we're fairly good as Americans at, at getting together and projects, and that's a pretty good project. It's a pretty important one. So now what I can say, because I'm old enough to get this medal, you see, and I'm old enough, I can say, you know who's going to decide whether we do? You know who's going to decide whether we do live up to the ideals? Do you know who's going to decide whether or not that experiment in trying to achieve those ideals will work? And the answer is simple for me. The answer is simply you. And I say this to the high school students. 
I say this to the college students. I will say it to the law students. I will say, my friends, it is you who will decide. It is you who will figure out how to do it. And it is you, because I have confidence, will see that the experiment will continue and will not work perfectly, but will have its successes. And so I thank you very much for this medal and for the book. Thank you. Good afternoon, I'm Leslie Green Bowman, president of the Thomas Jefferson Foundation, better known for its ownership and operation of that World Heritage Site that we share with you all here at the university called Monticello. President Ryan, Dean Golubov, thank you for the opportunity to provide brief remarks in honor of our 2022 Thomas Jefferson Foundation Medalist in Law, Justice Stephen Pryor. In 1796, Thomas Jefferson wrote to Edward Rutledge of South Carolina. Rutledge was a fellow signer, a sometimes political antagonist, and here's the important part, a fellow gardener. Jefferson was in his early 50s, and he had devoted the majority of his adult life to public service, not unlike someone on the stage here. But he was not yet president, or even vice president. After first inquiring about garden peas, his favorite vegetable, Jefferson got to the heart of it and gently reprimanded Rutledge for failing to seek national office. In lawyerly fashion, Jefferson made his case with these words, not quite as famous as that sentence Justice Breyer read, but one you'll recognize. There is a debt of service due from every man to his country, proportioned to the bounties which nature and fortune have measured to him. Justice Breyer, you have paid that debt of service many times over, so much so that the debt now owed is one of gratitude to you by our country and we, your fellow citizens. As you embark upon your own retirement, you richly deserve what Jefferson described to John Adams as his own vision for retirement, to leave to others the sublime delights of riding in the storm, better pleased with sound sleep, encircled with the society of neighbors and friends. Justice Breyer, we thank you for your service, and we wish for you sound sleep in the encircling society of family, friends, and neighbors. And now I'm delighted to turn things over to Dean Golubov and Justice Breyer for what I know will be a stimulating and edifying conversation. Thank you. Are you ready? <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, it's so wonderful to have an opportunity to talk with you here. You feel very far away. Um, but uh, I would start by, I, I thought we could start at the beginning. Um, 
and, uh, and talk about your family and the um, legacy of public service that you've carried on from your family. And I'm also curious, you know, your, your incredible optimism about government and about the fact that government can be a positive good, so not just your service, but your attitude toward what government does and what it does for people. Um, does that come from your family? Say more about that. Where, where did you learn that? What did they show you? Well, my mother was probably, uh, yeah, that's why she was involved in the UN Association of League of Women Voters, all the different things in San Francisco. We're going to improve various uh, ways in which government worked and so forth. And my father was pretty practical. I mean, you can't be lawyer for the school board uh, without uh, being practical and being, uh, and Katanji's father's lawyer for the school board in Miami. <laughs> and, and, uh, you know, you, you have, my father used to say the most important thing you can know as a school board attorney is a geography. Why geography, people would say. Well, just one question, what? You'd say, where is City Hall? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, so he, he was interested in trying to make these institutions work. Okay. So uh, you then became a person who tried to make institutions work. And I get the sense from your biography that uh, your time on the Judiciary Committee and working on the Hill was really formative to how you think about government working, how you think about talking with people who might have different views from you and the value of that. And can you talk a little bit about that? No, I loved working on the Judiciary Committee. I worked for Senator Kennedy. He was chairman of the committee. I was chief counsel, and Senator Thurman was the chief minority uh, senator. And there were 10 Democrats and seven Republicans, and we tried to get them together. And every single morning, every single morning, Ken Feinberg, who was like the number one and a half on the staff of I was, Ken Feinberg and I would have breakfast with Emory Sneeden, who was Thurman's chief of staff, who was former JAG general, a wonderful man. And uh, we would try to work out the day. And our uh, plan was usually no secrets, no surprises. Uh, we would try to figure out how, well, we called it open conniving, openly arrived at. <laughs> <laughs> and the, 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 the uh, um, tr try to get these things, you know, uh, certain legislative items and, and others, uh, in a situation where whether you were a Republican or a Democrat, you could vote for them. You see, you know, to these things, for the, this group could say to its constituents, and the other things they could say to the other constituents, and it all fit together, it was honest, uh, but they ended up being able to vote for it, and they liked that. They appreciated that. They wanted, I mean, and that's why people criticize, the, I mean, I don't know, maybe it's all changed a million percent, but, but I don't see why a person would spend time in public life unless somewhere down deep he wanted to do something good for the country. And that's there. That's there. I think whether you're a Republican, whether you're a Democrat, whatever you are, you have to tap it. The job of the staff is to get it into a situation where they can do it. <laughs> and that's not so easy. But it was fun. I loved it. <laughs> I would get on the bicycle and get there at 7.30 in the morning. <laughs> and you never knew what was going to go on. And there we are. It was great. It was great fun. I really enjoyed it. All right. Well, you know, uh, Senator Kennedy is our graduate. Yes, he is. A, a lot of Kennedys. A lot of Kennedys are our graduates. Yeah. Very. <laughs> <laughs> and Mort Kaplan taught them tax. I remember that. It <laughs> yeah. was great. Yeah. Here we are in Kaplan Auditorium. And yeah. Very fitting. Um, 
So one of the other uh, pieces of your biography before we get to the court um, was your administrative roles, uh, and particularly airline deregulation and your, your application of scholarship to law. Um, and I wonder if you could talk about that uh, and what that was like, and then also the extent to which you uh, see that experience or that administrative law um, uh, expertise then affecting the way you think about the Constitution, the way you think about judging uh, uh, once, you, once you join the judiciary? Well, the administrative law fits into the Constitution in the sense that the Constitution is primarily a structural document. Uh, if you think of those first seven articles, the Constitution very rarely tells people what to do. They're supposed to decide what to do at the ballot box. Now, there are limits imposes limits, but the Constitution also primarily sets up a structure for government, and that structure uh, will, uh, we hope, uh, allow a basically democratic system, not 100%, but basically democratic system to work in the sense that people will have an opportunity to direct what kind of cities, towns, countries, and so forth they want. And so one of the things that has developed primarily in the 20th century, beginning before the little bit before, and now is uh, the world is very complicated. Uh, technology is complicated, and don't ask me more than that about it, because I won't be able to answer. But the, the uh, uh, and uh, our lives are complicated in many, many ways. And so we have these structures underneath the president or Congress or elsewhere, administrative structures, and how do you work uh, consistently with the democratic principles of the Constitution in, in a fair way? That's administrative law. And so uh, I did like you say, uh, well, what can I say about airline dereg? I did work on that. We did, I did help get that through. Uh, we did have an, a very interesting time. And when I think now about it, I think of Andy Devorney. Now, you don't know Andy Devorney, but I did. Andy, Andy Devorney was at United Airlines. He was vice president. And I learned, this shows how little I know about the business community, but I learned in every large business, there is one person who really understands the business thoroughly, and it's never the president. Okay. <laughs> so, so, so Andy Devorney was that person at United Airlines who understood the whole thing. So United sent us a, said, if you go ahead with DREG, we're going to cancel 350 routes. So, so uh, Kennedy said, what do we do now? I said, very simple. Uh, others, he said, well, we'll, we'll get, uh, I think it was uh, George Eads, who's a good economist, and uh, a couple others. We went to see Andy Devorney at, uh, in Chicago, and we brought the printout, or whatever they had, the equivalent then, of the, uh, all these routes, and we went over them one by one. And one was like, Newark to JFK. So I said, that's a route? Newark to JFK. <laughs> I said, what's that for? He said, well, that's ferrying aircraft. You mean you're not going to ferry aircraft under D? Oh, well, we'll cut that off. So we went through a, a, a set of negotiations, and we ended up that we agreed that there were like 80 routes, and we could, uh, we could uh, uh, give them a subsidy uh, so they can continue with those a very low subsidy, which we put in the bill. All right, so Devorney said to me, and I remember, these are the words I remember. He said, Stephen, I think you all are right. See, they had no price competition then, zero. He says, you will deregulate prices, and that will fill up the airplanes. 
And the people you're trying to help, the people used to have to carry the chicken coops on the back of their cars in Texas, they'll fly. They'll fly. We'll fill up the planes and the prices will fall. And it's true, the planes are full. And the prices are 50% in real terms of what they were in 1973. I keep track because it cheers me up a little. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, uh, you know what else he said? He said, and Stephen, you will hate it. <laughs> there we are. <laughs> Was he right? Do you hate it? Well, after taking nine hours to get down between Boston and Washington the other day and have them call up and sorry, your plane's canceled. We have another one for you at noon. I said, thank you, but it's now 10 minutes to 12 and I'm at home. What am I thinking? <laughs> I mean, you know, it's not perfect, I guess. <laughs> but there we are. Was that better before deregulation? Oh, yes. It was. Yes. Oh, my God. Oh, I yes. Mean, those of us who've only lived so in deregulation can't imagine. No, no, we don't know. no, it's fabulous. You flew. No, no, you flew in an airplane, and uh, they had the Aloha sandwich bar, which you, <laughs> and, and drinks of all kinds, and, and, and you walk around, and, and the seat next to you would be empty, and uh, Lieberler, who was head of the Federal Trade Commission, gave the best point about that. He said, the business traveler is delighted uh, to find the seat next to him is empty, but would he, or the commercial traveler and non-commercial traveler be quite so happy if they realize that they are paying full fare for the briefcase. <laughs> because the cheapest flights across the country then to go from, say, Boston or New York to San Francisco or California were at the, today, the equivalent of quite a lot over $1,000. Okay? So my friend Paul McAvoy, who I worked with, he said he had a great idea. What he was going to do to make his fortune was to get together with some people, and they were going to produce better than first-class flights on these airplanes. They'd take you up to your house, take you to the airplane, and it would cost only half as much as first-class cost then. And they did it. And you know what happened to them? Bankrupt. <laughs> Why? People don't want to pay. They want to pay. They don't want to pay. They don't want to pay for that. You want to pay for it, you can do it. A little expensive. You have to rent time on a private plane, but nonetheless, if that's your, but they don't. So they have what they want. And the person with that chicken coop is in the airplane. And uh, if you don't like flying with chicken coops in the airplane, well, you better find a guru for the stock market. But there we are. <laughs> but in any case, in any case, that's airline dereg, and it is half the price, and uh, it is a little uh, uh, less desirable service. <laughs> <laughs> but a story of real democratization, right? That's that's the, the yeah, well, access is, yeah, to access. The story is uh, that's yeah. what we said we were doing. Yep. We're giving these, <laughs> and it is true. It is true. That's what we were trying. Why? Oh, that was the time of busing. In. Uh, Boston. Boston. And we had a hearing up there, and one of the followers of Louisa Day Hicks you know, came into the hearing and said to Senator Kennedy, why are you having these hearings on airline regulation, Senator Kennedy? I've never been able to fly. I mean, she went, you know, thing. And Kennedy said, that's why I'm having the hearing. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. There we are. 
Now, what other legislation would you like to uh, <laughs> I was going to go a little higher level of generality next, uh, unless there's other legislation you want to talk about. <laughs> okay. Um. There was the time when Senator Heflin and Senator Bayh got mixed up on whether they were voting for National Pork Week or National Port Week. <laughs> I'll spare you the rest. <laughs> it really sounds like the uh, punchline to a joke. Uh, <laughs> Um, okay, so my, my next question was, as I said, at a higher level of generality. So um, as you have, you know, are about to retire, and there have been lots of descriptions of you and your approach to uh, judicial, uh, the judicial role and constitutional interpretation, there's a lot of descriptions of you as a pragmatist. I might have called you that myself at some points, although I think it's only a partial description. Um, but I'm curious, do you embrace that term? Uh, do you think it's appropriate? What would you complement it with? H how do you think about that? When, when you hear people say, Justice Breyer, the pragmatist. Um, well, I think it's true in a sense. No? I, think, I think it's true in a sense. Uh, but the sense, because I studied philosophy as an undergraduate. And uh, uh, so the American philosophers who were called pragmatists were purse. Who, by the way, Holmes was a, that, that, that's a very good book, that Menon book about the Saturday, what is it, the Saturday Club or something, or Friday, uh, Wednesday Club, or Friday, whatever it is. The Metaphysical purse, Club. Metaphysical Club. Uh, yeah, the Metaphysical Club. Purse, James, and Quan. And they're, they're, they're philosophical pragmatists, which is complex. But it is, uh, well, I'll get it wrong, but I mean, the basic idea is that people uh, have in their heads very complex sets of concepts that fit together under theories. And scientists change those sometimes. But you can't change too much. And uh, when you decide that this is false uh, because of the observations you've had or whatever, you might have been able to say this is true, but you would have had to change so much in terms of your basic theoretical beliefs about how people perceive things or about what nature is like or about what mathematics is like, that we wouldn't because the system as a whole won't work. Now, I don't know if I've said it correctly, but I'm trying to show you that the sense in which I accept pragmatism <laughs> is a little bit more complicated than what someone will think when they're reading a newspaper. When they read a newspaper, they will think pragmatism in the sense that you do whatever works in this instance and make things better. It's not quite that. It's pragmatism in the sense of we are, as lawyers and judges, parts of very complicated systems that have institutions, such as law firms, such as lawyers, such as judges, and clients of all kinds as well as people who do what they say, or have to sort of do what they say. And all that makes up a body of law that has much more than that. It has rules of stare decisis. It has rules of how one thing will lead to another thing. It has rules of what is a precedent. And when someone tries to write a precedent and says, I don't want it to be a precedent, so I'll just write here and say, this isn't a precedent for anything. Ha, ha, ha. Are you kidding? You can't do it. Because we are in an institution that will take it as a precedent, no matter what you say there. All right? So there are many things like that. 
many standards, rules, approaches, institutions, bodies of people like lawyers, judges, and so forth that react. And depending on the case, you will take those things into account. All know which ones are relevant. And so if you do this over here, how will it affect that over there? It might be an absolutely wonderful thing to decide X. But wait, if I decide X over here, what will that do over there? And what does it do to this more basic institution? And how will the bankruptcy judges understand it? If, in fact, that's what it's about. And uh, I mean, but you see the point. So that's what Quine sees from a point of view of epistemological theory. He calls it the network, a great net of beliefs. Push this here, change da, da, da. In that sense, I would say I've read his book. And I think there are analogies to law. And uh, I, I think that those analogies are useful. And overall, in the very long run, and enough people working at this long enough, law should work out, which means it will work better for the people who have to live within those systems. Trying to do that just over here or over there or make it a little bit better, that's not so easy. But that's what you have to try. So in that system, and in the, that's a, a fairly functionalist view, right, and in the structure of the Constitution, how do you know, how do you determine when individual rights should be uh, recognized uh, in perhaps opposition to those government officials who are doing their best or to, you know, when, when does the structure require the, the, the vindication of individual rights that are usually often against the government? How do you know? I can't give you a, a, a general answer, but I can give you what I found an interesting example, which I've written about some. And that, of course, is Brown. But it isn't Brown. I mean, Brown v. Board well, for quite a long time, people understood that equal protection of the law is not being followed in one third of this country or more. And you would have had to have been blind to think that there was separate but equal going on. It was separate but not equal. Well, everybody knew that. And they knew, and there's an interesting, interesting opinion by Holmes, written about 30 years before on the 15th Amendment, where he says, of course, they're not following the 15th Amendment, but I have to consider that a political question. Why? He's pretty honest about it. He says, because if I write the opposite, nobody's going to do it. Okay? He basically says that. And so when uh, Brown comes along, and Vincent had been, I think, somewhat, wasn't getting the court enough together. Frankfurter saw that. It's a mean thing to say. But supposedly, Phil Elman tells us that at, at uh, Vincent's funeral, Frankfurter said, now I know there is a God. <laughs> now, he was thinking of Brown to come. <laughs> and uh, uh, the, the uh, OK. So I say to the students, and I say to so with Brown, Fine. And what happened in 1955, the year after Brown? Nothing. 
next to nothing. 1956, the students don't say anything then. I say, you're right, double nothing. <laughs> I say, then in 1957, a judge actually from North Dakota, I think, in Little Rock, says those nine black children will enter that white school, Central High. Good. September 1957, they go there. But Governor Falbus was on the doorstep or had control. And the white citizens' council were all around the school. And Falbus basically said, those children may have a court order, but I have the police. They didn't. Enter. And the picture of Elizabeth Eckford turning, reading those books, and uh, a white girl in back of her, Hazel Bryant, face contorted with rage, contorted with rage. Um, I thought that a black child would enter a white school. And that picture went around the world. Around the world, because there were journalists from all over there. And uh, Hayes Brooks, who is the congressman from Little Rock, then arranges a meeting between uh, Falbus and President Eisenhower at the Summer White House then it was. He was in Newport, and he goes up there, Falbus, uh, and he says to Eisenhower, I'll let the kids in the school, I'll let them in. He goes out and tells the press the opposite. And uh, uh, Eisenhower's pretty angry. So he says, what shall I do? Hmm. Eisenhower took advice. He asked Jimmy Burns, moderate governor of South Carolina, Former Supreme Court Justice ran the war effort, resigned to run the war effort in World War II economically at home. Burns says to him, Mr. President, you better not send troops. If you send troops, you'd better be prepared to occupy the South. You'd better be prepared to have a second reconstruction. You'd better because the best that will happen is they'll close all the schools. But Herbert Brownell, his wise counselor, said, Mr. President, you must send troops. The rule of law here is at stake. You've got to do it. And Eisenhower sent a thousand paratroopers from the 101st Airborne. And I promise you that everyone in 1957 in America knew who they were. They were the people who had invaded Normandy and gotten hung up on the steeples and been shot down in the heroes of the Battle of the Bulge. And they went on those airplanes and they took those nine children by the hand and they walked them into the school. I'd like to end there, but I can't. Because they couldn't stay forever and because a year later they all moved out and because uh, the board, the school board, which was then controlled, White Citizens Council, voted to end segregation and that case went to the Supreme Court, Cooper versus Aaron, and the Supreme Court unanimously said all writing themselves right on it. They have to integrate, they have to. Wait a minute, there were nine judges. Nine. Those have been 9,000. So, so. And indeed, the next day, Balbus closed the school. And read David Margolik's book about the relation, they tried to make it up, uh, between uh, uh, Elizabeth Eckford and Hazel Bryant in later years. And they couldn't. They, I mean, they tried. But, but uh, my goodness, and see what happened to those children, white and black. Tough. Tough, but it couldn't last. 
It couldn't last, in my opinion, and that of others, because that was the time of Martin Luther King. That began. The Freedom Riders. The country began to wake up. It began to say, oh, Freedom Riders. Connie Motley, too. She was there. Thurgood Marshall. A lot of these people. Uh, they were there. And so I asked once Vernon Jordan, who was uh, a friend and was a great hero of that movement, ran the Urban League and so forth, whatever. And uh, I said, Vernon, in your opinion, did Brown v. Board matter? I mean, wasn't it World War II? And wasn't it the battalions? And wasn't it the waking up of the North uh, to the need that really ended this segregation? Did the Supreme Court, would it have happened differently without the Supreme Court, in your opinion? And he said, of course the Supreme Court mattered. Just don't think they did it by themselves. It may be that Congress wouldn't have helped them, and he didn't, they didn't. Or the president was only some help. It required the country, but the Supreme Court mattered. Okay, does that answer your question? <laughs> yeah, how do you know? Do you how do you know? It's so easy for us to say, we would have known. Okay, I'll accept that, we would have known. But I wanted that description to go on at some length because I wanted in your mind the need to understand what really took a little courage and what really, who knows, who knows what could have happened, but it didn't. And we came through and life is not perfect at the moment. Uh, and, but as I say, it's a continuous progress there, a continuous effort which required far more than judges and which required far more than lawyers. And uh, that's what I wanted to tell that woman from Ghana who was a president of the court in Ghana who came and said, why do people do what you say? Because she wanted that court in Ghana to be more civil rights oriented and more democracy oriented. Why do they do it? And I can't give her an answer. I can't give her an answer. I can tell her some stories. And you get those stories, you begin to see how do you know? Holmes? He may have known, but he knew he couldn't do it. Warren? They thought maybe they could. Maybe they could. With a little help from our friends. <laughs> and indeed, and indeed, and indeed. So I have a follow-up to that. <laughs> Shocking. Um, so uh, we're still debating what Brown meant. We're still arguing about Brown's legacy. Parents involved, the Seattle schools, I think one of your most important dissents. Um, what's at stake in thinking about Brown's legacy? How do we, how do we think about that for the future? What, what role did that, do you think that is one of your most important dissents? Is that something people are gonna be thinking about even I don't going know. Forward? I don't know. I mean, the question is a difficult question. It's a question of affirmative action. And of course, what we hope is, and I believe it, uh, I can't be 100% certain, that people are disagreeing about means to the same end. And the end is, what is the end? The end is you have a country of 331 million people where each of those people respects the other person as a person. Okay? And so what we faced 
at the time of Brown and in later times and with affirmative action was, let's say, Thurgood Marshall, uh, until you have black and white children together in the same classroom in the fourth grade, you're going to get attitudes that are unhealthy. And maybe you need some affirmative action to get there. And you have other points of view, too, which will say, no, you're going to just perpetuate this, uh, 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 this uh, stereotypical feeling. Don't do it. All right. Those are points of view, too. Now, I have my point of view. Other people have their point of view. And uh, I think, and that's what Sandra O'Connor and Lewis Powell said. They said, try affirmative action, uh, but not too much. <laughs> and, and what is not too much? I don't know exactly. But uh, that's what she has in there, and that's what Powell had in there. And there uh, uh, we are. Can I add? What can I add to that? I have a long section in that dissent saying, look, this is not exactly the world's easiest problem. When Tuckville came over here, he wrote a very good book, which is still worth reading in the 1830s, about American institutions. And one of the things he writes about is there are two most terrible problems. One, the Indians, he says, and the other is slavery. Yeah, well, that was right. He said, don't worry so much about the Indians, because they'll kill all the Indians. Hmm. There was some truth to that. Uh, but slavery, he said, I have no idea what will happen. But that's going to be a problem, and it is a problem. And indeed, and indeed. And so what I think, this is my where my optimism comes from, is Mrs. Squataguatza in the fifth grade. And Mrs. Squataguatza in the fifth grade at Grant School would have a project we'd each have to have about San Francisco, and she'd divide us into groups of four, and she would give one grade to all four. Okay? So you had to work together. <laughs> and indeed, one of the things we're sometimes fairly good at doing, I think, in this country is working together. And so, at what? At all kinds of things. And, and so, uh, uh, when I saw COVID, you know, I mean, there were, there were groups in Cambridge, Massachusetts, who went out in the neighborhoods and saw that some people needed food or they were old and having a hard time getting around. And that wasn't confined to Cambridge, Massachusetts. It would exist right here in Charlottesville. It would exist in St. Louis. It would exist in San Diego. It's all over the place. And that's because we're, that's one of the things I think, perhaps it's conceded, but I think for America, we're fairly good at it. And so I, I think if someone gives us this challenge, as we certainly are seeing it, we are going to create, we will create a world that takes time, but we will create a country where, that's Frederick Douglass, where people are respected as individuals. And what's the general attitude? Hard to express in words, but I like this. It's a tone of voice. I was nominated to the Supreme Court. I was confirmed. I was on the airplane with Senator Kennedy after being confirmed. We got off the plane at Logan, walked down the ramp, and there's a reporter there, a woman from a Jewish newspaper. And she says, how do you feel about two Jews being on the Supreme Court? <laughs> and I said, because Kennedy didn't know I'd do this, so he was trying to whisper why. <laughs> I said, just like this, because it's what I thought. Fine. Yeah. Fine. Okay. So? So? Yeah, that's it. <laughs> that's it. And, and we're moving there. 
I like that. Fine. Okay. Hey, what's the problem? I mean, don't say what's the problem. Say what's the problem. There might be a problem. There is no problem. <laughs> and, and that's the uh, that that is the uh, sort of attitude. The sort of attitude that we may have a ways to go. Uh, but uh, we'll get there. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm an optimist too, so I, I like the optimism. Um, so, 28 years on the court. What has changed? What has not changed? Your I've gotten role? older. I, well, I was going to say, you are no longer the junior justice, no. which you were when I was a clerk. But uh, other than that, or including that, what has changed? Well, it's a different court in this respect. I mean, I, uh, you know, I started out with Sandra and David Souter and Sandra O'Connor and others who, well, we don't always agree on things. They have a sort of basic attitude that, that uh, I can talk to them pretty easily. I can talk to people now. I can talk to the appointees now. But their, their attitude is the appropriate way to go about deciding a certain number of cases. It's not political. It's just that it's a different uh, approach. And who knows? The court hasn't changed its approaches in the past. I mean, the New Deal court was not the court of Chief Justice Stone. And it wasn't the court uh, of the Four Horsemen. And gradually, the country had changed. The problems were different. And uh, the court changes very slowly, too, very slowly. And in that sense, there is a, there is a, a political aspect because of changes in who is appointed. Now, I think the question to think about for those interested is not so much politics. If they're interested in law, think about is the court changing and how much and where and should it? All right, and the answers to that are going to be sometimes more technical than you might think. And those kinds of things are harder to think about and decide how to change and what to say and so forth than you might think. And uh, what is the greatest ally, in my opinion, if I take as a given that the way I've been working is preferable, surprise, surprise, I think it is, but the, the is time is an ally. Time is an ally. Why? Because when you're first appointed to that court, it takes three to five years before you can settle down. I mean, first thing you don't say to anybody, but my God, can I do this job? And whatever you say, and however confident you may appear, you're thinking, hmm, I hope so. <laughs> and it takes three or five years. Douglas said five years. I think David Souter said three years. And then uh, you think, well, I can do the best I can. I'll do the best I can. Every minute. Huh. And that's true. But uh, time also allows you to absorb mores. And I say mores and customs because uh, I think within the court, but also in the country, and also in lots of institutions. We have, we being different groups, same groups, different approaches, we develop mores that allow this complicated, multiracial, religious, national origin, anything you want, this complicated country to live in a way that's basically 
lives up to Jefferson's ideals. Which it doesn't, but it tries. <laughs> and, and that's the, that's the, the, the uh, uh, so, so I think time, because the Maury's, the nature of the institution, all those things won't change so quickly. And people will absorb them. And uh, administrative law, should we overrule Chevron? That's a good fighting. <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, it's more than that. It's more than that that's underneath that question. And if they really want to change, if others want to change, or the court wants to change, some of those cases, they're going to have to start to grapple with the underlying problems and how they can do better. And all that takes time. So I say, yeah, there have been some changes. I don't really call them political. Uh, and uh, will they turn out to be sort of watershed in the court? I don't know. No one knows, uh, including the people involved. There we are. There's a very good non-answer. <laughs> I am always struck by uh, the fact that you can't it's very hard to know what a case means until later, yeah, right, when it's right. an iterative process and other people are interpreting it mm -hmm. going forward. Mm -hmm. um, so speaking of uh, becoming a justice and new justices, Katanji Brown-Jackson just confirmed your That's clerk. Um, and I'm curious to, for you to share a little bit about um, you know, there's been a lot of talk uh, by me, by Vince Chabria, my co-clerk, who's a judge with your brother on the Northern District of California, about how diverse your clerks are and, uh, and how you mentor your clerks and we go out into the world and I'm curious to hear you say a little bit about that and about your relationships with your clerks and maybe how you feel about this, this Supreme Court seat number two now going to a, a former clerk. That's great. I feel very good about that. <laughs> <laughs> I thought a softball yeah. was in Right, order. right, right. And how I feel, my, they're my family, I mean, they're an enlarged family, uh, but the, you have no idea what pleasure it is for me to walk into the room. Uh, it's a little, you know, I have this case today. My God, what am I going to do the God bankruptcy and the thing and that, uh, you know. And uh, Clarence Thomas, what was the case we had? It was so technical. So I was supposed to announce it. So he whispers in my ear, I think this is cases about ERISA. Does it modify EDPA in, with IRA? <laughs> So I got out and I said, this case is, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, then I walk into my room and see my clerks. And we sit down, it's great. And I follow what they do and I, I, I'm delighted. I'm delighted when they do. Always. I was here. We are too. Uh, okay, my last question before we open it up to the audience for some questions, and this is a good segue question, I think. Um, there's a lot of discussion these days about free speech on campus and the contours of free speech and how we should think about uh, inviting people to speech and the obligations of people within a particular community to one another and what free speech protects. Um, and uh, these are fairly heated conversations and uh, they're happening, I think, at universities all over. I think they're particularly important for law schools where we're in the business of speaking and listening and making arguments and having to um, uh, account for other people's arguments, and I'm curious if you have thoughts about that whole panoply of questions. Yeah, I personally am in favor of free speech. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> and and uh, yeah, I mean, uh, that's what this other cheerleader opinion is about, really. And the line I wanted in there, uh, which I did put in, uh, was uh, uh, America's public schools. I said that was a public school, and that was where it came up. But it's true of all schools. I said America's public schools are the, are the nurseries of democracy. And so uh, uh, this is a good chance when you're in the campus to hear people that you don't agree with. And the thing that I learned from Senator Kennedy, and boy, I've kept this, and it has helped. Now, I'll tell you what he, told, what he told his staff. And he said, because there were people there who disagreed with him, mm -hmm. and we'd be for some things, and there'd be other people for other things. He said, take people who really disagree with you, and if you need their vote. <laughs> and, uh, but even if you don't, get them to talk. Talk. The more they talk, the better. And pretty soon, you will discover that they'll say something you agree with. And when they say that's something you agree with, you say, that's pretty good. <laughs> Let's work with that. I bet we can. And lo and behold, some of the time, you would achieve something. Not everything you want. Maybe 30%. But he said, take the 30% rather than take 100% of what you didn't get and be a hero to the group that you're working with and support you. Forget that. Get the 30%. And then when the time comes to give the credit, that's the person you give the credit to. And I cannot tell you how often I saw him on a press conference, in a press conference with a Republican. Orrin Hatch was so helpful on this. It's Orrin you should be talking to, okay? Because he'd say credit is a weapon. It's a weapon, all right? If the thing works, don't worry. There'll be plenty of credit to go around. And if it doesn't work, who wants it? Okay. And, and that is Kennedy. And I learned a lot from that. And that works in many, many contexts. And why do I bring it up in this context? Because we, it is true. You, the country is more divided in many ways. All right, so well, it's easy to go sit and say how right you are and how wrong some other person is, particularly with people who agree with you. I mean, you know, that isn't, doesn't require a genius to do that. Uh, 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 but. Uh, Listen to the people who disagree with you. Ah. And then they'll say something, maybe, if you're lucky. You needn't be that lucky. They're going to. And you think, well, maybe we can work with that. And maybe this speaker said it, but maybe some friend of his on the campus is saying the same thing. And, oh, talk to them. And I say, hey, my friends, do not sit around uh, and be so cynical. Do not sit around and say, oh, this country is hopeless. Do not sit around and say, oh, gee, all these politicians are crooks. Oh, gee, oh, gee, it's so terrible. So, no, hey, you know, thank you. I, I can get a record with that. But, but, but let's uh, work on this. Let's listen to people who disagree with us. Let's try and bring them along. Or at least find some areas. At least find some areas. And then we work with that. And so that's what I want to tell the high school students. I say what I think you, I tell about Mrs. Quattaguatza. <laughs> and I say, you, you can work together. You can work together, just don't be so cynical. Just don't sit there and uh, that gives nobody anything. 
Go and participate in public life. If you really want to participate on the library board, great. You want to participate in the public school system, wonderful. You want to go participate, I don't care how. You go participate and you practice. You practice working with other people. And you participate, you practice, uh, you listen, and uh, when you think you can't stand it anymore and you just can't bear what they're saying and what it is, uh, I'll tell you who public enemy number one is and you'll tell you how to find him. It's called the mirror, all right? So uh, that's tough. <laughs> Uh, but you wanted to know what I thought about it, <laughs> and that's what I think about it. All right. Thank you. I did want to know, and I'm glad to know. Um, questions from the audience? We have two administrators with uh, microphones, one in each aisle. So we are live streaming this, and it will be available later, so we want people to be able to hear you. So uh, I'll call on you, raise your hand, and, uh, and then you can make your way to one of the microphones. Hands? Don't be intimidated. Kim. Oh. Go ahead, Kim. Thank you, Justice Breyer. Uh, my question is, how useful do you think oral arguments are to moving justices' opinions? Thank you. Well, oral arguments are really for the justices to ask questions as they develop. Uh, everyone before the oral argument has uh, read the briefs, all the justices have read the briefs, our law clerks have read the briefs, we've discussed them with the clerks, the clerks have written memos, uh, and we've probably discussed them two or three times. So we think we know the case pretty well. Then we go into oral argument, and we have a point of view. I usually have a point of view when I read the first brief, but uh, my point of view might change when I read the second brief. You say, uh, being open-minded isn't not having a point of view. I think it's being willing to change when you see facts and arguments that show that that initial point of view was wrong. Now, oral argument, they're a little bit more fixed, but they can change. Now, how often do they change from A to not A? Not very often. Not very often. I can't say never. Sometimes they do. But if I'm forced to put a number, say 5%, 10% maybe if you're optimistic, and you have a losing case, 2%, uh, 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 I don't know, small percentage. But in changing the way a judge looks at the case, what are the matters that seem more important? What are the matters that seem uncertain? What are the matters we should be a little careful about in how we describe them? It has an influence there much more often. More than half the time, probably not. But 30, 40%, maybe, maybe so. And all that's important because how that opinion is written, what it says, what those words are, are really often more than the holding uh, going to make a difference to how the law functions uh, in whatever area it is. So I think oral argument is important and more than the clerks think usually. <laughs> Other questions over here in the front. Justice Breyer, thanks so much for coming out. I know we're all just so delighted to have you speak. So to borrow some words from President Ryan, you say that this country is an experiment to implement the values of the thoughts of the founders and their time and before. As we all charge into our legal careers, what is some advice that you can give us on how to implement those values? Well, again, I think of my father. I said this, they asked this the same thing, I'd give him the same answer. His second best advice was just to answer your question. 
And here's what he said. I'll tell you, you want to know his first best advice, which isn't bad advice. It was stay on the payroll. <laughs> but, that's, right. but, but, but he said, do your job. You see? And do it as well as you can. And usually your job, we hope, will be helpful to some people, at least. And uh, you do your job as well as you can. And you pay attention to what other people say. And you try to be helpful in there. Uh, somebody might notice, by the way. And you might get a better job. But if nobody notices, you still have the satisfaction of having done this as about as well as you can. And that's important. And that's what he told me. And that's what I've tried to do. Justice Breyer also said earlier today about being a law student, the most important advice he gave you was to read. <laughs> oh, no, I said, wait, well, this really, but no, no, it's not as bad as that. <laughs> I thought that was good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, no. I said, what was, I said what you ought to read is read your own notes after class. I mean, reading what you've written is more interesting than reading what somebody else written, after all. But then, and then, at the end of the week, read it again. And if you do that as a law student, and you really do it, it's pretty hard to do. And you do that every week. By the time the exam comes around, you'll discover it's much easier to remember what anybody said in the class. Oh, OK. I think that's not bad. Excellent. <laughs> that's why I wanted you to repeat it. I thought it was great advice. Uh, other questions? Yep, in the middle. Uh, Justice Breyer, thank you so much for talking with us. Um, I know both you and Dean Goldoboff have mentioned optimism going forward. Um, but in a more realistic sense, sometimes in the law school, there is a very cynical sense going forward. Um, currently, we're seeing what should be settled principles and precedent kind of coming under attack, um, such as you know Roe v. Wade, um, and even a current congressional member stating that Loving v. Virginia um, was poorly decided. Um, does this worry you going forward? I'm or always worried when people go. <laughs> of course, of course. But the question isn't whether to be worried. The question is if people say what they're thinking, that's what they're thinking. Okay. So now the question for us, I mean, and us, I mean people who don't necessarily, is well, all right, what do we do? And going around bearing your, Arthur Goldberg said that to me once when I clerked, I clerked for Arthur Goldberg. And I know this is a little corny what he said, it's sort of stupid, but it made an impression on me. <laughs> what he said was, I mean, somebody else was disagreeing. And I said, well, we've got to write this because we're so right. And he said, no, don't bother writing again. We've written our point, and that's what we can do. And I said, well, we've got to do something more. And he'd say, what do you want me to do, cry? <laughs> <laughs> hey. Okay, uh, so, so uh, let's, uh, uh, hey, so we figure out. And that's why I thought Senator Kennedy's advice is good. And uh, uh, remember what used to be, what used to be, you don't even know you're too young. <laughs> but it used to be what Ruth used to say. The woman's place is in the home. Okay, so what did the woman do in the home? Well, the best characterization of that. I saw it was in a New Yorker cartoon, I think, where uh, somebody, a woman was pointing to her husband, and she said, uh, oh, uh, he decides, you see, uh, he decides all the important, uh, let's see, oh, I just sort of do the minor things, like 
take care of the house and see that the children are at school and see they have enough to eat and wear and have their friends over and so But he decides the really important things, like what should we do in Vietnam and how, <laughs> all right, you, you see? I mean, please, we do what we can do. And we do what we can do, I think, leans in the direction of listening, talking, persuading, but by no means shutting off the people who have this really different view. And I see that uh, when I see a few numbers. And I say, there are an awful lot of people here, and I can only talk to like 14 at a time, sometimes more, but these are all people that a lot of them agree with me already, so I don't need to talk to them. But the, the, but the, the, the point is, uh, participate. Get out there, and you find it hard to get people to agree with you to go to your uh, pro-choice rally. Okay, then let's take them to a different rally. And you're not going to go to a, the other one, <laughs> but uh, there are a lot of things. There are lots of things to think about. The world is made of many things, you know? And uh, don't shut them off. You don't shut the people off. One of the great virtues of the country is uh, 331 million people, yeah, living together. And what I see, I saw this in an article the other day, that some countries are primarily held together by documents and others by memory. Both of both in every country, but we're primarily a document. I have it here, I got it. And believe me, this is the document. That's it. And you can get people of very, very different points of view. Not always agreeing about how to interpret this, but they'll, they'll say, yeah, even if they don't know exactly what's in it. And that helps us stay together. It really does. And I see it every day, and I marvel at it every day. Absolutely. So that's the side I'd like you to be on. I'd like you to be on the side that, however worried it is, worry something keep down in here. Or talk to your pillow or your roommate at night. <laughs> but uh, um, yeah. but uh, trying to be a positive force, decent, nice to that person who disagrees with you, see something amusing in what they say, <laughs> see something that God, well, sort of interesting that you think that. <laughs> I mean, there we are. And uh, you're more likely to bring them along. And you can say, well, there are other ways of doing what? What other way? What other way? I mean, I don't know what it is. And uh, we've tried this way. So, all right, I'd be repeating myself. But that's, uh, that's what uh, the experience on the court, more so. And in general, that's, that's what it leads me to think we're fairly good at and we'll continue to do. And, and being upset? Sure, be upset. Be upset. Tell your mother, father, wife, husband, girlfriend, boyfriend, best pal. But when you're out there and you want to help, help. In the back, right in the back. Thank you, Justice Breyer. Um, how should Supreme Court justices interact with the media and journalists, or to what extent should they? Well, it's, uh, you don't talk about present cases or cases that might come up, and once they learn that you're not going to talk about that, you'll be surprised how rarely they contact you. <laughs> 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 but 
but, but I usually do. And I think Rehnquist used to do that. And, and uh, uh, I think uh, that uh, probably uh, Roberts does too, and probably a few others. Is once a year you go out to, there's a regular Supreme Court press corps. Uh, from, and they're much, uh, I mean, their articles are much more uh, informed, whether you agree with them or not, they're much more informed. And so once a year, we'll go out to a Chinese restaurant, and we have a nice time. And so they've spent two more hours learning nothing. But <laughs> nonetheless, uh, no, no, it's, a, it's just good relationship. And uh, learn something about how the court works, but not individual cases. Can I ask a follow-up to that? Please. Uh, cameras in the courtroom, the experience of COVID, does that change your views in any way of, of having to do things remotely? And what do you see going forward? COVID, what we did was we, when it was for that year anyway, a little over a year, uh, we um, were telephone. Really, we, the lawyers were on the phone, we were on the phone, and you could ask questions. We had the phone set up in such a way. And our conferences were like that, too. No one liked that very much. I mean, it cuts off the human part of it. And so now what we're doing is we're in the courtroom for oral argument, uh, but the public isn't there. The news is press. The press is there, staff, and uh, uh, people who work there, and they all have to have their COVID checked and so forth. And, uh, and uh, conferences were, were there. Uh, we're all present, uh, almost always. But uh, that's better. And what's grown out of it, which I think is better, is it used to be sort of a total free-for-all. And now we have a slightly more organized way that Roberts will ask the first question. No, usually, well, Roberts could, but, uh, but usually it's Clarence Thomas who asks the first question. And that's, you know, I've sat next to him for 27 years. I know he has questions and understands the case perfectly well and has questions about it, but he never liked to ask questions. He didn't like to butt in. That's actually the truth of the matter. And so now that it's sort of more stabilized, he asks interesting questions. And, and uh, uh, there we are. I think that's a big plus. And, and you, you know, everybody knows they're going to have a chance. The arguments go on a little longer. But I think that's a good thing. So, so we're going to have it. Everybody's going to have a chance to ask us questions. And uh, so it's, it, I think it works a little better. And I think we'll stick to the system. Though it does take more time, which, uh, depending on the case, might or might not bother you. <laughs> more questions? Over here. Thank you so much for being here with us, Justice Breyer. Um, you spoke briefly in response to Professor Ford Mosery's question about how oral arguments might change judges' opinions. And I'm curious about how, over the course of your time on the court, whether hearing arguments over and over, reading briefs over and over, there are bigger picture things that judges can and do change their minds on, and whether there's anything that your experience on the court has changed your mind on? No, probably quite a few, but I mean, it's hard for me to remember back to what I, to what I was, um, I mean, I just had a case, I can't tell you what it is because it isn't out yet. And, and um, <laughs> yeah, but I was just thinking, I, did, I didn't change my mind, but, when I began to look into it, it just was less simple than I thought. And there's a better argument on the other side than I thought. And that happens fairly often. That happens fairly often. Um, 
you really want something where I would have come out the other way. I mean, I think one of the most interesting areas now, because we're having more of these cases, because more people are, are the religion cases. Mm -hmm. and, and how exactly on this freedom of religion part, I mean, I said that to the class earlier, but I mean, uh, the Quakers don't want to pay for Vietnam. That's part of their religion, but they have to. But there are an awful lot of cases, the, the tribe wants to smoke peyote. Well, they have a right to. But a different tribe doesn't want the trees cut down for religious, not environmental reasons. And they don't have that right. Hmm. And what's the underlying principles here? And I've sort of had a hard time with this group. And I think we would. And, uh, and the person who did, I joined her opinion saying that because uh, it was uh, Amy Barrett. And she said, you know, it's awfully hard to find principles here. I said, I agree with that one. <laughs> and, 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 uh, there we are. One last question over here. Thank you so much, Justice Breyer. Um, I have a question. What are, what are experiences outside of your career that have informed the way you look at the law? And are there ways in which that you recommend that law students develop themselves outside of their direct interaction with the law and with their career? Yeah. I'd say a law student, and I've said this about judges, because David Bazelant really gave me this advice when I became a judge. He said, find one thing that really interests you that has nothing to do with being a judge. You can say the same thing about a lawyer. And follow it as a hobby. And I, I probably, I've had a couple. I mean, what, one was this architecture thing I've been on, which is I've learned a lot. I've learned a lot about sort of architecture, but also about the need for architecture uh, to make a world uh, in which human beings can have decent lives and how the built environment, which is these buildings and so forth, really affects you in ways you don't know about. But it's there. Psychologically, it plays a very important role. And I've heard architects discuss it, and I find it absolutely fascinating. And what, what I'd say, what I've said often, which is so, so true, uh, to the uh, students who are about to enter college, and they say, what shall I study? And what they're thinking, they want to be lawyers, and they want to make money. And they're like, okay. <laughs> Don't, I won't say I said that. But, but, <laughs> but um, I say, look, undergraduate, there is no answer for law. You don't know. There's no specific thing. So why don't you, if you want, take some time and study the liberal arts? Learn a foreign language. And it's not too late, you know. If you want to learn Spanish, if you want to learn French, you can do it. And uh, why? And what I say to them is what I've learned over time is that uh, you only have one life. And you know that life pretty well. And so does your family. And so do your friends. And you know theirs. And you know what those lives are like. But there are billions of people who have other lives, you know. And through literature and by knowing a foreign language, you can learn about lives that otherwise would never touch you. And that's a fabulous thing to learn. I, I, I've done that. And it's, I'll give you the secret. I, I, I've tried that with French. It's a hobby. It doesn't hurt anybody. And I like doing it. OK? So, so um, uh, 
uh, and I got good advice on how to do it. Uh, it, was, uh, it was by the, one of the ambassadors, actually, from France, and he said, here's what you do. Uh, read half an hour a day. That's all. 20 minutes. And the first thing is you won't understand a word, but then write down the words you don't understand, look them up in the dictionary. Okay, but don't spend more than 20 minutes to half an hour a day. Well, I've tried to do that. I've read a lot of things. Interesting. And I heard one of the people, because I was listening to, to uh, Boujon, uh, it was uh, uh, Giscard d'Estaing, who had been president of France. And he speaks perfect English. And uh, he reads English a half hour a day. You want to learn Spanish? I've tried. <laughs> you want to learn Spanish? Half an hour a day? You do that for half an hour a day? A year, a year, a year and a half. But my goodness, it will be worth it. It will be worth it. And uh, you want me to tell you how it'll be worth it? I don't know. But it will. Thank you, Justice Breyer. Thank you to all of you for being here. Thank you to the university and everyone at the law school and everyone at Monticello and the Jefferson Foundation for making this possible, for making all of the Founders Day activities possible. Um, Thank you most especially to you, Justice Breyer, well, for you. accepting thank this medal. It thank is you. such an honor, and I hope you will all join me in thanking Justice Stephen Breyer. Welcome, uh, everyone, to the 2022 McCorkle Lecture. It's wonderful to see you here. Uh, this is one of the first large in-person events that we are having uh, at the law school, and we are uh, just thrilled to, to be here with all of you. This lecture is in memory of Claiborne Ross McCorkle, who was born in 1982, sorry, in 1882, and graduated with high honors from the law school in 1910, where he was a member of the Raven Society. For 18 years, he was a respected member of the Wise County Bar and was active in civic and political affairs, serving two terms as Commonwealth attorney. In 1920, in the midst of Jim Crow and racial violence, he prosecuted two leaders of a lynch mob at some risk to himself. He secured their conviction, which was a notable and unusual outcome at the time in the Commonwealth of Virginia and across the South. And this was considered to be a severe blow to mob violence in Southwest Virginia. Mr. McCorkle later participated in the writing of the American Jurisprudence Treatise, and he had a long career in legal research and editing until 1965. He died in 1977 at the age of 94. His son, George McCorkle, who, along with his mother, Hazel Webb McCorkle, funded this lecture in Claiborne's name, described how his father equated law with justice. We are thrilled to honor Mr. McCorkle with this lecture, which seems particularly apt to me, and to have several members of the McCorkle family here tonight. So welcome to you. The McCorkle Lecture was established to bring, quote, leading scholars and practitioners to Charlottesville to speak on areas of the law undergoing development and of general concern to the profession. Our speaker this afternoon has spent his career exploring every facet of race in American law, from criminal justice to family law to affirmative action to electoral politics and beyond. His penetrating analysis and unique perspective have made his an important voice both within the academy and outside of it. I am speaking, of course, of Randall L. Kennedy. 
Mr. Kennedy, Professor Kennedy, is the Michael R. Klein Professor of Law at Harvard Law School, where he teaches courses on contracts, criminal law, and the regulation of race relations. He is a graduate of St. Albans School and Princeton University, and he also studied as a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford University. He received his law degree from Yale and clerked afterwards for Judge J. Skelly Wright of the United States Court of Appeals for the District of, uh, of Columbia Circuit uh, and for Justice Thurgood Marshall of the United States Supreme Court. Professor Kennedy is the author of eight books and countless book chapters and scholarly articles, and his work also frequently appears in outlets like the Washington Post, the New York Times, and the Chronicle of Higher Education. One book reviewer called him, quote, one of our most important and perceptive writers on race and the law. His book, Race, Crime, and the Law, in 1997, won the 1998 Robert F. Kennedy Book Award, which is given each year to the book that most faithfully and forcefully reflects Robert Kennedy's purpose. I mention that honor in particular uh, because it's an award close to our hearts, Robert F. Kennedy being a graduate of our class of 1951. The book probes a highly complex area in new ways, engaging issues like the history of race discrimination, jury nullification, and crime control. The New York Times called it admirable, courageous, and meticulously fair and honest. Professor Kennedy's most recent book is Say It Loud on Race, Law, History, and Culture, which collects new uh, and previous publi previously published essays and revisits his former work with a new eye, weighing in on a range of issues at the nexus of race, history, politics, and law. It was described in the New York Times as the latest contribution to his sophisticated body of work documenting the race problem of the United States. For his incredible contributions to scholarship, Professor Kennedy has been inducted as a member into the American Law Institute, the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, and the American Philosophical Association. I was so pleased that Professor Kennedy spoke at the law school virtually in our national faculty workshop in the summer of 2020 in the midst of the national reckoning with race that had begun that spring. And I am so pleased that he is able to be here today in person as we continue to grapple with the important questions that gained such salience that summer and at the same time are also watching the confirmation hearings of the first black woman to be nominated to the Supreme Court. As we look backward and forward at this moment, assess soberly just how much work remains to be done, and celebrate important milestones, it is hard to imagine someone I would rather hear from than Professor Randy Kennedy, from whom I always learn new things. I learn to see what I already know in new ways, and I find myself continuing to try to answer the questions he raises long after he has finished speaking. So with that, I am delighted to hear Professor Kennedy speak on From Protest to Law, Triumphs and Defeats in Struggles for Racial Justice, 1950 to 1970. Please join me in welcoming Professor Randall L. Kennedy. Thank you so much for the gracious introduction and for inviting me here. This is a, really a a great honor for me, and I, I really appreciate it. Before I begin, I'd, I'd like to uh, salute the McCorkles. I'd also like to salute a person who is not here with us, but whose, whose spirit is, is very much with me. Um, I grew up playing tennis, tournament tennis. And one of the people with whom I practiced a lot in Washington, D.C., was a wonderful man by the name of Wilbur Jenkins. Wilbur Jenkins, a very courtly, very gracious, tough competitor, but a wonderful sportsman. I learned a lot from him. And the reason why I mention him here is because Wilbur Jenkins was the father 
of Kimberly Jenkins Robinson. I know that Professor Robinson would be here, but Professor Robinson is in Washington, D.C., supporting a classmate who's up for a quite considerable job. <laughs> but I, maybe she'll hear this, maybe she'll see this. I, I, want, I want to salute Professor Kimberly Jenkins Robinson in her own right because it's just wonderful to see her career blossom so wonderfully, so fabulously, really. And I want to remember her great father. Finally, I want to salute another McCorkle. I don't know if there's any relationship but uh, with us today is Pope McCorkle III, known by his, two, by his friends as Mac McCorkle. Mac McCorkle is a professor at Duke. He drove up to be here. Mac and I are, uh, we, we, we've known one another since 1973. We've argued over and over and over, countless hours spent arguing about Charles Beard and Richard Hofstadter and Daniel Borston, Arthur Schlesinger Jr., C. Wright Mills, um, hours and hours. And uh, my life has been deeply enriched by Mac McCorkle and I'm very appreciative, Mac, that uh, you've driven up to see me give these remarks. Thank you. I'm going to share with you for the next few minutes the introduction to a book on which I've been working for a good long time. And um, and one of the wonderful things about a setting like this is that, I mean, it's, it's tremendously flattering to be here. It's a tremendous honor. But it also has a, a, another very important function. I'm going to offer remarks, and then I'm going to subside. And there will be a, a, a period of time during which I can field comments, questions, corrections, and by all means, objections. And one of the wonderful things about an educational setting like this is I'm sure that I'm going to learn a lot. And I look forward to that period after my remarks when I can get the benefit of your reactions to what I have to say. So here I'm going to describe a book on which I've been working. This book explains how struggles against racial injustice in the mid-20th century changed American law. It describes legislatures, agencies, and courts responding to the civil rights movement that ushered in the second Reconstruction. The first Reconstruction, which transpired between approximately 1863 and 1877, transformed the legal order pursuant to three constitutional amendments, 
The 13th Amendment abolished slavery. The 14th Amendment made all persons born within the jurisdiction of the United States federal citizens and prohibited states from abridging the privileges and immunities of citizens, depriving any persons of due process of law, or denying any person the equal protection of the laws. The 15th Amendment prohibited the United States and all states from denying the right of citizens to vote on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Each of these amendments also authorized Congress to implement the new provisions with appropriate legislation. Racial dissidents propelled a second reconstruction between approximately 1950 and 1970. This book that I'm writing delineates the perceived wrongs they targeted and the legacies they bequeathed. It also explains how and to what effect pugnacious demagogues, wily bureaucrats, impassioned commentators, obstructionist judges, calculating politicians, and millions of ordinary Americans opposed racial reform. The story features a wide range of characters. Some are well-known, Thurgood Marshall, Martin Luther King Jr., Earl Warren, Lyndon Baines Johnson. Others have been overlooked or forgotten. Harry and Harriet Moore were racial justice activists in Florida killed by white supremacists in a bombing on Christmas Eve, 1951, their 25th wedding anniversary. Edwin W. Kenworthy was the executive secretary of President Harry S. Truman's Committee for Equality of Treatment and Opportunity in the Armed, Ser in the armed Services. His quiet but persistent advocacy helped to pave the way for desegregating the military. Morris Milgram was a home builder passionately committed to the construction of multiracial suburban developments. Hazel Palmer was the lead plaintiff in Palmer versus Thompson. A lowly maid, she became a racial justice activist out of solidarity with her son, a freedom writer. R. Jess Brown, one of only a handful of black Mississippi lawyers in the Jim Crow era, pursued a career as a civil rights attorney after he was fired from his position as a school teacher when he joined a lawsuit seeking equal pay for black educators. In stark contrast was Jack Crenshaw, a white Harvard-trained attorney who represented the bus company boycotted by the black community in Montgomery in 1955-1956. Crenshaw played a paradoxical role. By refusing to compromise, he pushed the boycotters to take a bolder stand against segregation than they had initially envisioned, and thereby facilitated inadvertently the rise of Reverend King, the most celebrated protester of the era. Politicians such as Richard Russell and Howard Smith spent much of their time and talent trying to stymie the onrushing tide of racial change. Judges such as Sidney Mize and Benjamin Franklin Cameron also did what they could to pre impede reform, engaging repeatedly in judicial nullification. For one thing, they made factual findings that blatantly denied reality. Whether they were self-consciously lying or acting out of delusion, 
is a puzzling subject to which I will recur time and again. Another set of low visibility, high impact enemies of the racial justice movement were murderers and arsonists. Some of these racially motivated criminals were held to account, at least partially, but many escaped detection or punishment on account of popular local opposition to racial reform. Efforts to stymie reform arose not only from outside racially oppressed communities, they issued from inside those communities as well. Black Southerners such as Percy Green and Reverend H. H. Humes campaigned against the Civil Rights Movement. Segregationist authorities succeeded in enticing some blacks to spy on their neighbors and sell their ill-gotten information to authorities dedicated to preserving white domination. Police agencies, including most notably the Federal Bureau of Investigation, proved themselves adept at inserting black informants into racial justice organizations. A trusted accountant at the Southern Christian Leadership Conference funneled information to the FBI for years. An esteemed civil rights photographer was a prized source for government authorities intent on keeping tabs on the black freedom movement. A man trusted with protecting the leader of the Black Panther Party in Chicago turned out to be an FBI plant, joining hundreds, perhaps thousands, of other informants that riddled Black Panther ranks. Communities that showed remarkable capacity for self-sacrificing solidarity also showed vulnerability to mercenary treachery. My interpretation of the Second Reconstruction acknowledges important triumphs. Reformers persuaded judges and other lawgivers to see racial discrimination that they had previously, that they had previously ignored or misunderstood. They demoted racial segregation from legal acceptability to constitutional damnation. Landmarks of this effort include Brown versus Board of Education, Loving versus Virginia, and other rulings that belatedly recognized the fictitiousness of the claim that racial segregation represented merely an innocuous separation of the races which implied nothing about racial subordination. Reformers enlarged the range of activities subject to federal constitutional standards of equality by challenging racist practices indulged in by political parties, individuals seeking to use restrictive covenants, unions endowed with closed shop authority, and private hospitals and businesses subsidized by the public. Reformers deployed the Constitution's Interstate Commerce Clause and Equal Protection Clause to clear away racial impediments in travel and commercial transactions. They enlisted the enactment of municipal and state anti-discrimination law addressing employment, housing, and public accommodations. They often successfully lobbied for federal legislation, including the Civil Rights Act of 1957, 1960, and 1964, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and the Open Housing Act of 1968. Reformers persuaded the Supreme Court to rehabilitate Reconstruction-era legislation that enabled plaintiffs to recover damages and lawsuits against officials deemed to have violated constitutional rights. The seminal case in this line of jurisprudence, Monroe versus Pape, arose from an egregious act of 
racism perpetrated by the Chicago police in 1958. Racial reformism is also in the background of the most famous criminal procedure case in American history, Miranda versus Arizona, in which the court required police to inform detained persons that they have a right to decline answering questions and to have access to a lawyer. The Miranda warning stemmed from efforts to counteract police overreaching that seemed almost customarily to attend the apprehension of racial minority suspects. Racial reformers even succeeded in winning recognition for the idea that cessation of invidious discrimination is insufficient to overcome the lingering effects of historical injustices. Our society has been doing something special against the Negro for hundreds of years, Martin Luther King Jr. observed. How then can he be absorbed into the mainstream of American life if we do not do something special for him now in order to balance the equation and equip him to compete on a just and equal basis? Lyndon Johnson gestured in the same direction. In a commencement address at Howard University in 1965, the president insisted that freedom is not enough. You do not take a person who for years has been hobbled by chains and liberate him, bring him to the starting line of a race, and then say you are free to compete with all the others and still justly believe that you have been completely fair. It is not enough, the president continued, to open the gates of opportunity. All of our citizens must have the ability to walk through those gates. This is the next and the most profound battle for civil rights. According to Johnson, the proper goal was not just equality as a right and a theory, but equality as a fact and equality as a result. The pleas of King and Johnson for positive discrimination in favor of the Negro were anathema to conservatives and deeply controversial within the ranks of liberals. Proponents, however, did establish a beachhead for the idea for the idea, though it, that it, though it attained only grudging, fragmentary, contested acceptance. Still, that policies pushing beyond anti-discrimination into affirmative action, reparations, diversity, became important, albeit embattled features of American society, is attributable largely to Second Reconstruction reformism. Resistance to racism transformed not only race relations law, it also transformed civil liberties law. By fighting off repression, reformers helped to create a panoply of newly recognized rights. To protect the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, lawyers moved the Supreme Court to recognize organizational privacy. To shield civil rights attorneys, lawyers nudged the court to understand litigation as a form of political expression warranting federal constitutional protection. To insulate news organizations, lawyers convinced the court to constitutionalize the law of libel. To shelter protesters, lawyers got the court to craft rules that inhabit the authoritarian squelching of massed dissent. To safeguard inmates, lawyers convinced judges to recognize constitutional rights behind prison walls. To defend campus-bound dissidents, lawyers persuaded judges to cloak students with some degree of constitutional protection. 
Racial justice activists succeeded for a time in winning the esteem of powerful arbiters of public opinion. Announcing his intention to introduce voting rights legislation in the spring of 1965, President Johnson invoked the Civil Rights Movement's anthem, We Shall Overcome, and declared that the real hero of the moment was the American Negro. Dissidents, especially black ones, became briefly the beneficiaries of flattering publicity, foundation largesse, idolization on college campuses, and favorable attention from celebrities and other affluent folk. At least as important as elevating racial minorities in the eyes of others was elevating themselves in their own eyes. Negro History Week became Black History Month. Straightened hair gave rise to naturals. Dark-skinned attained a new prestige. Soul brother number one, James Brown, declared unambiguously, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. By the 1970s, black caucuses were being created in every conceivable setting, from the Congressional Black Caucus to the National Association of Black Social Workers to the National Council of Black Lawyers. Reformers also succeeded in changing the consciousness of large sectors of other marginalized groups. In the 1940s and 1950s, the most prominent organizations dedicated to the defense and elevation of Mexican Americans insisted that they be designated as white. In the latter half of the 1960s, emergent cohorts of activists took to calling themselves Chicanos and championed brownness. Indians demanded red power, and people of Asian descent demanded with increasing insistence that they be afforded more respect. An upshot of their efforts were modifications in, in immigration law that contributed to demographic transformations that continue to reverberate. Reformers also suffered many defeats. In much of white America, the black freedom movement was shadowed by suspicion and disparagement. At no point during the 1950s and 1960s did it, overwhelm, did it find overwhelming favor with white Americans. 60% of white Americans polled expressed disapproval of the 1963 March on Washington at which Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his iconic I Have a Dream speech. In May 1965, soon after the highly publicized brutalization of peaceful voting rights dissidents in Alabama, only 48% of polled white respondents sided with the protesters. Although the prevalence and intensity of racism among whites during that era uh, uh, decreased, large numbers continued habitually to assess blacks less favorably than others. Although racial dissidents made notable headway judicially, especially in federal courts, they also suffered considerable frustration. After Brown versus Board of Education, officials in the Deep South openly thwarted desegregation in public primary and secondary schooling. 
In May 1964, the Southern Education Reporting Service estimated that of 287,000 black students in Alabama, only 21 attended schools with whites. Of 258,000 black students in South Carolina, only 10 attended school with whites. Of over 300,000 black students in Mississippi, none attended schools with whites. Prior to 1966, not a single black teacher in Alabama, Mississippi, or Louisiana was assigned to a school was assigned to a school to work alongside white teachers. Soon thereafter, pursuant to concerted effort on the part of activists, the Department of Justice, the Department of Education, and federal courts, widespread desegregation did emerge in locales where officials had once pledged never. And for a while, authorities permitted or required redress of ongoing discrimination and the effects of past wrongdoing with aggressive remediation, integrative busing being a controversial example. But by the mid-1970s, white backlash had become so potent that Congress, the executive branch, and the Supreme Court took decisive steps to limit the extent to which integrative educational reform would be permitted to encroach upon further upon established prerogatives. Thus it was that Brown versus Board of Education became an Ozymandian landmark, remarkably influential while soberingly diminished. In other contexts too, racial dissidents encountered frustration. They failed to convince the Supreme Court that the 13th and 14th Amendments should be interpreted to prohibit private parties from engaging in invidious racial discrimination in places of public accommodation. That is why federal legislation was needed to prescribe racial mistreatment at restaurants, hotels, amusement parks, and the like in jurisdictions without local anti-discrimination laws. Racial reformers also endured defeats in their campaigns to effectuate voting rights, even when reinforced by three federal laws between 1957 and 1964. Only with the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965 were blacks in the, were blacks in the most recalcitrant, recalcitrant precincts in Dixie free to register to vote unencumbered by racist hindrances. Moreover, while the Voting Rights Act succeeded dramatically in clearing way for individual blacks to register and vote, the legislation was far less successful in altering arrangements that accentuated the power of the white majority and debilitated the capacity of blacks to exercise power commensurate with their share of the voting population. The Voting Rights Act increased individual participation in electoral politics. In terms, however, of shifting the distribution of power between racial groups, the upshot of the Voting Rights Act was considerably more modest. Racial dissidents were often unable to prevent black communities from being mangled by racially discriminatory, racially discriminatory highway construction or redevelopment projects. The justices of the United States Supreme Court, along with many other officials, complacently ratified governmental conduct that either purposefully or indifferently 
destroyed scores of black communities in the service of programs that redistributed resources to favored sectors of the population, typically affluent whites. Reformers also largely failed to prevent the ongoing construction of black ghettos pursuant to, among other policies, racially discriminatory siting decisions for public housing. The record of racial reform in the administration of criminal law was decidedly mixed. Previously noted were efforts to regulate police more closely, initiatives largely motivated by fears of racism in the implementation of criminal law. In the mid-1960s, however, the Warren Court rejected pleas from racial reformers in two cases that cast long shadows over the intersection of race relations and law enforcement. In 1965, in Swain v. Alabama, the court declined to subject peremptory challenges in jury selection to conventional anti-discrimination norms, thereby authorizing prosecutors to select all-white juries at will. Two years later, in Terry v. Ohio, the court gave police constitutional blessing to stop and frisk individuals on less than probable cause a choice that the NAACP Legal Defense Fund warned against, presciently foreseeing that loosened constraints on police would redound with special force to the detriment of black suspects. The ambiguity of the record regarding race relations law also obtained with respect to the law of civil liberties. Although ramparts protecting political dissent were strengthened in some ways during the era of the Second Reconstruction, subversion of civil liberties during that period have never been adequately acknowledged and rectified. The, fear, the Federal Bureau of Investigation bugged, harassed, and threatened leading dissidents, infiltrated groups absent legitimate justification, and spread discord for the purpose of destroying organizations that J. Edgar Hoover deemed to be ideologically obnoxious. The FBI did this with the complicity of Presidents Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon, and pursued its nefarious missions with virtual impunity. Local and state law enforcement authorities also encroached upon civil liberties. Sometimes they did so through harassment and assaults, and sometimes they did so through half-hearted investigations and prosecutions of racist attacks. Such crimes claimed, among others, Medgar Evers, Viola Luizzo, James Reeb, and Vernon Dahmer. Not only were they killed by violent bigots, their families and supporters were forced to watch perpetrators succeed in delaying or avoiding appropriate punishments. Some wounds from which dissidents suffered were self-inflicted. Trust was misplaced in the hands of people who turned out to be government informants. Prominent reformers made their movements vulnerable to blackmail on account of personal misconduct. Reverend King's marital infidelity, for example, gave leverage to J. Edgar Hoover's incessant efforts to hurt the black freedom movement. The Black Panther Party allowed itself to be undermined by criminality within its ranks. Internecine conflict ravaged groups that were putatively devoted to black solidarity. Seduced by the allure of television, newspaper headlines, and adoring followers, 
Some dissidents cultivated personal celebrity at the expense of organizational goals. The adoption of off-putting rhetoric and comportment limited the appeal of dissidents who succumbed to self-indulgence telegraphed in the title of screeds such as Huey Newton's revolutionary suicide and Julius Lester's look out whitey, black, black power is gonna get your mama. In the NAACP, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and other organizations, sexism diminished the contributions of women. Remarkable activists such as Ella Baker and Daisy Bates assisted the movement despite patriarchal restrictions. But they and others like them could have contributed even more had they not been burdened by sexism. Dissidents also succumbed to self-destructiveness with intermittent outbursts of anti-white resentments. The expulsion of whites from the, Southern, from the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and the Congress of Racial Equality, for example, were missteps that contributed significantly to the downfall of both organizations. Protesters tried occasionally to form coalitions of racially marginalized peoples in campaigns for social justice. In a few instances, African Americans, Latino Americans, Native Americans, and Asian Americans succeeded in acting cooperatively. To a large extent, though, they failed, stymied by widely divergent group positions and needs and the ever-present pulls of selfishness and prejudice. The record, then, of the mid-20th century crusade against racial oppression is mixed. Weeks after the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, rioting in Harlem for six days, an explosion sparked by resentment against police brutality and fueled by a combustible mix of racial discrimination and social deprivation, really showed the limits of the reforms that had been um, mobilized in this period. The next year, similar ingredients fueled disturbances that engulfed Watts, California after passage of the Voting Rights Act. Rioting there led to 34 deaths, hundreds of injuries, around 4,000 arrests, and some $35 million in property damage. The next several years witnessed the recurrence of long, hot summers in which riots, rebellions, and uprisings inspired firebrands embarrassed proponents of nonviolent activism, chastened liberals, alienated moderates, animated reactionaries, and fed resentment in so-called middle America that conservatives effectively reaped for decades. A presidential commission reported early in 1968 that America was increasingly moving toward two societies, one black, one white, separate and unequal, the extent to which this was so surely qualifies the degree to which it can rightly be said that the civil rights movement succeeded. The most dramatic failure on the part of racial dissidents was their inability to transform the political environment such that adversaries of racial reform were rendered unable to retain or attain significant influence. 
Strom Thurmond, Richard Russell, Sam Irvin, James O. Eastland, and other leading segregationist politicians held on to their electoral posts despite the second reconstruction. George Wallace's blatant racism in Alabama did not prevent him from becoming an important national figure. And the popularity of Lester Maddox's notorious diehard opposition to the desegregation of public accommodations propelled him to gubernatorial victory in Georgia. Segregationists, moreover, received key support, or at least acquiescence, from forces beyond their most devoted followers. William Harold Cox became predictably an obstructionist segregationist federal judge. He was the first person appointed to the federal bench by President John F. Kennedy. J.P. Coleman was the governor of Mississippi who oversaw the founding of the Mississippi Sovereignty Commission, an agency expressly dedicated to the protection of white supremacy. He was nominated to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals by President Lyndon Johnson. Opposing his confirmation, Mrs. Victoria Gray complained that throughout Mr. Coleman's long career, he has held virtually every type of office in the state of Mississippi, all of which have been won only over the rights and often the bodies of Negro citizens of that state. Coleman, however, was confirmed and eventually became the Fifth Circuit's chief judge. As a politically active attorney in Arizona, in Arizona, William H. Rehnquist vocally opposed signature racial reforms in the 1950s and 1960s. But without having to show a genuine change of mind and heart, he won elevation to the Supreme Court, becoming eventually the nation's chief justice. Rehnquist's career shows that racial reformism did manage to exact some concessions even from recalcitrant foes. Rehnquist grudgingly embraced Brown versus Board of Education rhetorically when it became apparent that doing so might be required for him to obtain senatorial confirmation. Other foes of the civil rights movement also altered their ways, abandoning derogatory language and adopting gestures signifying some accommodation to a new racial dispensation. Strom Thurmond hired blacks to work in white-collar jobs in his congressional office and sent one of his children to a desegregated public school. But such alterations were often superficial mere fronts behind which segregationists continued to fight to preserve as much of the old order as possible. Racial justice dissidents never became sufficiently powerful to marginalize popular political figures even if they had resisted pivotal advances of the Second Reconstruction. Ronald Reagan opposed the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Yet that did not prevent him from becoming governor of California and president of the United States. How should racial reformers be assessed? From some perspectives, their accomplishments were modest, even negligible. Detractors argue that the racial justice movement, for all its splendor and sacrifice, excavated superficially leaving the essentials of pigmentocracy intact. 
Some even maintain that reformist triumphs entrenched racism by facilitating a narrative that attributed the continuation of poor social conditions to the faults of complainants rather than, than the legacies of unrectified past and ongoing wrongs. Viewed, however, from the perspective of demands made by leading dissidents between, say, 1940 and 1960, the attainments of the Second Reconstruction are impressive. In 1944, a spectrum of leading black thinkers produced an anthology under the editorial direction of Rayford Logan titled, What the Negro Wants. Contributors included W.E.B. Du Bois, A. Philip Randolph, Roy Wilkins, and Mary McLeod Bethune. Published by the University of North Carolina Press, the project came near to being scuttled by white Southern liberals who were alarmed by the contributors' uniform demand that segregation be abolished. By 1970, every legal reform demanded in what the Negro wants had come to pass. A similar trajectory marks the history of proposals made to secure these rights, the report by President Truman's Committee on Civil Rights, the PCCR, which recommended a long list of anti-discrimination measures backed most strikingly by a plea for the elimination of segregation from American life. It urged, among other things, establishing a permanent commission on civil rights, legislation to protect the rights of qualified persons to vote, modifying naturalization laws to permit the granting of citizenship without regard to race, ending racial discrimination in the armed forces, conditioning all federal assistance to public or private agencies on assurance of non-discrimination, and prohibiting racial discrimination in employment, restrictive housing covenants, transportation, and places of public accommodation. Although a few recommendations by the PCCR had yet to become law by the end of the Second Reconstruction, activists succeeded overall in establishing reforms that exceeded what the PCCR had envisioned. Even when one stretches, however, to conf confer appropriate recognition upon the achievements of the Second Reconstruction, realities ought to temper triumphalism. In an illuminating article about the NAACP as a reform movement, historians August Meyer and John H. Bracey Jr. argued that the judicial and legislative victories of the 1950s and 1960s brought to a conclusion the struggle to, to achieve the, the original goals enunciated by the NAACP in 1909. But the NAACP charter notes an aspiration to eradicate race prejudice among the citizens of the United States and to secure for African Americans complete equality before the law. That ambition had not been attained by 1970 and remains an elusive, likely distant aspiration today. Still, the mid-20th century struggle against racial wrongs was an inspiring episode. Its champions have been emulated and its tactics imitated. It provided schooling to dissidents who subsequently contributed to the free speech movement, 
opposition to the Vietnam War, the nuclear weapons disarmament movement, the women's liberation movement, anti-poverty campaigns, and LGBTQ emancipation. It provided a text, letter from Birmingham jail, that has become canonical, a canonical justification for conscientious lawbreaking. It provided an anthem, We Shall Overcome, that has become part of the universal soundtrack of protest. It prompted speeches that are among the most inspiring examples of oratory in America's history. The dissidents whose handiwork this book will chronicle usually sought worthy ends, typically fought with high intelligence, generally demonstrated laudable ethics, and often succeeded in producing important, beneficent, generative change. Their achievements were partial to be sure and subject to erosion. But world history discloses few, if any, analogs in which ostracized minorities and their allies were able, absent massive bloodletting, to institute reforms comparable to those of the Second Reconstruction. Given the sacrifices made on behalf of those efforts, the limitations of what they produced are anguishing to behold. But if there is one lesson above all that I want my book to impart, it is that improving society even a little bit is extraordinarily difficult. There are methodological, ideological, and personal features of this book that might be useful for readers to consider. I invest a lot of space detailing and arguing with reasons given by decision makers for the conclusions they reach and the actions they take. This attentiveness to rationales will be most manifest in my handling of judicial opinions. I wrestle with the reasoning of judges not because I think that the reasoning they offer describes their decision making. Judges are often unaware of their motivations or knowingly or unknowingly camouflage their purposes behind, beneath boilerplate rhetoric that has been designed over time to obfuscate, misdirect, and anesthetize. It is important, though, for readers to be familiar with judicial vocabulary and logics. Even when used disingenuously, those trappings offer revealing clues and sometimes exert significant pressure on their authors insofar as they wish to be seen as custodians of aspirations they have voiced. Frequently, journalists, historians, sociologists, and other commentators decline to venture into the innards of judicial opinions because they feel inhibited by an absence of specialized legal knowledge. I hope to demystify judicial opinion making. I have strong beliefs about the ideas, events, and personalities featured in the pages of this book. I applaud the dissidents who challenged racism, disapprove of the many who languished in indifference, and condemn those who fought to preserve white supremacism. At the same time, I try to present fairly the self-understandings of those I deplore. Defenders of racial hierarchy did not perceive themselves to be in favor of evil. 
They believed in the rightness of what they fought and did. To understand why they fought so hard, one must comprehend their perspective. Previously, I said that I admire the dissidents who challenged white supremacism. I do. And I am also thankful for their sacrifices. It is important to acknowledge, though, that neither victimization by bigotry nor resistance to it immunizes anyone from vices and foibles. Hence, I note without inhibition Martin Luther King Jr.'s obvious lying when he, charged, when he was charged criminally with leading an allegedly illegal boycott in the struggle against segregated buses in Montgomery. Slip-ups by conscientious civil rights attorneys. The racism of certain white, of certain black separatists. The vapidity of much black power posturing. And the undisciplined destructiveness of rioters often misportrayed nowadays as having engaged in rebellions and uprisings. I particularly stress two layers of difficulty that dissidents faced. One involved abandoning or confronting relatives, friends, and neighbors who thought it best to conciliate the old regime. It took courage to risk jailing to protest against racial wrongs. It took a different, even more remarkable bravery for dissidents to reject the advice or commands of people who viewed themselves as acting in the best interest of the protesters. When students engaged in sit-ins and the like, they were often excruciatingly aware of defying mothers and fathers who had spent a lifetime sacrificing on behalf of their children. A second difficulty was tedious repetition. From Hollywood films to law school texts, Protesters are frequently portrayed as facing an issue, winning a victory, and then quickly moving on to new territory to conquer. Actually, though, protesters confronted the same issues repeatedly, prevailing only to face the necessity of having to prevail again and again and again. Reformers were condemned to a sort of tedious trench warfare. Lawyers played critical roles in these battles. Professor Harry Calvin Jr. once quipped that the Second Reconstruction was the first revolution in history conducted, so to speak, on advice of counsel. The defenders of the old regime also employed attorneys. A few of them were quite distinguished. John W. Davis, the attorney who represented South Carolina in Brown versus Board of Education, was recognized even was recognized by his adversaries as one of the country's ablest advocates. Notable, too, was the small cadre of attorneys who attracted notoriety representing white supremacists charged with committing terroristic murders. Matthew Hobson Murphy Jr., who represented defendants who murdered Viola Luzo, styled himself a Ku Klux Klan attorney. Dubbing himself the Imperial Clownsel, Murphy sometimes donned Klan regalia in court. 
The lawyers who serviced racial reaction, however, came to be typically overshadowed by those who represented racial dissidents. Thurgood Marshall, Mr. Civil Rights, the first black Supreme Court justice, became the subject of plays and films. Robert L. Carter, Constance Baker Motley, and Spotswood Robinson became esteemed federal judges. Lawyers at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, under the leadership of Jack Greenberg, became a core of legendary litigators widely admired for their skilled, creative, and effective appellate advocacy. These specialists were dependent upon local counsel who initiated or defended cases before judges and juries that were often openly hostile. Local counsel typically handled civil rights work alongside conventional law practice. Many were black attorneys who operated on the margins of bars that only grudgingly tolerated them. The civil rights case law that emerged during the Second Reconstruction owes much to the perseverance of Oliver Hill of Virginia, Julius Chambers of North Carolina, Matthew Perry of South Carolina, Donald Hollowell of Georgia, Grattan Graves of Florida, Fred Gray of Alabama, Wiley Branton of Arkansas, Z. Alexander Luby of Tennessee, A.P. Thoreau of Louisiana, and Jack Young, Carsey Hall, and R. Jess Brown of Mississippi. A small but dedicated band of white lawyers also contributed. Laughlin McDonald of Winsboro, South Carolina said that, observing firsthand the pernicious effects of racial discrimination in all areas of life made him a civil rights lawyer. But that explanation, of course, is incomplete. Many white lawyers observed the pernicious effects of racial discrimination at first hand, but nonetheless avoided entanglement in civil rights cases that might alienate prospective clients, influential judges, and important politicians, people whose assistance typically helped to build careers. What prompted the few to swim against the tide is a mixture of circumstances shrouded ultimately in mystery. Plain, though, is the valuable case law generated by litigation that was shepherded by the likes of Chuck Morgan, Armand Durfner, and Richard Sobel, lawyers whom fellow jurists despised as race traitors. Yet another distinct core of lawyers were leftists, whose main organizational platform was the National Lawyers Guild. Unlike the American Bar Association, which long excluded black attorneys, the National Lawyers Guild always featured a multiracial membership. Black civil rights advocates who were members of the National Lawyers Guild included Charles Hamilton Houston, William Hasty, Lewis Redding, and Thurgood Marshall, though several dropped the organization when it declined to rid itself of communists in contrast to the ACLU and the NAACP, and when state and federal authorities intensified efforts to ostracize individuals deemed to be red or even merely pink. During the 1960s, a lingering alienation distanced influential liberals from the National Lawyers Guild. The NAACP Legal Defense Fund, for example, declined to collaborate with the National Lawyers Guild. That should not detract, however, from the fact that the National Lawyers Guild and other left-wing lawyers did important work on behalf of the black freedom movement. With that in mind, I try to give due credit to Leonard Boudin, Morton Stavis, Thomas Emerson, 
and other left-wing lawyers who made significant contributions. Contrary to some, I argue that courts played a central role in advancing progressive racial change during the Second Reconstruction. On the day before the announcement of Brown versus Board of Education, federal constitutional law as interpreted by the Supreme Court permitted officials to separate pupils by race purposefully in public, primary, and secondary schools. By the day after Brown was announced, things had changed dramatically because officials no longer had lawful authorization to separate pupils according to race. In some places, segregation continued for a long time. But now, officials who had previously effectuated segregation with confident openness were shoved under a pall of illegitimacy and forced to resort to subterfuge and evasion. The Supreme Court deprived separate but equal of legal rightness, a blow from which segregation has never recovered. My view of the Second Reconstruction, however, is hardly sunny. One reason is sharpened attentiveness to the deficiencies of achievements that stemmed from compromise. It is commonplace, for example, to read the Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act prohibited racial discrimination in employment. That description is way overbroad. Title VII initially covered private employers with 25 or more employees, a limitation extracted by Illinois Senator Everett Dirksen, whose support for the legislation was essential. The number of workers excluded from coverage by that limitation ranged from 17 to 18 million people. Title VII did not take effect at all until, until a year after it was signed into law. It unfurled with all deliberate speed. During the first year after Title VII took effect, it applied only to employers with 100 or more workers. It applied to employers with 75 or more workers during the second year and 50 or more workers during the third. Title VII did not become completely effective, therefore, until July 2nd, 1968. Close readings of celebrated racial reforms of the period reveal other instances of highly consequential small print that diminished the reach of legislation and case law that is often overpraised. A second, probably more impactful basis for the anti-triumphalism that has overtaken my interpretation of the Second Reconstruction is the profoundly disturbing, disturbing recent degradation of the American socio-political legal environment. The authorit authoritarianism, deceitfulness, and brutality that has long characterized racial mistreatment has seeped into national affairs more generally causing profound damage in new ways. I continue to affiliate myself with optimists who answer in the affirmative to the question, shall we overcome? But I do so now with a heightened sense of trepidation. 
fundamental issues that it seemed to be settled, for instance, the political virtue of facilitating voting, are actually unsettled, throwing into question with new urgency the meaning of the second reconstruction. I cannot confidently say that the progress it mirrored and advanced is beyond retrogression. I can say, though, that many of the dissenters who brought that era of reform into being did remarkably much with what they had and bequeathed to the world an inspiring example of humane protest. One cannot know for sure what history will do to the monuments they left. One can, however, glean solace from studying their conduct in that, it is often, that, in that it often exemplified a magnificent heroism that appropriately brings to mind poetry from T.S. Eliot. For us, there is only the trying. The rest is not our business. Thank you. Welcome, everyone, and thank you for joining us today for this panel on Justice Breyer's legacy after four decades on the bench. Um, my name is Micah Schwartzman. I'm the director of the Karsh Center for Law and Democracy at the University of Virginia School of Law. The Karsh Center is a nonpartisan legal institute whose mission is to promote the understanding and appreciation of principles and practices necessary for a well-functioning pluralistic democracy, including civil discourse, civic engagement and citizenship, ethics and integrity in public office and respect for the rule of law. Today, to discuss Justice Breyer's retirement and his many years of service within the federal judiciary, we have a panel of four former clerks who teach at the University of Virginia School of Law. Let me briefly introduce them before turning things over to Dean Reese Galyabov, who will be our moderator for today. First, we're fortunate to have with us Judge Vince Chabria, who is a lecturer at the law school. Judge Chabria is a federal district court judge in the Northern District of California, based in San Francisco. Before joining the bench in 2014, he was chief of appellate litigation in the San Francisco Attorney's Office, a deputy on the government litigation team, a member of the city attorney's affirmative litigation task force. Um, judge Chabria clerked for Justice Breyer at the Supreme Court in the 2001 term. Next, I'm happy to introduce Risa Galyabov, who is Dean of our law school and the Arnold H. Leon Professor of Law and Professor of History. She's the author of two prize-winning books, The Lost Promise of Civil Rights and Vagrant Nation, Police Power, Constitutional Change, and the Making of the 1960s. Dean Galyabov is a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, a member of the American Law Institute, a distinguished lecturer for the Organization of American Historians, and I should mention host of the UVA Law School podcast, Common Law. She also clerked for Justice Breyer in the 2001 term. Dean Galyabov is joined by Rachel Harmon, who is the Harrison Robertson Professor of Law, the class of 1957 Research Professor of Law and Director of UVA's Center for Criminal Justice. She's a member of the American Law Institute and author of an important new casebook, The Law of the Police. Before entering the academy, Professor Harmon served for eight years as a federal prosecutor in the US Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division. She clerked for Justice Breyer in the 1997 term. Our final panelist is Dan Ortiz, who is the Michael J. and Jane R. Horvitz Distinguished Professor of Law and Director of UVA's Supreme Court Litigation Clinic. Professor Ortiz has published widely on election law, civil procedure, constitutional law, and legal theory. 
As director of our Supreme Court clinic, he's argued numerous cases before the Supreme Court and with an enviable win-loss record. Professor Ortiz clerked for then Judge Breyer on the US Court of Appeals for the First, First Circuit and then for Justice Lewis Powell at the Supreme Court of the United States. Let me now turn things over to Dean Galibov, who will be moderating our panel today. I'm really glad that you all are here, uh, and I appreciate all of our panelists being willing to do this at such short notice. I'm really happy that this event came together. I have always felt incredibly lucky to have clerked for Justice Breyer and to know him, uh, and so lucky to have so many UVA faculty who share that experience, uh, including my co-clerk, Vince Chabria, who is, uh, as Micah said, a judge in San Francisco. Um, and I'm excited today to explore his legacy as a judge, as a boss, as a person uh, with, uh, with my colleagues. So uh, we were excited to do this in part, you know, the news cycle moves quickly and it moves from retirement to nomination to the future of the court, um, but we are an institution of higher learning. We can pause and take a bit uh, more time on the legacy part. Uh, and I know that you know our students spend a lot of time in law school reading the opinions of the court, and it's not every day that a justice steps down, and we have an opportunity to really explore the oeuvre uh, that he wrote and place him in a larger judicial and personal context. So I'm excited to do that today. I thought we would start off this morning with just general reflections from each of our panelists uh, about the justice, then I'll ask the panelists a few more specific questions and then open it up to Q&A. So please use the Q&A function on the Zoom screen uh, to post your questions uh, for the last portion of the event. Um, so for reflections, we'll start with you, Rachel. Thank you, Digalibaf. Well, I assume today that we're mostly going to be talking about Justice Breyer as a jurist, um, though all of us have a personal relationship with him. And I think I wanted to start by saying something on the personal side, because that maybe won't be in the papers as much um, as uh, some of his more important opinions. Um, I think that since my clerkship, Justice Breyer has served as my clearest role model for how to live a full and meaningful life. Um, of course, we'll talk about his cases, and he devoted an enormous amount of energy. Um, he worked extremely hard. Um, but even before he devoted his intellect to the bench, he made contributions as an academic, an administrative law scholar, as a teacher that remain relevant today. And many of you may have touched on them in law school. And, and before his time at Harvard and during his time at Harvard, he re repeatedly returned to public service, including at DOJ and at the Senate Judiciary Committee. And it just felt to me like as I was starting my career to look upon this man who had taken every opportunity to use uh, an incredible uh, intellectual capacity for um, serious reflection and public purposes. Um, I clerked in his third year at the Supreme Court, and what struck me maybe most about that year and in my relationship with him since on the personal side, especially in those first few months when I was working nights and weekends, was that he was working incredibly hard, but he was living remarkably well too. He always stayed good humored and optimistic. He was really and is a joy to be around. He was incredibly devoted to his wife, to his children, now to his grandchildren. Um, he had valued friendships that have lasted for decades. He was excited by new plays and movies and books and museum exhibits and ideas. And he constantly wanted to learn something new. So while I was clerking, he was listening to audio tapes all the time, trying to learn Spanish. Um, 
I found his intellect and energy and passion singular. He lives a life and a half in the same 24 hours that the rest of us try to do one. Um, but his enthusiasm for life and the fullness of his life, even if I can't live up to his example, has been an inspiration for me. And I, I guess I think it's worth reflecting on that hum human aspect of his uh, legacy as well as his cases. Wonderful. Thank you, Rachel. Uh, Dan. I'd like to camp on everything that uh, Rachel said. Every, you know, the thing that's most remarkable about him is how many different things he could do and how many different things he was completely successful uh, at. You know, unlike most of us who toil in one little corner of the legal field, uh, Stephen Breyer uh, worked everywhere with great success. You know, he was in government, legislature, he was in, uh, worked for the Senate, uh, he worked for DOJ at various times in the Sentencing Commission, he was a judge and then a justice, you know, he's been everywhere. And one of the things that most animated him, as Rachel uh, indicated, is his uh, all-consuming interest and enthusiasm for learning new things, having new experiences, and bringing other people uh, along with him. Uh, many of the ways that I've grown, uh, both professionally and personally, have been due to experiences, challenges uh, that Justice Breyer uh, laid out. Uh, for me personally and for you know, people more generally uh, working in the field. I think one of his most intellectually animating concerns is very important for him and it's continuous between his work as a judge and a justice and also uh, his work as a writer and a teacher is his central concern with government, uh, both in how it works, uh, as Rachel mentioned, his uh, deep work in administrative law. And he was a real administrative law nerd. Uh, but that was because he saw how much it mattered, why it mattered, and how it made a difference to everyone's uh, lives. Uh, he was also very interested in democracy writ large. He's written books, and you can see that in a lot of his election law opinions. Unfortunately, he found himself in dissent in uh, most of them. Uh, but I think that those dissents will have a lot of durability, and will, there will be people after he leaves the court, like Justice Kagan, who will be taking the baton and running even further with it. Great, thank you, Dan. Uh, Vince. Yeah, picking up on the public servant uh, theme uh, and the, the concern for government, where, where does it come from? Um, I think part of it comes from his family background. So it's, I think it's worth mentioning, you know, Justice Breyer grew up here in San Francisco. By the way, thank you for having me. It's nice to be back at UVA, sort of. And uh, hopefully I'll be back for real uh, next year to, to teach another class. Uh, but anyway, uh, Justice Breyer, he grew up here in San Francisco. His father was a member of the San Francisco Board of Supervisors. His, excuse me, his grandfather, his father, was um, general counsel for the San Francisco Unified School District, worked there for, for many, many years. And in fact, the, the boardroom at the school district is called the Irving G. Breyer uh, boardroom. Um, his mother was active in League of Women Voters. His aunt Shirley was a union activist. And so, and his brother of course was a prosecutor and is now a federal judge. And, and so I think from a young age, he, he came from a public facing family and was thinking about these issues. And I think it's really animated his jurisprudence. Um, I, I think that's largely where his concern comes from for 
making sure that the law works for ordinary people and making sure that the law works for the public officials who are trying in good faith to solve society's problems. Um, briefly, you know, you, you all talked about the influence that Justice Breyer has had on you. Obviously, I'm a district judge, and so I feel his influence every day in the work that I do. Um, one, of, one thing, of course, is you know, being practical about the law, using common sense, and making sure that the law is actually working for people and helping them solve their problems instead of getting in the way. Um, another is uh, transparency. Um, you hear a lot about his goofy hypotheticals from the bench, but what you hear less about is that he really made an effort to write his opinions clearly and make them understandable, not just for the sophisticated lawyer who knew the ins and outs of the case, but somebody who might be new to the case and trying to familiar them, familiarize themselves uh, with it. Um, and then finally, I won't talk at length about this right now. I'm sure we'll have a chance to discuss it more later, but his commitment to diversity, his longstanding commitment to diversity, not just in his jurisprudence, but in his hiring practices. Um, and like I said, I'll leave it there for now, and hopefully we can chat more about that a little bit later. Great. I fully expect us to come back to that later. Uh, and so I hope we will. Um, I will say uh, welcome to everyone, Vince, uh, especially uh, to you coming from uh, the outside and especially wearing your UVA t-shirt that uh, that gives us all a lot of pleasure here. So well, you, get, you gave me this t-shirt. <laughs> Even the more so. And if, if for those of you who weren't listening really closely uh, to Micah Schwartzman's introductions, uh, Vince and I were co-clerks. We were not only co-clerks, we shared an office together. Um, we spent many, many, many more hours uh, with each other that year than with uh, our spouses or, or anyone else. Um, so, uh, so And we were sitting there together during 9-11. We were sitting there together during 9-11. Uh, we were, uh, and that was that was a, a terrible day. Um, and we were there. Um, I was going to say something else about that, Vince, though, that was more <laughs> uplifting. Um, Sorry about that. <laughs> that's okay. Uh, anyway, oh, there's a there's a photo of our turn that seems to be like in Getty photos and gets pulled out all the time. Um, a black and white photo of the justice talking to some clerks, and Vince is in the foreground, and I'm in the background, and a, a third of our co-clerks, Mira Horowitz, is back there too. Um, Mike Leiter, the only one not in the photo, um, but we remember you always, Mike. And that, Risa, was the only time you were in the background and I was in the foreground. <laughs> I don't think that's true, Vince. Um, so I would just add, uh, you know, I think one of the things that's remarkable about the justice is we all have a very similar vision of him, and that's because he is who he is. And, uh, and so that's not a surprise. But I would just add, um, you know, I think he's full of, of paradoxes and contradictions. So, you know, as Vince was saying about the hypotheticals, he's incredibly pragmatic and fact oriented and, pra and practical, but he's also incredibly academic uh, and theoretical and, you know, kind of the, the absent-minded professor with the hypotheticals. Um, he's incredibly erudite and learned. He taught himself how to read French. Uh, he taught himself French by reading Proust. Um, uh, and at the same time, you know, he's incredibly human. Uh, and he, you know, rode his bike to the court for many years. Um, uh, though I think Rachel was nodding. Those are Rachel's years, I think. Is that right, Rachel? And the marshals hated it. <laughs> they really didn't like that at all. Um, I actually was going to echo something else you said, which is you said he is who he is. 
the people have many, many times said, well, what is Justice Breyer really like? And I say, oh, no, no, no. When you see him on television, that is who he is. That's what he's always like. I, I think that's actually more so about him than almost anyone I've ever known. He is always himself in a totally thorough way. I could not agree more. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, like, yeah, I agree. Okay, we can share more on that uh, on that later. So, okay, so let's be let's be a little more academic. Take a, a view of the the judging for a little bit, and then we'll come back to the um, the personal uh, anecdotes at the end. So, um, so you know, twenty seven years on the bench, and I would say another kind of paradox. He was a frequent dissenter during all of that time, and yet he is an irrepressible optimist um, uh, and continues to be so. Um, that's a lot of cases, that's a lot of time. I'm curious what each of you sees as kind of the justice's most important or signature or interesting opinions or maybe a favorite or a lesser known opinion from your term, um, any kind of opinion uh, that you wanna share with everybody. So Vince, why don't we start with you? Sure, well, we've been hearing a lot about the dissents, but um, as, a, as a district judge who sentences people regularly, I thought I would talk about one of his majority opinions, um, and that is uh, his opinion in the United States versus Booker uh, involving the sentencing guidelines. And just to go back, um, I'll, I'll try to do this briefly, but there was a time when federal judges had virtually limitless discretion to sentence people. Um, there might be a statutory maximum, there might be a mandatory minimum sentence, but that was it. And and you know, you had, uh, this was before my time, but you had discretion to sentence people within that. And so, the, you know, the, the sentence you got really often depended on the judge you got, and it could vary wildly. And people ultimately realized in the 1980s, I think that that was not a good idea, not a good thing. And so the Sentencing Commission was created uh, by Congress and Justice Breyer, then Judge Breyer, was appointed to the Sentencing Commission. And what the the commission did is created guidelines for federal judges that were guidelines that were binding on federal judges um, and requiring them to find certain facts. And if they found those facts, uh, the defendant needed to be sentenced within a particular range prescribed by the guidelines. So fast forward um, to, uh, and what that did is it uh, eliminated sentencing disparity. It had some of its own problems though. So fast forward to when Justice Breyer was on the Supreme Court, there was a constitutional challenge to the sentencing guidelines. And the, the challenge was basically, you know, we can't have judges finding facts that result in an increase in the defendant's sentence. The jury has to find those facts. It's a Sixth Amendment violation of the judge find those facts. And so a different majority of the court in United States versus Booker struck down the, the mandatory aspect of the guidelines, said that you know the, uh, a defendant's sentence can't be increased based on the factual findings of a judge um, so long as um, the, uh, the, the increased sentence is mandatory. Well, these are, this was Justice Breyer's baby, right? So he pulls together a different majority of the court um, and the question is, well, is there anything left of these guidelines? And Justice Breyer's majority opinion um, said, okay, well, the, the, the provision of the guidelines that, that um, requires judges to increase a sentence based on factual findings not made by the jury is unconstitutional, but the way to um, 
sever that provision and make it most consistent or least inconsistent with Congress's intent is to say that the remaining, uh, the remainder of the guidelines are advisory and judges are required to consider the guidelines as a starting point when they are deciding how to sentence a criminal defendant. They can deviate from that. They're not required to increase somebody's sentence based on a, a particular factual finding contemplated by the guideline, but they are advisory. And so he sort of was involved in the creation of the guidelines and then wrote the opinion that saved the guidelines from extinction really and has left us, I think, with the best of all possible worlds because the judges have discretion um, to consider particular facts to go up or down, but they're not bound by it. Um, yet at the same time, because we have to consider the guidelines, our sentences are to a certain degree data-driven and take into account what other people are getting sentenced to by other judges around the country. So I think that's been a very important, both his time on the commission and his Booker opinion has been a very important contribution. Am I right, Vince, that um, that that the majority and the dissent or the concurrences in the in in Booker and and those cases? I remember from our term Apprendi, there was Almodores Torres, all these cases, right? Starting back, Rachel, when you were there, um, uh, that that was a different five four grouping than the normal one. Rachel, do you want to talk about that, or I can go back to Vince? Okay, go ahead, Vince. I'm happy to say something briefly about it, which is yes, they were they were different majorities, and Justice Ginsburg was in the majority in both cases. Um, in uh, the opinion striking down the mandatory aspect of the guidelines, and Justice Breyer's opinion preserving the remainder of the guidelines as advisory. And and you know I wasn't there, but I can picture. We all know Justice Breyer, right? And he, you, you can imagine that he thought of 30 different ways to present this to Justice Ginsburg to explain to her why it was important to, you know, sever the, the mandatory provision in that way. And I don't know what, I have no inside knowledge about what happened, but I can assure you that he worked really hard uh, talking to Justice Ginsburg about that. I was actually a prosecutor when Booker came down, though I had been there when Almendarez Torres, one of the precursors to Booker, was decided. But as a prosecutor, you know, Booker threatened to upend the entire federal prosecution system. I mean, the criminal justice system was going to be in total disarray. And, and Justice Breyer's opinion um, maybe uh, certainly did not preserve the status quo. Uh, I think Vince is right about that, but it definitely allowed the system to continue with some principles in place. Um, uh, and maybe you could have uh, criticisms about the way um, federal sentencing happens. Um, surely uh, many people do, um, but I think he, he left uh, something intact that was both meaningful and, and true to the principles that it was intended to um, uh, preserve. Do either of you or Dan have a view of, you know, is that actually the right place to be, right? So we went from a world where there was so much discretion and it was so inflected with both discrimination and arbitrariness to a much more rigid world of the sentencing guidelines. I mean, is am I being Pollyanna to say maybe the sentencing guidelines as advisory is actually a good medium place between too much discretion and too little or thoughts? Well, I, I will say that, uh, you know, I think if you talk to the vast majority of federal judges, they would say that this is the best system um, because it, with the, you know, the first system, total discretion, boundless discretion, 
I think a lot of judges probably felt a, a little bit lost or should have felt a little bit lost if they didn't. And um, I think that with the mandatory guideline system, judges correctly felt um, shackled um, and unable to you know, go down or up as the facts may have called for it. And like I said, this system, you know, it is grounded in something. It's grounded in sort of a system of rules. They're advisory rules, but they put us at a starting point. And then, but it's just a starting point and we're allowed to consider particular factors and go up or down based on, you know, particular defendant's situation. So I think, and I think the majority of judges think it's the best of both worlds. How about prosecutors, Rachel? Well, I think prosecutors definitely prefer a guideline system to a non-guideline system in part because it gives them uh, some predictability and outcomes, which helps with negotiations. The many, I think sometimes the criticisms of the Sentencing Commission's work and in particularly the guidelines as a structure uh, were not about the process or sometimes have been about a process, but were about the anchoring effect it had at a very high level. So that the sentences were simply too harsh. And I think, you know, one of the lessons Justice Breyer, among others, learned um, from the, the effort to develop the guidelines was that process wasn't everything, that the, that that when we filled in the, the numbers, um, it ended up having a big impact on human lives. And so um, it's hard to talk about, is this the best system without unpacking those numbers? Um, but I do think that Vince's points about the, the allowing judges meaningful discretion have been very important um, in um, it actually uncovering some of the problems with the numbers themselves, because it allows judges to point out some of the problems with the system. Great. I have I have no idea whether it's the best system or not, but I think it reveals something very interesting about Breyer that we haven't talked about yet, which is that it shows his concern for the court as an institution and the way he often tried to triangulate between the court and other players. I know people think of him as an academic, that he wasn't political, but he was chief counsel of the Senate Judiciary Committee under uh, Senator Kennedy uh, for a while. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Vince and Rachel, but I seem to remember that the original political constituency for the mandatory sentencing guidelines were a lot of people in Congress and elsewhere, basically outside the judiciary, who thought, looked at the kind of discrepancies in sentences and were horrified by it. And what, one of the things you can see Breyer doing is trying to bridge that divide, reaching out in the compromise he made, getting Ginsburg, I guess, on board to end up with a system that, would, that the judiciary could work with reasonably well, at least, but also would make the outside constituencies feel not very, not badly done by. Yeah, I think we'll and, and I, the the institutionalist and and the kind of consensus building. I think we'll definitely come back to you uh, in in a minute as well. And I think you're right to point it out um, here. Um, so Dan, uh, how about uh, how about you? What case or cases would you uh, highlight from his time on the bench? Well, I, I I would highlight his election law cases, but there's one in particular which is a very big case, uh, but it's not one where his opinion in the case has ever really been thought to be very important. But I think it really reveals a lot about him, and in a sense, it could have been a Booker 
but it wasn't. Uh, and that case is Bush versus Gore. And people remember the election uh, between Bush and Gore. And it came back to the Supreme Court second time and the Supreme Court famously halted the counting of the ballots in Florida and basically said everyone had to go uh, home. Uh, there's a per curiam opinion uh, representing the views of five justices, which everyone thinks was uh, written mostly by Justice Kennedy. And Breyer wrote a dissent and the first part of his dissent was joined by only one justice, which was odd because usually the justices all joined in the case, joined each other's dissents to sort of the liberals one to sort of, you know, put up a united front as the conservatives did. Uh, but uh, Justice Breyer only got one other justice in the first part of his dissent, and he got all the, he got three others uh, on the second. And what he did, I think, was he tried to make an attempt to get, if I'm reading it right, who knows, because the files won't be available for some time. But it looked like what he did is he he took a position which I can't believe he thought really defensible himself, but which he tried to use to uh, create some distance between Justices Kennedy and O'Connor and the other three conservatives. Uh, and that was to say that, yeah, there might well have been a violation. Probably the original draft of the opinion said that there was a violation of liability. This violated the Equal Protection Clause. But, and then the second part of the opinion, which all the liberals joined, he said, but the remedy here is completely wrong. You should continue to count uh, the ballots. You shouldn't just stop uh, counting. And I think it was an attempt to try to offer something to the people on the other side to try to pry a few of them, enough to get a majority over to his side, which he generally thought was what the Constitution required and what would be good for the country. And the fact that it was a dissent indicates that it failed. Uh, maybe Justice Kennedy snookered him uh, at uh, some point. You know, He thought that there might have been some chance of getting Justice Kennedy over, and it just never happened. I wouldn't be surprised, as you know, Vince describes, that there weren't uh, a lot of discussions between Justice Kennedy and uh, uh, Justice Breyer during the pendency uh, of this case. But I think you know, his attempt to do that, to actually swallow something that he probably didn't believe on liability, to end up somewhere that he thought would be right on remedy, uh, shows a lot about him. And again, it shows him institutionally trying to reach out to other, place, uh, to other players to put together a coalition that, to his mind, would do the right thing legally. I think that was partly possible because he was humble. That is to say, he believed he might well be wrong. And so he was more willing to reach compromise as a result of that. I think, I, I think yeah. that's right. I was gonna say, I think that's right too. And you know, when he, he was here a few years ago and before COVID and spoke to our students and one of the students asked him about collegiality and consensus building and how do you have you know, conversations across difference and he, his answer was you look in the mirror uh, and you start with yourself. And, you know, he said, of course, I think I'm right. Everyone thinks they're right, but, but you have to listen and you have to be open to the fact that you might not be right because we all think we're right and maybe we're not all right. Um, and he said, he said, and you can't pretend. People know if you're pretending. If you're not really listening and you're not really considering what they say, you're never going to get anywhere. Um, but he also said, and, you know, I think this goes to how often he dissented, even in Bush v. Gore, you know, you know, it's not that he had no 
principles. It's not that he didn't have a sense of, you know, he, he was looking for common ground. He was open to common ground. He wanted common ground, but he also very much had a sense of when that wasn't possible and, and when your principles, you know, prevent you from getting there that I, I think is really important. Yeah. And I was, I was going to say, I, uh, Dan, I think the, the, that case is an example of him trying to find common ground in a way that would work for our democracy, right? And that was, was consistent with his vision of the relationship between the court and our democracy. But there were a lot of times, Risa, as you're alluding to, where, you know, he would not be a compromiser, not be a quote unquote pragmatist um, in, that, in that sense of the word, um, because uh, the court was doing something that he believed was an anathema to um, you know, our democracy and, and, uh, and, uh, uh, and inconsistent with the need uh, for the law to get out of the way of public officials who are trying to do their job in good faith. Rachel, uh, what cases do you want to talk about? Well, the one thing I was going to say, you said he really genuinely believed in listening. And there was also a flip side of that, which he genuinely believed that others would listen to. So he mm -hmm. treated everyone as if they would be receptive to persuasive arguments and dialogue. And I remember my term, Justice Thomas would tease him about that. Like, oh, you're so naive to think I'm actually going to change my mind in this dialogue that you want to have. But Justice Breyer never lost that optimism about anyone. So we recall times, Rachel, very similar, where you know somebody would come up with an idea about a case, and Justice Breyer would say, "Oh, that's good. That's really good. I'm going to go talk to Nino," and he would he would go down the hall to to share this great idea with Justice Scalia, thinking it's going to convince him, right? And um, uh, so you know, in thinking about his legacy, I think much of the conversation in the public eye is going to be on the significant opinions in divided cases and for obvious reasons. But I think as a clerk and, and subsequently as a lawyer, the, the, some of the things that mattered to me or some of the things that influenced me were different. So I'm going to speak on behalf of one of his most probably most obscure decisions. Um, you know, I didn't clerk in a blockbuster term. I, I, there were some cases, um, but I was still trying to figure out what I wanted to do. I knew I wanted to do public interest law and his public interest facing, his public facing career and his commitment has been suggested to making the law work for individuals mattered to me. And some of my most compelling moments during the term are watching him work through the big and small criminal law and criminal procedure cases. Sometimes he never wrote opinions in, one, in them, but one of the ones that actually shaped my thinking about him and also I think about my career choices was a case called Gray versus Maryland. And in Gray, there's a man named Bell who confessed, confessed to participating in a deadly beating and he implicated Gray, who was his co-defendant. And they were tried jointly and a judge permitted a redacted version of Bell's confession to be introduced at trial um, with Gray's name substituted for the word deleted. So every time Bell uh, talked about Gray in the confession that the agent would read the word deleted in the testimony. And that in the mind of the lower courts satisfied what was known as the Bruton rule, which prohibited the use of a confession by one defendant 
as evident against a co-defendant in the same trial because doing so effectively allowed the confessing defendant to serve as a prosecution witness against the co-defendant without allowing him to be cross-examined as required by the Sixth Amendment. Now, the, the Bruton case decided that, and then in a subsequent case, the Supreme Court had allowed a redacted confession, which really prevented you from um, knowing that the co-defendant even existed. It wasn't, it, it, it wasn't revealing. Um, and the lower courts used that subsequent case to engage in a practice of admitting confessions that at best fulfilled the letter of the Bruton rule, but were far from protecting Sixth Amendment rights because they allowed these redactions that didn't fool anyone in which everyone knew that one defendant was pointing the finger at the other defendant. And we just had to substitute the word defeated, de deleted for his name. And the reason why courts were doing this is because uh, well, it was partly to allow joint trials, which were judicially efficient, and the admission of the confessions, which the prosecutors wanted to continue, okay? And Justice Breyer's opinion didn't raise any ire or generate any dissent. It's a unanimous opinion for the term. It's lawyerly, it's brief, and it's clean. And yet, he manages to capture the real consequences of what happens at trial and the way that legal rules can be used to you know, uh, basically um, hide what's really going on and deny people their rights within the letter of the law. So he recognized, he was explicit, the jurors wouldn't have the slightest doubt about what was being deleted and that, and, and that therefore this couldn't be used to bypass the Sixth Amendment principle. And he effectively, in doing so, ended what was a self-dealing lower court practice um, that allowed judges and prosecutors, I think, to meaningfully evade the prior decisions. So why did this matter to me? Well, in law school, I had studied only big cases. Um, and Gray basically helped me firm up my interest in the small law, in the ways that criminal cases, the kinds that Vince decides every day, matter to individual lives. And the role of the law, including in the Supreme Court, of shaping those trials and those decisions. And it was just a couple of weeks after that the court decided that case that I accepted a position as a prosecutor at DOJ in the Civil Rights Division and, and have been interested in small law in some way ever since. That was wonderful. I, I did not know that story. Uh, yeah, I've known you all these years, but I didn't know that that was uh, influential for you. And, and I think that does so capture something, right? He understood how it worked and he understood the human consequences. And uh, that, that's, that was a great story. Um, so I, I'll add one, uh, I'll add one, which is uh, his dissent in Parents Involved uh, versus Seattle Schools. So that's the case where um, uh, there were local school districts in both uh, Seattle and Louisville who were using some uh, race-based decision-making in order to maintain integrated school districts. So uh, it, it, school districts were resegregating uh, and these were school districts that were trying to retain uh, integrated schools and the majority of the court uh, uh, found constitutional violations in those efforts and said, uh, you know, that, that that was discrimination on the basis of race in violation of the Equal Protection Clause. 
Um, and Justice Breyer wrote uh, an unusually long and an unusually kind of rhetorical, um, but still very you know evidence-based and precedent-based, but but much more uh, uh, rhetorical than most of his opinions would be, and very impassioned. Um, and he really saw this as a defense of Brown in many ways. That what was really up for grabs here was. Um, how to think what about what equality is in the United States, and how do you get there? Uh, and uh, and 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 his view, you know, his clear frustration with the majority. Um, you know, Justice Roberts, writing for the majority, says, you know, the way to stop discriminating on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. And I think Breyer really articulates um, there, you know, that that's not how he thinks about equality. And sometimes you might have to think about race in order to get to the kind of equality that. That that is a prerequisite for a democracy and uh, and is a prerequisite for the kind of pluralist society that he he thinks we should we should aspire to. Um, and I, I do think that uh, um, that the 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 case lays out in a very crisp way, you know, two fundamentally different visions about equality in the United States. And I think for for Justice Breyer, part of what was so important to him about this case is his own views about diversity, which I think we'll come back to again, has been suggested before, um, and his own views about uh, pluralism and equality. You know, he he grows up on the Warren Court. He clerks for Justice Goldberg um, on the Warren Court. He's you know works for Ted Kennedy. Uh, you know, I think he believes deeply in the kind of New Deal Warren Court settlement of the the mid to late twentieth century that. You know, you have a, a large regulatory government that um, that that regulates the economy that is involved, but you also have you know quite jealous regard for minority rights uh, uh, for the court, and um, and I think he saw that. Uh, at stake here, I think also, as been said earlier, um, you know, his 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 father worked for a school board, uh, and uh, and I think he has real faith in uh, in education and in you know most government officials most of the time, and you know he thinks you you have to give communities the tools that they need in order to govern, and that this was really taking from communities uh, you know a significant part of their toolbox in order to create the pluralist society that. Uh, that that the United States aspires to be, um, so so that's one I I would mention um, uh, that you know is obviously related to my own work and then and that I think was really close to his heart. Um, unless people want to talk more about specific cases, I'm happy to to talk more about jurisprudence or his role at the court more broadly. And I want to remind people um, if you have questions, you can put them uh, into the Q and A, and uh, and I can ask them of our panelists. Um, so can any I, other, uh, go ahead. Can I ask one question uh, of you, Risa, regarding sure. the Seattle uh, uh, schools case? Uh, you know, I I started thinking about that case again recently um, with the George Floyd uh, protests. Um, and, you know, uh, Justice Breyer's point was, you know, trying to eliminate racial isolation is different from trying to segregate people on the basis of race. And we have to let, this is a real problem, right? We have 330 million people in this country from all different races, and we're trying to figure out a way for them to be able to interact and you know, racial isolation is um, is an obstacle to that. And these school officials are trying to solve that. And we have to get out of their way and let them do it. Um, uh, you know, and, I, and you know, with the George Floyd stuff, I was thinking, you know, how can we expect a police officer to 
relate properly with different members of the community if they grow up in a racially isolated um, neighborhood and in a racially isolated school where they never interact with people growing up of different races. I mean, is there any chance that, you know, sort of recent developments on the issue of race and our sort of relative awakening on some of the problems with respect to race that we have in this country will um, revive the point of view that he was expressing 13 years ago in that dissent? Uh, I mean, I think the question is revive among who? Uh, so, you know, I think there are a lot of people who would agree with him. And I, I think you're right that a lot of the themes that have come out of the uh, protests from the summer of 2020, spring and summer of 2020 and beyond are, are very much in keeping with the themes of his uh, of his dissent, right? The question about, you know, it's basically a, 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 a question about anti-discrimination versus anti-subordination, right? And the word equity, which I think has become far more prominent lately, um, is really a, a way of, of choosing one of those two, right? Of choosing the anti-subordination way of thinking about what equality is. Um, and that's the, you know, in, in earlier affirmative action cases, there have been, you know, debates among the justices and the majority and the sense about, well, do we know the difference between a, a welcome mat and a no trespassing sign, right? That's, uh, I, I'm, I'm going to forget who said that. I want to say Brennan, but I don't know if anyone remembers who that was. Um, but the, the um, you know, the question of whether all distinctions on the basis of race are equally situated vis-a-vis -vis the constitution or vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, uh, uh, what you think society should be doing on a, on a moral level or whether um, whether there are, because there is inequality in the world, you have to think differently about how to, uh, how to what you allow government to do in order to respond to that inequality. And I think, I think you're right, Vince. I think the justice thinks about how do people get along? How do they learn to get along? Uh, uh, you know, that, that you have to know people and you have to, you have to have actual integration, right? I think he's an old school liberal in that way, right? In order for, uh, for you to have expectations that people are going to treat each other like human beings. And, um, and I think you see that in, in a lot of his religion cases too. And, you know, the, the voucher case from our term, I don't know if you want to talk about that, right? He's very, he's very aware of, you know, what's divisive and what's not divisive and, and how do you encourage true pluralism and, and tolerance across different groups of people? Yeah, I mean, just briefly to mention the, the, the voucher case since you brought it up, I think that was another example of him not being willing to compromise, right? And again, you know, sort of focused on the fact that we have so many different people throughout this country of so many different religions and how are we going to uh, you know, make sure that they get along and that our country isn't torn apart by the religious strife that you saw in Europe, you know, throughout this century, 17th, 18th century, whatnot. And, um, it, it, you know, he sort of drew the line at, you know, government funding of religious education. And his primary concern was that, you know, if you, if government gets in the business of funding religious education, you're going to start having people fight over that money and you're going to start having some groups feeling that they're, they're being disfavored vis-a-vis -vis other groups and um, it will create problems. Now, I, I happen to disagree with him on that case. Um, and I would probably tell him that, you know, those voucher programs were upheld and we haven't seen the, the kind of strife that he was worried about, but I think he would respond, well, 
you know, sort of camel's nose under the tent, and we need to take the 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 big picture view here. And sort of the more that government becomes entangled with religion and religious funding and religious education, you know, the greater risk we are we are at. Dan, did you wonder, say to add? Yeah, I uh, I wonder whether his openness to complexity and sensitivity to interest on all sides may have come with a cost uh, though. I mean, it's certainly some, you know, something I cheer on and I think he captures that better than anyone else uh, on the court. But when you compare him to someone like Justice Scalia, you wonder whether in a sense that has gotten in the way of some of his legacy and has made him in some ways less effective than he might've otherwise been. When you read a Scalia opinion, and my God, you know, your heart starts pumping, whether you agree with it or not. Uh, and there's a kind of excitement there and there's a, often a kind of uh, sharpness to it. This is the rule, you know, this is the position you take. Whereas you read a Breyer opinion, often you come away with the feeling, you know, that's, he, he really understands what's going on, but my God, it is so complicated that it's going to be hard to carry do much with that you know have much of a legacy with that kind of approach i just wonder if many of his virtues if you will also have come with a kind of cost to his reputation you know he's never going to uh i think make people see, uh, seem as exciting to people as someone like justice Scalia, who in some ways had a much more simple view not only of law but of the world that's right Go ahead, I, think, I think that's really right. I think many of his strengths um, are also the, the uh, can be viewed as weaknesses and both his humility and his attention to um, detail and reason and that his, he tended away from the kind of sweeping rules that would have um, get, given him a, a um, maybe a more lasting impact as a voice. So that's a good segue to a question about his jurisprudence, his role on the court, um, uh, uh, his, his, his uh, thoughts about judicial role. Um, uh, happy, since Dan and Rachel have started to weigh in, Vince, why don't we go to you and then we can come back around. Yeah, I mean, I think that he was, uh, you know, in terms of judicial role, I mean, you saw from his speech uh, at the White House how, uh, you know, deeply concerned he is about the relationship between, you know, the court and our democracy as a whole and society as a whole. Um, I think, you know, I'm not sure how, if people talk about this enough, but he was really somebody who thought that the, the court should stay in its own lane, right? I mean, he... You know, I remember there was a study from, you know, the 90s and 2000s where, um, you know, he voted to strike down, strike down a congressional enactment, enactment um, uh, less frequently than any of the other justices on the court. Um, and so, uh, you know, he cared a lot about uh, the court's legitimacy and part of preserving the court's legitimacy was staying in its own lane. Um, uh, and, you know, part of it was being pragmatic and making sure that the law was working for people and not sort of putting obstacles in their way. Um, and so I think that's one thing to, to um, emphasize about his view of the role of the court. 
You know, I, I work in an area in criminal procedure where sometimes he has uh, been criticized by liberals for not being liberal or consistent enough um, because he sometimes voted um, in criminal procedure cases for the government and divided opinions that expanded access to criminal evidence. Um, but I actually think that that, um, that his, his criminal procedure decisions illustrates some of his strength in it, something you mentioned, Risa, earlier, which is his faith in the, in the power of reasoned government and good intentions of government officials to be able, to, for the law to be able to do justice, that possibility um, informed those decisions, and something Vince just mentioned, which is humility about the role of the judge and the role of the court, um, it, yeah, which is deeply connected to his belief in the power of democratic institutions um, and the idea that the rule of law uh, can do is important. So he, he wasn't someone who was willing to uphold constitutional commitments um, in the face of uh, decisions, you know, lower court decisions that um, uh, vitiated them. But but with this commitment to humility, to democratic institutions, to reason, to precedent, that I think you know, that to me, one of his biggest legacies is his optimism about the power of justice and the power of government um, in a society that maybe, you know, we haven't lived up to his, I hope we can justify it. I hope we can live up to it. Yeah. Dan? I, I think one of his greatest contributions uh, has been as a kind of a counterweight on the court to the majority who I think embody a kind of exclusive textualism. So, you know, many people talk about Justice Breyer's being very pragmatic with the kind of caveats that Vince has uh, suggested, but he really did look at details with sense of how rules would really work on the ground was often sort of pulling various, perhaps sometimes incommensurables together. Uh, but above all, what he was really concerned with, I think, uh, especially in cases of statutory interpretation, but also some constitutional interpretation, was purposism. And he, I think, was horrified uh, genuinely that the court, or many on the court, uh, had lost sight of it almost completely, and just by following the words of the text. Now, I think, you know, certainly agrees that the words of the text will get you uh, some of the way there, maybe sometimes all the way there. But I think it seemed completely perverse to him that you would never try to think in interpreting saying what a statute meant, what Congress or the actor was trying to do, what was the purpose of the legislation. Now, of course, that it opened him up to criticism from people like Justice Scalia, who would say, well, the purpose, it's your purpose, it's not the purpose of the Congress, how can you ever sort of know that? And it's like a dog chasing its own tail, some of those uh, debates are uh, interminable. Uh, but I think it really is a perspective that's important to have. And I think that even the people who uh, expressly disagreed with him actually applied their exclusive textualism, as you will, off sometimes in a way which recognized the power of his arguments. Uh, but he was, you know, a, a kind of lonely voice out there uh, for a while, and things like just you know, statutory interpretation on the level of theory, as opposed to what the results were on the ground. Oh, that reminded me, Dan, of a, a conversation I had with Justice Breyer just a few weeks ago, actually, when he was in town, and we were talking about how to decide cases, and 
and he said, you, you, in reference to the, the majority, this sort of Scalia majority, um, he said, you know, they view the law as chemistry. Um, and I, you know, I, I really disagree with that. And he, you know, invoked this image of somebody in a chemistry lab, you know, sort of isolated, isolated, sealed off chemistry lab where people are, you know, experimenting with different words and moving different words around and see which, you know, what, what hits. And, and, you know, I think that he, he you know, he used that word because he, he felt that we cannot view ourselves as sitting in an isolated lab. We have to think about the consequences of how we put these words together for the people who are affected by our decisions. Yeah, I would add to all of that. I think, you know, the word pragmatic has come up a couple of times and that's a word often used for him. And I, I think of it as operating on three different registers. So there's the the pragmatism of kind of consensus building and Dan, what you said earlier about, you know, yes, he's an academic, but he's also a savvy guy, right? And uh, and and so there's a pragmatism there. Um, there's the pragmatism in individual cases. I think this is what Rachel was talking about, you know, the, the seeing how the system works, right? Pragmatically saying like, how is this operating and how do we make it operate better for these people in this case, in this institution, in this system? Um, and then I think there's the pragmatism of, of the, this kind of consequentialism for the system of governance as a whole, right? He's interested in the consequences in particular cases and then the consequences in, um, in, in the system and in what role the judges are playing vis-a-vis -vis the political branches. And so I, I don't know if you all think of the pragmatism as linked to the consequentialism, I, I certainly do. Um, but then I would go back to, to some things that Rachel said, which is that I always think, well, when you call the pragmatism, it, it sounds so kind of lowbrow, or you know, it, it sounds like it's um, it's it 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 denigrates other values that he also holds, and so I, I feel like pragmatic only gets you so far, and then you've got to talk about the optimism, Rachel, right? And you've got to talk about the humanism, which you also talked about, where like everybody knew they meant gray when they said delete, right? And this guy is not getting the trial that he is entitled to, and um, and I and I think when you put together the pragmatism with the optimism and the humanism, then you get a sense of kind of the whole picture of the world, you know, through, uh, through Breyer's eyes. Um, uh, and, you know, uh, Linda Greenhouse wrote a, a piece, I don't know if you all wrote about him, and she said sort of he was, he was the wrong man for this time, he was a man from another time. And you know, I don't know if I agree with that. But I do think, you know, his aspirations for our world, are really attractive ones, right? Like I, I, I want to aspire to be the world, as you said, Rachel, that you know that that he thinks we can be, and and that we and that we should be able to be. Okay. A anything more on the on the role in the court or the jurisprudence? I'm going to move on to the personal. I'll just say very briefly. He, you know, his his colleagues really liked him all across the spectrum. I and mean, when we were there, we said from from Justice Thomas to Justice Stevens and everywhere in between, they were very fond of him, respected him deeply. Um, yeah, but also knew that he was an honest broker, right? I mean, and that's part of why they were fond of him is, is he was such an honest broker. And so they didn't want to hear what they had to say. I mean, Justice Thomas might, you know, not uh, ultimately agree with him, but they wanted to hear what he had to say. And he, uh, I think that his presence did matter for the cases. 
Right. Sorry, what'd you say, Rachel? I said with affection. And now that's either when the justices disagreed with him when they didn't, you know, when they, they, they weren't persuaded by his deep insights or his reasons over rhetoric or or whatever. They they did it with affection. I think Vince is just yeah. right. But I think sometimes he did persuade them. I mean, I obviously we yeah. can share inside information, but there 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 were times where his, you know, his approach resulted in a change in the outcome of, of cases. So with affection, speaking about affection, uh, I think the affection that we had for him comes through as well. Uh, and, uh, and so I'm curious about um, any personal anecdotes that you uh, would like to share with the justice. Dan, I'll start with you. So this isn't something I witnessed myself, but it's a story that Justice Breyer tells about himself, which I think wonderfully illustrates, uh, Rachel, uh, Risa, something you said in your Slate piece, which you pointed to how, how he juggles intellectual humility and confidence at the same time. Uh, so we were sitting in uh, the clerks and Justice Breyer, uh, then Judge Breyer were sitting having lunch in chambers one day. And one of my co-clerks asked him, said, well, you know, what was it like making the move from Washington back to academia? And so he said, let me tell you, he says, this is wonderful. Let me tell you about it. My first day of work, I stepped into the Harvard Law School and I looked around this magnificent building and I said, Steve, you have really made it. This is everything you've really wanted to do. And then classes got out, people started moving around. And all of a sudden I saw coming down the staircase, Dean Erwin Griswold himself, who at that point had been Dean of Harvard Law School like 23 or something uh, years, very famous figure in just American law. And as he was coming down the, the steps, I was sort of looking at him and admiring him. And then he caught my eye. And he seemed to be looking at me and he seemed to be approaching me as he came down the stairs. And I thought to myself, my first day at work, the dean of Harvard Law School is going to come down and greet me. And he walked right over to me and he said, young man, I have a desk that needs to be moved. Do you think you and some friends could come upstairs and move it for me? <laughs> and, you know, so it shows, you know, he... He was obviously very confident. He was very proud of himself, but he tells a story on himself to make fun of himself and to ridicule, you know, some of those perhaps pretensions uh, that he had. And I think that captures something very important about him. That's a wonderful story. I will say it also captures such a difference in um, time of how the dean is perceived. I don't think anyone would be so excited <laughs> to have me walk toward them down the hall. <laughs> Hard to imagine, <laughs> um, but that is that is a a, a wonderful story, um, Rachel. Dan, that story also echoes. We used to remember when he was here a couple of years ago. We had dinner with him, and he was making fun of his questions at oral argument. He was telling the most ridiculous questions he had ever gotten trapped into asking by himself in oral argument in such a sweet and hysterical way. We were cracking up as he's saying and then suddenly I'm talking about an oyster and and I, I really enjoyed it enormously his sense of humor about himself um so you know I don't know that this is an anecdote exactly but uh, when I was clerking um I was a little distracted maybe I was 
less focused than my peers. It was the year of Monica Lewinsky's blue dress and Hillary Clinton's attorney-client privilege assertion. And uh, but my father uh, had advanced lung cancer, and I was I was sometimes maybe not as uh, 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 attentive as some of my peers. I think that would be fair. And Justice Breyer uh, could not have been more understanding. Um, and I, I, when my father was able to travel towards the end of the clerkship, um, he hosted my father in chambers for more than his usual tea. And the warmth and the generosity and the attention and the willingness to say nice things about me to my dad, who was a middle school um, teacher who put himself through law school at night um, in his 40s. And, you know, me going to law school was one of the happiest things that had happened to him in his life. And that day at the Supreme Court um, turned out to be one of the proudest days of his life. And he died just a few months later. So there weren't that many more. And I just remain forever grateful for um, uh, what he did. That's, it, it's a beautiful thing. Um, that's a, yeah. Vince? Yeah, um, a couple absent-minded professor stories and hopefully Risa, I'm not stealing yours, but um, uh, one story that has sort of been repeated over the years is from our year is, you know, there's one time when Justice Breyer um, wandered into the clerk's office and started talking about a case and you know, I just read this amicus brief and I think they have a real point and I think we need to look into this and uh, I'm also thinking about that and can you research it? And then the, the, the judicial assistant looked up and said, Justice, none of your clerks are here right now. Um, they're all outside uh, having lunch. And he says, oh, oh, okay, okay. And he goes out and joins us for lunch and, and, and talks to us about the case. And it's true that he, he had this, kind of absent-minded professor quality about him. And I remember Chuck Breyer, his younger brother, you know, before I went to clerk for Justice Breyer, Chuck said, um, you know, my brother is going to seem like he's not paying any attention to you. And he, he wants to end the conversation, but I, I assure you, he's, he is paying attention to you and he doesn't want to end the conversation. And an example of that, is Risa the, the Mike Leiter career advice story, right? Our co-clerk, Mike Leiter, who went on to become the director of the National Counterterrorism Center, um, the term ended and Mike wanted some sort of advice from Justice Breyer about how to sort of what the next step should be. So we got on the phone with Justice Breyer and the conversation was like Chuck's description of conversations with Justice Breyer, right? He seemed distracted. He kind of seemed like he was thinking about something else, wanted to get off the phone. And the conversation wasn't that helpful. And so, you know, Mike hangs up and he thinks, well, okay, I'm not clerking for him anymore. Maybe he, you know, is no longer interested in, in what I'm going to do. And, and then the next day, Justice Breyer calls back and says, Mike, I'm really sorry. I was distracted yesterday when we were talking. Can we please have the conversation over again? And that is him in a nutshell, although he sometimes is distracted. He really, really cares about the, the, the people in his life and he's paying more attention than you think he is. Yeah, 100%. Rachel, you were laughing about the, 
you know, he used to walk out of the room talking and then walk back into the room in the middle of the same conversation. You'd be like, I, I missed something. Um, <laughs> or when he, when I interviewed with him, it, 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 when he called me to offer me the job, he started in the middle of a sentence that was from the interview. Like we were, it was as if we were continuing the conversation. So I felt this constant sense of that we were in a, an extended conversation over time. He might miss something, you might miss something, but it would all be okay. That is wonderful. I, when uh, when he was here, I don't know if either of you noticed this, um, Rachel and Dan, when he was here a few years ago, um, and I was, I int introduced him and then I was sitting in a chair slightly back, you know, from the podium on the, uh, from uh, on the stage. Um, and he was in a conversation with me and he kept turning back, right, to refer to something I'd said in the introduction. That way, he was trying to talk to me and, you know, he wasn't talking into the microphone and he wasn't like, you know, but it was because we were in a conversation exactly as you say. And he was, um, he was trying to continue the conversation. So I wanted to pick up on, on two things. Now I'm forgetting one of them. So one, Rachel, you mentioned, um, you know, that, that he did have so many people for tea and that this, you know, the interaction that you had with your dad was, was different, but I, I would also add even the standard tea, which is what I got was amazing. Right. And, and he was so generous with his time and this beautiful tea set, and he would invite you in and um, and, and he, he, he met you where you were and he, he met everyone where they were, you know, and, um, I tweeted out this photo of, of him reading a book to my son and niece when they were about four or five. And he was reading the book because my son had climbed under his coffee table and, you know, and he was trying to lure him back out. And, um, and, uh, and I think many clerks have stories, not as, heartwarming and heartbreaking as yours, but of, you know, the justice really embracing the families and, uh, and, and being so generous in that way that, that I think we all really um, appreciate. Um, and then the other thing I was going to add was um, one of the things that the justice does at his, uh, uh, at his reunions is um, he, he goes through term by term and he, and he, reminds everyone and tells everyone about a particular thing that happened during that term and he names the clerks and he he exclaims over a particular case or incident and um and he he does this literally he goes term by term and he makes everyone feel a part of the story and everyone feel a part of his world as a justice and and the life of the chambers and it you know it brings you together with the other clerks so i have relationships friendships with people who you know i know only because they were other briar clerks and i met at the at the reunions and and heard these stories about them but it also just it it goes back to vince what you were saying right He's always paying attention, um, and he and he he wants you to know that, and he wants you to know that you're an important part of his life, um, and uh, and I I think that's just crucially important. I'm going to say one last thing, and then um, people can offer last uh, last comments for our last couple of minutes. So I, I, my last comment would be, um, Rachel, you said this before about like how could they not you know, like him? How could they not have affection for him? Um, the, the, the news media keeps replaying the clip of he and President Clinton walking into the Rose Garden when he was announced to be the nominee. And the smile on his face is just so genuine. I mean, it is just 
genuine. He's full of joy. He's not trying to hide it. He doesn't think it's inappropriate. He doesn't think it lacks dignity. He just is full of joy. And he had the same smile, you know, at the White House last week when he, you know, gave his his retirement speech. And after 27 years on the bench, I don't think it ever rubbed off, right, that he was in this place and that he was getting to do this role as a public servant, as you said, Rachel, um, and uh, and and to work for people. And um, that joy is just it's just it's infectious. And um, and it's something that I will always um, keep close about him. Who wants to go next? Last remarks. I think you know, several people have mentioned his optimism, uh, but the thing that's really great about it, Risa, as you've suggested, is it was contagious and infectious. Uh, you know, he he was not a backslapper. Uh, he is not someone who would roar with laughter, uh, you know, really loudly, to, or would uh, you know tell uh, the funniest jokes. Uh, but at the same time, he was someone who could communicate his enthusiasm for basically everything he was doing for life in general, and the hope that you know things could get better. And I think you know that's uh, that as a just as a kind of human quality, I think that's very undervalued. Yeah, I think that's a great place to end. I mean, his legacy in the law is considerable. Um, but his legacy as a human being is equally so, and I think we all shared in it. One one other part of his legacy that I think people don't talk about enough is diversity, which I mentioned at the beginning. Um, back to when Dan was clerking for him on the Court of Appeals, um, he always really cared about hiring um, a diverse group of people um, to work with him. Um, women, uh, racial minorities. I mean, every year there were, you know, it was a diverse group in his chambers, and um, uh, you know, he cared about that deeply and long before it became popular to focus on diversity in hiring. And so, obviously, it was great for us, right? And and for me personally, I never would have clerked on the court if he didn't care about diversity. Um, but uh, I think more importantly, um, he believed it was important for him to have different experiences and different viewpoints coming through chambers. And because he was focused on it so long ago, we had now have all these people who have come of age, who, um, who uh, are at sort of the highest echelons of the legal profession who clerked for him. We have the Dean of UVA Law School. We have Jenny Martinez, who's the Dean of the Stanford Law School. We have Neil Katyal, who uh, was the former Solicitor General. We have, Katanji Brown Jackson, perhaps you've heard of her. Um, and, uh, you know, that's a legacy that he will leave. He has sent a diverse group of people to participate in our democracy and to operate at the highest levels of our legal profession that will, uh, and that will outlast his time on the bench for sure. So um, I, I think that's a great place to end. And I will say we we did get a, a comment in the, in the Q&A about, um, you know, the importance of Different kinds of experience to judging, and uh, and I think he he has launched. I think that's true not only to judging but to lawyering and to leadership, and and I think he has uh, launched the careers of so many, uh, uh, you know, who are who are an incredibly diverse bunch. And I think it also leads, and I think the commentator uh, who shared this probably intended for it to do so, you know, to questions about the nomination and who's going to come next and what kind of people do you, do you put on the bench and how do you think about that question? Um, so let me just say, 
thank you to each of you. This was just a, a wonderful conversation and I appreciate you all being here and, uh, and thank you to our audience um, and, uh, and thank you to Justice Breyer for leaving uh, such a beautiful legacy. So have a good day, everyone. Welcome everyone. Thanks for joining us today. This is our first session of the second year of the Oxford Virginia Legal Dialogues. We are excited to be able to open with such a thought-provoking, if alarming, paper. Um, before we begin, I'd like to make the introduction. So I'm Ruth Mason. I'm the, I'm the Edwin S. Cohen Distinguished Professor of Law and Taxation at the University of Virginia. Um, and I'm an affiliated faculty member with the Virginia Center of Tax Law. My co-convener for this series is Silly Dagan, known to all of you. She's a professor at uh, the University of Oxford Law School, and uh, she's one of the directors in the MSc in Taxation at Oxford. So by now, everybody knows our format. Uh, Silly and I pick a tax professor that we admire, who then picks a non-tax professor that they admire. Um, and then we invite this author to our Zoom and we have a discussion. Um, so let me introduce first our commentator for today. I don't think this person really needs an introduction to this group, but Wolfgang Schoen is the faculty director of the Max Planck Institute in Munich. Munich. It's for the Max Planck Institute for Tax Law and Public Finance. He's been a vice president of that organization, a member of the Permanent Scientific Committee of IFA and the uh, European Association of Tax Law Professors. He's chaired the OECD panel at IFA uh, during a period where I think we can all agree has been pretty exciting. Um, Wolfgang has been a visiting professor at NYU, uh, among other places, and he has written on book tax conformity. I mentioned this for the Americans at this particular moment. Um, but, uh, you know, given his position at the Max Planck Institute, he's no stranger to interdisciplinary studies. So I think he's a perfect person for us to have invited here. And he's, you know, familiar with what Silly and I are trying to do with uh, this seminar. It's old hat for him. Um, Wolfgang's also written about tax and democracy. That was the subject of his Max Weber lecture. And his interest in this subject is probably what uh, led him to choose today's featured author, uh, Rick Pildes. Uh, Rick is the Sudler Family Professor of Constitutional Law at NYU School of Law. He's a leading constitutional law scholar and a specialist in issues concerning democracy. He clerked for Justice Thurgood Marshall and is a member of the American Law Institute. And he's currently serving on the commission on the Supreme Court of the United States, having been appointed to that position by President Biden. Uh, in dozens of articles and in his acclaimed casebook, The Law of Democracy, Rick has helped create an entirely new field of study in law schools. We're lucky to have read part of this work in our, for our discussion today, uh, Political Fragmentation in Democracies Today. Before we move on to the discussion, I also want to mention that um, Rick works outside the academy. Uh, so he successfully argued voting, writing, voting rights cases and election law cases before the U.S. Supreme Court and uh, courts of appeals. He's also a well-known public commentator. He writes for the New York Times, uh, the Washington Post, and he was part of the Emmy-nominated NBC 
breaking news team coverage for the 2000 Bush v. Gore contest. So welcome Wolfgang and Rick. Uh, before we jump into the paper, I just wanna say a word about the format. So uh, Wolfgang will comment, uh, Rick will respond, and then Silly and I will make some remarks before opening the conversation up. If you would like to be in the queue, use the raise hand function in your browser in your Zoom. Um, click on participants and then raise hand. Uh, this session is recorded, but only the first part, not the Q&A, will be posted if any of it's posted online, okay? Um, and then you can check out all of the past recordings for these sessions, they're all on, the, uh, on our website. Um, so please also let us know your name and institutional affiliation in the chat so that we can give that information to Rick after the session. So without further ado, Wolfgang. Yeah, thanks to Ruth, thanks to Tzili for inviting me and also on congratulating them on this format, which I think is really a wonderful thing. This is your second season and it's absolutely something I love being a tax person. Who, who wants to go beyond tax in many respects. Now, um, thanks in particular to Rick for agreeing to join us here. We ran into each other a couple of times at NYU, and it is indeed my, my interest in taxation and democracy, which made me choose him and this paper for this uh, today's session. Um, this is indeed not a tax paper, but it speaks to tax academics. Because taxation is about redistribution within a given community, it's about financing public goods by a community, and this requires decision-making. So whenever you have tax, you need someone to decide on what to tax and how to uh, uh, allocate the revenue, et cetera. And then you are in the midst of the political system. So nobody, I think, should ever think about taxation without thinking about the political background in particular, the constitution and its institutions. Whether you talk about Trump's tax reform in 2017 or the current deliberations about the Biden proposals in the House and in the Senate, this is talking about democracy. But I would like to go a bit further and, and state I'm not only an academic, I'm also a citizen in one of those Western democracies, which Rick so nicely described. So I'm widely interested in the future of my own country of the United States as a political entity. And I'm quite happy and congratulations to Rick on all that comparative work you did, because this is really something where Europeans, uh, Americans and many others can learn from each other's experiences. So what's the paper about? It's about what Rick calls political fragmentation. Political fragmentation leading to dysfunctionalities in political decision-making. And one of his examples is legislation. There is, he writes, less and less significant enactments in the United States. Now, some people might say, is this a problem? Some people might say less is more. And when I look at, let's say, the European Union and its institutions, I sometimes wish that less is more because there can be underproduction and overproduction of legislation. But I think what you mean in the end is that democratic institutions should be able to address the most pressing issues within a polity to find compromises to settle things, at least for the medium term. And that's not happening in some of the countries you mentioned in your paper. What do you mean by political fragmentation? The, the, the hint you give is we are talking about dispersion of political power. 
Now that can mean a lot of things. Taking a closer look, we can talk about dispersion among institutional players, a president and a Senate and the House and what political economists call veto players. So all these institutions that can block decisions. You can take a look at the polity, at uh, the people of a country and, and find more and more um, the divisions and diversions here. And then we have a lack of gravitational pull exercised by traditional parties. We have a proliferation of smaller parties. We have more and more extremist parties in some cases. And we have, as you nicely described, these political entrepreneurs, which try to bypass traditional career trajectories, traditional democratic institutions. I, I, my position would be, well, fragmentation is a problem, but maybe polarization is an even bigger one. And this is not the same. In, in the United Kingdom, you have still a two-party system, but you have polarization under Brexit. In the US, you have still a two-party system, but you found your high watermark of polarization in the Trump administration. When you look at the most recent election in Germany, it's just a couple of weeks ago, uh, extremist parties were losing out. Uh, all those parties in the middle are somehow finding together. And uh, our, our still working Chancellor Merkel, her recipe for success was to a certain extent to integrate all their opponents' views into her own party program. So you can have a number of parties in the middle as long as they are willing to cooperate even that kind of fragmentation can work. Now you, you very impressively compare systems shaped by proportional representation in continental Europe and those first past the post systems in the UK and in the US. I find this extremely interesting. And what you write about the time it takes in Europe to form coalition governments like in Spain or like in, in, in Belgium or just to mention Israel, this is really quite striking. Um, on the other hand, I sometimes think that one of the main reasons for the changes that happened in the recent decades was in the end the fall of the Iron Curtain, was the end of the Cold War. Uh, in continental Europe, you, you never lost this feeling of this communism, capitalism, antagonism um, of a political, a global political situation where parties did not go to the extremes. We did not have many leftist parties because of the existence of the Soviet Union. You did not have so many right-wing parties because memories of the Nazi regime were still quite fresh. And it was basically the 1990s when that cut loose and all the other parties came on the plane. Um, I learned from the paper, which I, and I very much uh, was impressed by that, that if you have a two-party system like in the UK and in the US, then you will have a lot of diversity within those parties. Uh, and that is, of course, what's also going to extremes in the current situation. Now, if I understand you correctly, the mere fact that you have a lot of diversity and a lot of divisions within parties does not mean that the system is blocked. What is needed then is what in the US, to my knowledge, has always been called bipartisanship. And so as long as you have some form of willingness 
to come together for bipartisan approaches, then diversity within the parties is fruitful and, and helpful because people feel integrated. But once you start polarizing parties against each other, that doesn't work anymore. Now, in the next part of your paper, uh, Rick goes into what he calls the structural causes for fragmentation, in particular, the lack or the loss of coherence between, let's say, center-left parties like the Social Democrats in, in Europe or the Democrats in the US being linked to the working class while more right-wing or center-right parties like the Conservatives in Britain or in, you know, the Christian Democrats in Germany would be linked to middle classes and upper classes. Why has that gone away? We see this not only in the Trump situation, we also see this in Boris Johnson, who, who smashed the, what they called the Red Wall in the, in the UK Midlands by taking over a lot of safe seats from Labour. Again, I would, would like to refer to that, to that erosion of the Cold War situation when capitalist and communist concepts were pitted against each other because this was not just about two superpowers. This was, in my view, also about two master narratives. This was about two ways to explain the world, whether you are on a trajectory that leads you into paradise by more or less socialist ideas or more or less libertarian capitalist ideas. Now that has gone down. Communist broke down first, discrediting many forms of socialist dreams, Capitalism stayed on, but as we now know, wasn't able to deliver a better life to everyone. In many cases, there have been downgradings. You refer in your paper, Rick, to the loss of millions of jobs in the US while millions of people in China got a better life. Now, social Democrats, as you rightly say in the 2000s, tried to find a better way, like Tony Blair, Gerhard Schröder, Bill Clinton and others. But again, they did not meet all the expectations. So what is missing now, and this is in my view, part of the reason for the fragmentation you describe, there is no clear way out anymore. There is an economic situation where many people do not see that master narrative anymore, which might provide a better overall situation for them. So you do not have a coherent agenda addressing a coherent community. And, um, and again, in most democracies, um, politics was quite easy as long as there was a big surplus to, to distribute, but these good old times have gone. So in my view, there's also an economic story behind that, not only a political story, uh, that simply no party is able to offer a clear way out of the current situation. Uh, as you absolutely correct and, and superbly describe, Rick, social Democrats in Europe or Democrats in the US have to a certain extent left behind their clear focus on the well-being of the working classes. And there are kind of two additional work streams here. One is globalization. Uh, social Democrats embraced globalization in the 1990s, and this included a very liberal view as to immigration. Now, immigration might run uh, uh, 
into the face of the existing working class. And in so far, social Democrats have, as you rightly described, lost out. The second work stream, which I would like to add, is sustainability, the program of greening the economy, because again, it's the traditional industries like coal and steel losing out. Now, once you try in a, in a center-left party to combine internationalist views, pro-immigration, pro-globalization, and pro-sustainability, then of course, the working class as it existed before is on the other side. But again, this is not simply an element of the political system. In my view, it's economic forces in the background driving that reality. When I look at my own country in the leftist party, the Linke, there is a bitter divide between those who want simply to protect the domestic working class and others who adhere to the internationalist view, which has always been part of the international socialist movement. The biggest problem seems to be that the expectation gap as to what politicians can deliver against the background of the economic and environmental overall situation is rising and rising, and nobody knows how to feed that gap. As you impressively tell us in your paper, Rick, the very same people who voted for Obama under the Yes, We Can slogan went for Trump under the America First slogan because they simply expected to get out of their miserable situation. So the number of disappointed people will rise and rise, and this will open up avenues for ever more extreme positions and conspiracy theories will come up and outright nonsense as well. And my, my, my feeling is this brings up not only differences as regard political interests. So we are not only pitting different interest groups against each other here, we are pitting different perceptions of reality against each other here. And I think Americans know much better than I what it means to live in a world where people simply do not accept the same facts. I, I remember that Senator Moynihan famously once said, everybody's entitled to their own opinion, but nobody to their own facts. And this, you're beyond that statement in the US, but also of course, in some part, of Europe. Now, in this context, Rick, I find your analysis of modern means of communications quite insightful and, and fascinating because social media contribute to that kind of culture. On the one hand, they stress the participatory element of politics. People are really getting engaged. On the other hand, it gives room to all sorts of manipulation, including rights. There are bubbles coming into existence. And that what we really mean by talking about democracy, meaning a broad discourse across all relevant groups, that does not happen anymore. And I think there are two points which you make here, which I find particularly interesting and, and insightful. The first point refers to the lack of organization and the lack of a coherent platform that is required to form or to, to, to exercise political pressure in these informal groups, because that enables people who are simply angry to communicate and to express themselves. You do not need 
an alternative platform or a coherent agenda, you are just angry. Um, and again, you might be angry at something which politicians cannot change because we are talking about much larger developments of the economy and the environment. Uh, the second point refers, uh, and I, I didn't know anything about that before I read your paper, about the relative ease for individuals to set up parties in no time and to control them. Uh, Rick describes how Beppe Grillo in Italy and Nigel Farage in the UK single-handedly created parties, which are completely in a legal sense dependent on their founders. So Grillo uh, obviously being in control of the brand name of the Five Star Movement, while Nigel Farage was the main shareholder of the Brexit party. Uh, in some countries like Germany, such a thing would have been forbidden. So you, this would be prohibited. You cannot control a party, but I live in a country where you can't even own a football soccer club. So um, um, in the end, we, we always like these, these collective structures. Another element which was not clear to me before I read Rick's paper is this category of free Asian politicians. I mean, this is what, what political economists call the, the political entrepreneur. Um, and this seems to have taken center stage. Of course, we in Europe learned a lot about Trump, but what I learned from your paper is that he was preceded by quite a number of individuals who made their political career bypassing all those traditional steps and decision-making bodies and, and levels within the party framework. I even learned that I have to buy this memoir of John Byner, which seems to be fascinating with all those anecdotes you mentioned. But of course, we have some examples like that as well. So Emmanuel Macron basically created a party just to, to win the presidential election, which he duly did. Uh, and we have more and more situations in Europe where party chairpersons are no longer accepted if they are simply appointed by some leading body, by some board or by some closed group. And, and in a couple of weeks, even the Christian Democrats in Germany will have a, a sounding with the membership to find out who shall be the successor to the unhappy incumbent. Um, but of course, it's very easy for that kind of political entrepreneur to present themselves as an alternative to the establishment swamp or whatever name they want to use here. Um, so when I take a final look at the manifold developments, Rick, in your paper, um, I ask myself whether fragmentation is truly the umbrella term for this. In my view, there are two elements which you describe very nicely. Um, one is polarization, and one is what might be called disintermediation. So a disrespect for the institutions of representative democracy, there is more and more things going towards direct democracy, where you have individual politicians addressing directly what they call the people. So the populist movement, while the, the attenuating and, and filtering effects of representative democracy are more and more sidelined. 
So what am I going to make of it? I had a talk a couple of months ago with a German sociologist and, and his story was, his storyline was the following. Around 100 years ago, people were told now democracy is coming and you will get two things. You will participate in the political process and you will gain economically. Now that went hand in hand for 100 years, but now there are not many economic gains to be distributed anymore. So his theory was, and now people say, the second bit I got, the political participation, this is what I'm now taking much more serious. And this is why we have these grassroots movements. And this is why populists are so popular, etc. This creates room for direct democracy. And I, I read your paper as pleading for maintaining the value of representative institutions. And I'm fully on your side on that. And now I'm looking forward to your comments. Thanks. Now, is it uh, to me or is it to Ruth and Seely first? To, to you, Rick. To me, okay. Uh, well, first of all, um, thanks, of course, for, for drink, drawing me into this or bringing me in, into this. I love uh, both the interdisciplinary kind of nature of this and, and of course, the international uh, dimension. Um, it, and this is, you know, sort of what academic life uh, is like at its best uh, to be able to have these kinds of conversations. It's also fun for me to see a number of people I know on this uh, or people who I haven't met, but whose work I've read. <laughs> so that's also a, a plus for me. Um, I'll try not to talk for too long because I think it's it's better to get into conversation as quickly as we can. Um, you know, let me say a few overview um, words about kind of how I how I understand what um, what this project is about. Um, so at the largest level, I think that one of the principal challenges to the democracy of the West, of the West these days is actually being able to deliver effective government for large numbers of citizens. Um, I think it's quite interesting that President Biden here very self-consciously actually defines that as his historic role. He has now several times said um, that, that his position is to show not just to the United States, but more generally that democracies can effectively deliver for their citizens. And of course, the fact that he has to define his role in that way you know, tells you quite a lot uh, about the anxieties um, that are running through a lot of these um, democracies. Uh, and in political and legal theory, about democracy, we don't tend to talk about effective governance uh, actually as, as one of the important political values in the way we think about designing and organizing and evaluating our institutions. Uh, but I think that's a mistake. And, and I think events are forcing that uh, much more into our awareness as a central thing we have to think about um, in terms of the design of, of the processes. I am kind of an institutionalist. I do tend to think very institutionally about the organizations of democracy. Um, now, why is it across so many of the Western democracies uh, that we seem to be in this period where there's widespread perceptions that governments are not able to deliver effectively? 
Um, and what I, what I see in, at, at one level, as, as Wolfgang was pointing out, is a tremendous fragmentation, as I call it, of political power that's emerged over the last 20 some years across a lot of democracies. Um, we don't always tend to see this as something that, that is uh, existing across democracies because the fragmentation takes different forms in different political systems. Um, but uh, in the European systems, uh, the PR systems, you know, we have seen the disaffection from the two dominant parties or coalitions of the left and right that basically govern in most of these countries since World War II. You know, we see the, the, the alienation from those parties or those coalitions. Uh, we see that alienation sometimes taking the form of significant withdrawal from political participation, which is what we saw among working class voters in places like the US and the UK. Uh, until Brexit and Trump in 2016, uh, when a lot of those voters returned to participation. Um, we see it in the rise of a lot of the smaller new insurgent parties, some on the right, some on the left, some with very different kinds of, uh, of views. Um, and the further sort of manifestations of that in the PR systems is uh, you know, the much greater difficulty of finding governing majorities, of being able to form coalitions, uh, the much greater likelihood those coalitions are uh, incoherent to an extent because you have to bring together the Greens and the uh, free, uh, I forgot, the FDP or what's it called uh, in Germany, the, uh, the Liberal Party. Uh, but in other countries, you know, similar kinds of incoherent coalitions uh, that makes it more difficult uh, or can make it more difficult for those governments to deliver effective policy. Uh, it will make those governments uh, more fragile, uh, more likely to fall to votes of no confidence. Uh, we see in a number of these systems, you know, the more extreme expressions of that, like in Spain, where the two dominant parties had, had governed for, you know, since, since Spain had become a democracy. And by the, the, the last decade, um, Spain ends up that just fragments uh, and we have six parties or so leading to elections that are indecisive, governments get formed, they barely last, they fall, I forgot four elections in three or four years in Spain. You know, so those are some of the manifestations of this dispersal of political power away from the traditional institutional structures that help to organize and channel and give content and bring effectiveness to the political process, the, the dominant political parties. Uh, in the US, because uh, of the two-party system, you know, fragmentation doesn't take the form of uh, third or fourth parties uh, rising up. It's just the, the, the disincentives are too strong given the, the structural incentives of the first past the post elections. But what you see is the internal fragmentation of our two major parties with all sorts of consequences. So the more extreme version of this is that when the Republican party was uh, in charge of the US House, um, the Republican speaker of the House twice basically was thrown out of office by his own Republican members because they were, there was too much division uh, over the direction of the party. Um, on the Democratic side, of course, we're seeing this right now uh, as the Democrats are you know, fractured internally between the moderates and the progressives. 
um, which has led them uh, uh, to be unable to do anything for four months after President Biden managed to put together a huge bipartisan deal in the Senate on infrastructure. Uh, and instead, there's kind of this self-destructive uh, dynamic that's taking place over the last four months uh, that, you know, I think is partly responsible for the, the bloodbath that the Democratic Party took in our elections um, on Tuesday, not the only cause, but part of it. Um, so in general, I, I, there's a you know, very strong link between these, this, this challenge of providing effective government and the reality of how much more fragmented politics and political parties have become. Uh, and as I say, um, the fragmentation is partly a reflection of the inability or dissatisfaction with governments being able to deliver effective policy that leads to searches for other alternatives. But at the same time, perhaps perversely, that very fragmentation makes it all the harder for governments to go ahead and be able to put together the concerted power that's necessary to move these systems um, to actually deliver. And you know, just in response quickly to Wolfgang's initial comment, um, and I think he recognized this in the, in the comment, um, you know, it's not an issue about uh, the number of laws generated per se, it's, uh, and, and it's hard, of course, to define metrics for effective governance and delivery of effective governance. Uh, but in the US, uh, I think some of the best metrics that, that political scientists have come up for this look at things like um, uh, the issues that voters identify as the 10 most urgent issues, or other measures of the most salient issues for voters. Um, and then um, on what percentage of those issues does Congress end up legislating over the next you know, four or five years? And you can look historically and compare the present with you know, 30, 40 years ago. And, and there are dramatic differences, um, at least in the, uh, in the US. Um, and I think, as I say in the paper, this issue of fragmentation and, and effective governance is a, is, is a deeper and more pervasive issue than uh, the kinds of questions that we spend a lot of time thinking about now with what's going on among democracies in the, in the West. Um, you know, the issues of illiberal, the rise of illiberalism, uh, the, the worries about democratic backsliding, um, uh, the role of various populist forces uh, in different countries, all of that's true and important. Um, but the fragmentation is something that I see as, as pretty pervasive not limited to a few countries um, that have had um, uh, already gone through a certain amount of democratic backsliding, you know, Poland, Hungary, you know, the two, the two ones uh, uh, that people focus on the most. Um, in other places, there are anxieties about that, including here in the US. Uh, but, uh, but this seems to me an enormous challenge. And the, the paper goes on to then try to uh, look at what the underlying causes of all of this fragmentation might be. Some of them are large economic, cultural kinds of forces. Um, a lot of them tied to the way uh, uh, the political parties or coalitions of left and right uh, are now essentially inverted from what they had been ever since World War II. Uh, with all this you know, movement across these traditional party identities and uh, 
working class voters, at least white working class voters, <laughs> voters are lower economic status, lower educational levels, who used to traditionally be the base of the parties of the left, um, now having moved to the parties of the right, uh, and the parties of the left having become the parties of the higher educated, more affluent voters, um, and in the United States, at least, uh, a significant portion of minority voters. Um, and a lot of people have written about those larger forces. The thing I want to bring to the table here is uh, I don't think we've appreciated how much the communications revolution is also a major driver of the kind of fragmentation these democracies are struggling with. Uh, we are you know, very focused on the issues of disinformation in the social media system or maybe misinformation um, or you know, amplification of this or that. Um, but I think the challenges the communications revolution poses to democracies is much more profound than those issues or put another way, if we could, even if we could handle those issues, could find some way to manage those issues, whether it's self-regulation by the platforms or government regulation of one sort or another, um, I, I think the fragmenting forces that the communications revolution unleashes on politics are, are would still be there, would be very profound um, and very difficult for the political system to sort of manage. Um, and I have more familiarity with this in the United States. Uh, and so let me just make one point uh, to link that to the larger story and then I'll stop so we can actually engage in conversation. Um, if you want to know why the Democrats, if you've you know, been following the, the, the drama, if you will, uh, over months here uh, about whether the Democrats will, will bring their progressive and moderate forces together to enact major economic and social legislation, um, one of the things you may have noticed is that the Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, has several times promised a vote on a specific date on these issues and then been unable to hold the vote because she realized she would not be able to get a majority. And you know, as a Speaker of the House, you don't put something on the floor that's gonna get voted down. Uh, you have the president asking for this to be done. You have the Speaker of the House, the two most powerful Democrats, two of the three most powerful Democrats uh, trying to bring this together and they can't. And why is that? And it's in part because there have always been factions and differences within political parties, particularly in the two-party system of the United States. But there used to be ways that political leaders had tools, leverage, power to kind of bridge those divides and keep the party as a kind of organized structure and bring along recalcitrant members once party leaders had decided some deal was in the interest of the party as a whole. And Nancy Pelosi simply does not have that kind of leverage anymore over members who are only in office one, two, three, four years. This is also remarkable. The, the people resisting making a deal and, and the terms of the deal are actually fairly obvious and have been fairly obvious for four months. Um, but, uh, but one wing of the Democratic Party in the House, the progressive wing, has been resisting that deal. Uh, many of them are recently in office. 
those ought to be the most vulnerable members, the members who are most dependent on the leadership uh, or would have been in the past. And, and the reason they're not now is the communications revolution, at least in my view. They are able to raise money for themselves for running for office through the internet, through social media. They don't have to be on important committees to have extremely high profiles, as many of them do. They are on Twitter, they are on other social media platforms, they are on cable television, which is part of the communications revolution. Um, they, are, they are able to, to, to act as, as I said, as, as Wolfgang mentioned, independent political free agents, unconstrained in a major way by the party structure. They don't have to work their way up through the party structure to get to a certain level where they have a profile um, and, and can um, stand on their own. They can do that almost as soon as they come into office. And that means, what, what is it Nancy Pelosi can threaten to do to them? Not much. Uh, and so that's part of the fragmentation within the party structure in the US. Now our politicians you know, are much freer in some ways of a party structure than they are in, in many of the PR systems. Uh, but in any event, that's, that's just a, a point about what's going on right now how the communications revolution helps explain that, how the, what you're seeing is a manifestation of this fragmentation. And of course, what it's producing is this tremendous struggle about whether with unified control of the government, which rarely happens in the US now, can the Democratic Party actually deliver? Um, now, I assume eventually it will, but it, it's, it's going to have damaged itself enormously in this long drawn out process of trying to get there. Uh, and it just would not, and, and in my view, this was not how things would have happened in the pre-fragmentation, pre-communications revolution age. So let me stop, stop there. Okay, thank you so much. Um, Wolfgang, did you wanna respond directly to that or? Uh, well, well, just, just two sentences. First of all, I absolutely agree with Rick that this emergence of this free agent really makes a difference. Uh, and that it's way harder to contain these people or even to organize a compromise among these people or with these people than in the past. On, on the other hand, I still think that the issues at hand may have become more complicated than in the past when we, are, we were only talking about rich countries being well-organized which did not have a demographic problem, which did not lose millions of jobs to Asia, etc. And uh, in so far, I think things are coming together. The emergence of these free agents might also be a result of the lack of credible answers to the questions people have out there in the current situation. Rick, did you want to respond or show? No, I want to. I want to hear what you yeah. have to say. Okay, great. So, um, to participants, if you would like to ask a question, please use the raise hand function on uh, Zoom, um, and please let us know your institutional affiliation by putting it into the chat. Um, so, Rick, thanks so much for this paper. Like the discussion has already been so interesting. Um, you know, I I hadn't paid attention to those quotes that 
you pull out from President Biden. Um, I find them really unnerving. Um, you know, you have the President of the United States essentially talking about existential threat to democracy and that he sees himself as pushing back against that. Um, and then, you know, to see that this is not something that's just happening in the United States, that it's across system and across type of system uh, was really uh, interesting for me. And so I'm glad to have this paper, you know, we tax people tend sometimes get bogged down in the minutiae and it's nice to sort of be brought out to uh, a higher level. Um, overall, I find the, the argument persuasive. Um, fragmentation to me is clearly an important part of the story. And I think I agree under emphasized. Um, I also agree about social media and its role in fragmentation um, and that regulation of social media is unlikely to make much of a difference. Um, you know, we tax people tend to think that, you know, anything can be solved with a Pagubian tax or subsidy. And I just think, you know, the genie is out of the bottle on this one and there's no tax that's gonna put it back in. Um, so, you know, one issue I wanna raise um, because I'm sure it's on the mind, at least of the Americans is this reconciliation bill and you've already talked about it. Um, you know, for people outside the US who aren't following this, um, including in this bill are the pillar two changes. So Rick, pillar two is just OECD jargon for the corporate minimum tax proposal. And this proposal has widespread international support, um, but in the United States, it's gonna be enacted under this, you know, particular legislative procedure reconciliation that's subject to some pretty tight restrictions. And the reason why the Democrats who control the government, right, are using reconciliation is to bypass a Senate filibuster. And, you know, the Democrats have razor thin majorities. Well, there's no majority in the Senate. Every Democrat has to vote in favor. And there's a really slim majority in the House. Um, and so, you know, the reconciliation bill is expected to pass if it passes with zero bipartisan support. Um, you know, and this is not just a Democrat thing. In 2017, the Republicans too passed, a, you know, a tax bill in the literal dead of night with no Democrat support or input. Um, you know, so this raises a couple of additional risks that could be part of your analysis as you go forward with this, I think, critical project, right? So, you know, Fragmentation doesn't only make government less able to deliver, but it also introduces kinds of pathologies to the legislative process. And you talk about the abandonment of regular order in congressional committees, but it, fragmentation also forces what might be called um, procedural innovation. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, now everything has to pass through reconciliation which means that every provision has to affect revenue and it's just highly restrictive. Um, and then, you know, another place you could see this is the other part of this big international deal, which the tax people call pillar one. Um, this is just a, a new tax nexus for, for international tax. But this has, you know, large support, 137 countries agreed to this. And, you know, normally a change like this would, would happen in the United States through treaty, either a multilateral treaty or, you know, through updates to bilateral treaties. But, you know, the worry is 67 votes in the Senate. 
for ratification. So instead, the Democrats are talking about, you know, they're getting creative and they're talking about using congressional executive agreement or something that requires, um, you know, fewer votes. So basically, we see government trying to substitute less accountable legal forms for more accountable legal forms. And this is to get at, to, to get around, right, political, in part polarization, but in part uh, fragmentation. Um, you know, so this, you know, raises the question of whether these changes can endure beyond the current party that's in power. And I would guess that this is not the, the United States is not the only place uh, where this is happening. Um, so another example of secret Congress might be the flight to international law. So I think it's pretty clear that the Biden administration is using this international tax deal, you know, not exactly to tie Congress's hands, but at least to strongly influence the outcome on the tax rate. And I think you see the same thing in Europe. So France and Germany can't get Ireland to do what they want on, the, uh, on these big tax harmonization projects or on digital taxation. So they turn to the OECD forum and they try to get the Americans to bludgeon Ireland into submission. And then that's what happens. Um, you know, and compared to internal processes, these international forms of policymaking are way less transparent, way less accountable. You know, there's no C-SPAN for the OECD. Um, and so you can see multilateralism as a kind of self-help self tool to combat fragmentation on the national level or maybe on the, you know, on the EU level. Um, you know, no one is going to tweet, no one who's not on this call is going to tweet anything about anything that happens at the OECD and the Committee on Fiscal Affairs. It's completely uh, opaque uh, and so insulated from the communications revolution, right? So you have to find ways to get out of the, the Twitterverse. Um, but then you have these unelected treasury and finance ministry officials essentially making policy, deliberating completely out of sight. Um, another pathology is the amplification of the voice of the linchpin voters, the mansions and the cinemas. Um, so, you know, you may have policy churn and you may have unexpected results in this within party fragmentation, right? So Manchin is making all the decisions. He's, he's in the dominant party. Um, I wonder too, if fragmentation can affect the other prong of David Runciman's story of the appeal of democracy, right? So as you say that, that Runciman argues that democracy is appealing for two reasons, right? It, it delivers benefits and that's a problem under fragmentation for the reasons you give. And then it offers you know, dignity and respect to citizens. Um, now that's probably about a, a formal voice in the political process, but you could tell a story about the corrosive effects of fragmentation and social media, the communications revolution on dignity and respect. Um, and they massively amplify indignities and disrespect. Tax Twitter is a very nice place to be, but don't step one foot outside of tax Twitter or you will be very sorry. Um, and so you can sort of, this is to not just a social breakdown among citizens, right? The president of the United States can use his Twitter account to insult individual citizens and whole groups of citizens, right? Um, and, you know, you, this kind of ties up with your story about the disdain of the political elites and the credentialed for those who don't have uh, those credentials, but you can see it right there in Congress. Um, so I don't know if this is a, 
a, a standalone paper or if it's part of a book. I mean, it's a very big idea. Um, and so I wondered, you know, if you have any recommendations, I'm guessing campaign finance reform. Um, but, you know, I mean, if it's, it, it, it's in proportionate representation systems, it's in for, first past the post, um, should states be smaller to minimize yeah. fragmentation? Um, you know, will remote work help so that we don't get concentrate, urban concentrations? Um, you know, I mean, I guess what I'm asking is, is there any hope for us? Is there any hope for democracy? Is Biden going to save us? Um, so that's some food. <laughs> food for thought. I don't know if you want to respond now or. <laughs> yeah, I'll respond to, to at least is some of this because um, I, I really, you know, like the observation uh, that one of the effects of fragmentation is to uh, introduce pathologies, if you will, to the political process, because if it's impossible to move it through the traditional structures of Congress or parliaments uh, or the process um, and there's demand, <clears throat> then there's inevitably going to be pressure to see if there are workarounds that can emerge. Um, and um, I don't know how many people have read, <clears throat> read the paper or read the paper all the way through, but um, I do wanna mention that something that you flagged that um, I realized it happened with the US Congress that I had not fully understood until I, I really worked this through. Um, there had been complaints uh, over 20, 30 years or so now that uh, Congress used to function in a way where there was more decentralization. You know, there were individual committees, they specialized, they had expertise, they had developed a lot of knowledge about particular issues. Legislation would be initially developed in these committees, tested, discussed, modified. It would work its way up through the system. Then there would be amendments on the floor of the House or the Senate. Um, and this changed, this has changed dramatically. And we have a, a much more top-down and centralized Congress in which most of the major policies are worked out in the leadership office of whoever, whichever party is in charge with you know, major leaders of the party behind closed doors. They produce a massive bill um, it then gets sent out with the understanding that sort of this is it um, and you're going to vote for it. Um, there's much less deliberation. There's much less public uh, process and a lot of and there's been a lot of criticism of that. But what people don't realize is there's a reason that, that, that this has happened. And it's not because legislative leaders suddenly got more power hungry than they had been in the past, because presumably they always uh, were very attuned to power. Um, but because with social media and the communications revolution, the more open process compounded by some very extreme transparency requirements we have in the United States that were adopted in the 70s, um, just the, the process be has become so vulnerable to being blocked at early stages before deals and trade-offs and negotiations can be made um, that it's really power that, that Congress sort of figured out um, that this is part of what made it more paralyzed. And so as a response, this centralization of policymaking in the leadership uh, was meant to insulate the process from transparency, not for sinister kinds of reasons, but because um, in the communications age that we're in, that kind of insulation came to be viewed as, as necessary 
uh, to be able to actually get things uh, done. Um, and uh, you know, with treaties in the US, this is actually a much longer problem. This problem goes back much longer because the constitution you know, has this two thirds requirement for approval of treaties. Um, so we have stopped having significant international agreements done by treaty for quite a while now. Um, it's so rare to be able to get that level of support. Um, you know, just as an aside, I've written about this quite a bit, but the, when the constitution was formed, um, the hope was that political parties wouldn't emerge and political parties were thought to be <clears throat> kind of antithetical to the kind of democracy or Republican governance that was hoped to be created. Of course, that turned out to be a misunderstanding of how politics would work in a modern society. We do get parties. Um, and as the parties developed and, 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 and then particularly hardened over time, uh, you know, rules that were thought to promote wise decision-making, like a two-thirds requirement, became insurmountable because of partisan conflict. Um, because so much of politics got organized, came to be organized through the parties. But, but in any event, I like, I like the general point uh, about process distortions that uh, uh, themselves reflect these forces of fragmentation. And I want to think about that more. I'll save any response to the plea for salvation uh, to, uh, uh, to later on, because maybe other people will ask questions along those lines. Celie? <laughs> Yeah, um, so uh, I'd like to join uh, with and thank you both Volker and, and, and you, Rick, for joining us today. I think I speak for both Ruth and myself uh, in saying that when we envisioned this series of, of uh, um, workshops, this is the, the kind of, of interaction we were looking for. So not only Volker's long-lasting interest in, in taxation and democracy, uh, but when I read your, your paper, Rick, I, I thought it was... Uh, exactly the kind of, of interaction we're looking not only between uh, different disciplines uh, within law, but also the international perspective and the comparative perspective. I think so many of us found ourselves, uh, you know, in, the, in this paper, our state, ourselves and our states in, in this paper, uh, for better or worse. Uh, and not surprisingly, you know, maybe I would like to take this uh, uh, opportunity to, to comment on the international perspective. Um, and I have uh, uh, two comments. One of them actually uh, closely resembles what Ruth was thinking about, and we didn't discuss this before, which is uh, interesting. But I was wondering whether the international arena um, is significant, uh, it, it, both in amplifying the, the problem of, of fragmentation, but possibly also by offering ways to, to contain it. Um, so, my, so my first uh, um, comment actually goes on, on the amplifying the, the, the problem and, and the problem and focuses on, on fragmentation. And I read your, your paper um, as uh, one that highlights the uh, fragmentation of voice, right, and the voice versus exit uh, uh, discussion. Uh, and, and I would like to, to highlight another dimension of fragmentation, and I think tax law makes it uh, uh, very clear, uh, but, it's, uh, but I don't think tax is in any way uh, unique uh, in that law, and that's the fragmentation of exit options. Um, so what we're used to, to thinking about um, exit in, in binary terms, right? So a person is, is uh, 
is a part of a political community of a state or when she decides to expatriate, uh, she's no longer a member of, of such a community. Uh, and, and the paper, of course, very neatly describes the, the new rifts that the, this uh, difference between people uh, creates between the anywheres and the somewheres. And I really like that uh, uh, part in, in the paper that uh, describes that. Um, but as text law uh, have, has made uh, clear, some constituents don't have to make this binary choice and they're actually able to diversify their affiliation with, with the state. And uh, this actually makes exit itself a, a fragmented option. So when constituents can diversify their interaction with states, that is when they can simultaneously reside, invest, vote, pay taxes, work, and do business in any number of states, they enjoy uh, both greater flexibility, uh, but also a greater ability to influence state policies and to influence uh, state politics. And this is not only through voice, but also through partial exit, or sometimes the threat of exit is, is enough uh, for that, as, as in the case of, of uh, foreign direct investment, for example. So if, for example, they, they don't like a specific policy of country A, they don't have to fight uh, or challenge it in the political arena. In many cases, they can simply opt out of this particular policy. And again, tax provides a, a very good example for that. So um, Wolfgang was starting his, his uh, comments with referring, and I think rightfully so, to the issue of redistribution. Right, so if I don't like redistribution, I could fight the political fight uh, to lower taxes, or I could opt out of the system by tax planning. So at least prior to the recent uh, developments in international taxation, uh, this further undermines the, the ability of the government to promote policies that would actually uh, serve the, the public good. The second point I wanted to make, and this is again, uh, goes to very closely to, to what Ruth was talking about, uh, is that for better or worse, the international arena uh, offers domestic policymakers uh, an option to increase their power. Uh, and, and the idea is, uh, you know, Putnam's uh, two-level game, when, when uh, domestic political actors may, may be cooperating with parallel actors in foreign countries across national borders, right? Um, and, and this may help them twist the arms of domestic stakeholders in a certain way. And again, one example uh, that, my, that may demonstrate this is the, is the US joining or indeed leading uh, the global minimum tax, right? Uh, just to cite the New York Times from a few days ago, the, the, the headline said, uh, Biden uh, finds raising corporate tax rates easier abroad than home. Okay, so that's, I think that's a really good example of of how international leverage allows domestic politicians to actually uh, get their way in terms of policy. Now, the results of such moves could be good or bad, you know, when you're looking at it from a normative perspective, uh, they could help governments raise taxes that are desperately needed to, to help the, the government raise taxes, you know, for vaccine or, or uh, to sustain the, the environment, the environment, but they can obviously also help the government raise taxes uh, to, to finance undesirable levels and, of course, a whole range of other policies. Um, and, and as you mentioned in, in, in the paper, the, these uh, leverages can, can actually empower democratically elected uh, leaders, but also uh, dictators. 
but my point is that whatever they are, uh, these leverages are actually a way to uh, to use the international arena in order to increase domestic power, and, and that may uh, be a, a way forward on, on kind of fight, fighting these fragmentations. Well, so I, I really like the idea of um, using Hirschman to, to sort of organize, you know, uh, a way of seeing things here that I'm writing primarily about fragmentation on the voice uh, option. And I, I don't think I've really thought about it on the exit uh, side. Um, uh, and, you, and you offer and you offer some, you know, interesting examples about that uh, <laughs> with the 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 no the the rejection of the simple binary kind of idea of where you're a citizen and what that means. Um, <clears throat> I don't know how much. Um, I mean, those issues seem to me uh, ones that at least in in principle could be managed by policy if policymakers were 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 willing to address them and have the political capability to do it. Um, you know, rules about attributing income here or there. Uh, uh, I, I don't know how, how deep the fragmentation of the exit option that you're talking about kind of runs as a challenge to modern democracies um, because um, uh, we are close, you know, some, we do sometimes close some of these uh, arbitrage opportunities um, it, it has been a problem, obviously, as you know better than me in the international tax arena with, with business. Uh, but anyway, it's an interesting question to think about. Um, do we have more fragmentation uh, on these sort of exit front? <clears throat> Presumably globalization, you know, the openness uh, uh, to the movement of capital at least, uh, obviously creates more opportunities for what you're describing. Um, but as I say, my first instinct at least is that I can imagine policy solutions to that, whereas the things I'm trying to describe here, going back to Ruth's question, uh, are much more daunting uh, in terms of thinking uh, uh, about whether this is our fate and this is the kind of democracies we're going to experience in this era or whether there are uh, significant uh, changes externally, internally, matters of policy or not that may kind of change the dynamic I'm trying to describe here. Um, thank you so much. And to everyone else, you know, we can't sign you up. You have to sign yourselves up for the emails. So if you're not getting the invitations, go on the website and sign yourself up and then you'll get the invitations in the future. So thank you to everyone. And I hope to see you next time. Welcome, everyone. It is such a pleasure to see you all here. I'm so glad that you've come. Uh, I know we're getting into the busy time of the year, and so I, especially to you students, um, it's a real testament uh, to Larry Solom that you all are here. I'm going to talk a little bit about his teaching in a minute. Um, but it is wonderful to get together and to celebrate one of our faculty and his accomplishments and his scholarship uh, and, uh, and to do that together uh, uh, in person, which is a wonderful thing. 
So, um, and I want to say a special welcome to uh, the friends and family of um, Professor Solems who have come here from uh, far and wide. It, it is wonderful to see you and to welcome you to the law school. So the William L. Matheson and Robert M. Morgenthau Distinguished Professorship in Law was funded by William Matheson, the class of 1950 from the law school, in honor of his friend, Robert Morgenthau. Bill Matheson practiced at Patterson, Belknap, and Webb and other New York firms before opening his own firm. He was the chair of the Michigan Energy Resources Company and its predecessors from 1959 to 1989 and he retired from law practice in 1993, and he died in 2000. Robert Morgenthau was a bit more famous, perhaps, to some of you. He was a graduate of Amherst College and Yale Law School and a naval officer during World War II. He served as the US attorney for the Southern District of New York for much of the 1960s, and then from 1975 to his retirement in 2009, that is a very long time. He served as the Manhattan District Attorney, as someone who grew up in New York. I'm not sure I knew there could be anyone else who served as District Attorney. Um, presiding, as the New York Times put it in his obituary, a battalion of 500 lawyers, a $75 million budget, and a torrent of cases every year that helped to shape the quality of life for millions in a city of vast riches and untold hardships. This professorship has been one of distinction since its beginning held by John Jeffries here today, Robert Scott, Jim Ryan, and Dana Matthew. I am delighted and honored to add Lawrence Solom to this distinguished group of scholars and teachers. Lawrence received his BA with highest departmental honors in philosophy from the University of California, Los Angeles. He earned his JD magna cum laude from Harvard where he was an editor of the Law Review. After law school, he clerked for Judge William A. Norris on the Ninth Circuit and then practiced at Cravath, Swain, and Moore in New York City. Lawrence has been a member of the law faculty at the Georgetown University Law Center, the University of Illinois, the University of San Diego, and Loyola Marymount University, as well as being a visitor at Boston University and the University of Southern California. He joined our faculty in 2020 after visiting in the fall of 2019. Lawrence is, it is fair to say, one of the country's preeminent legal and constitutional theorists. His scholarly interests are as wide-ranging as his work is influential. In addition to his seminal scholarly impact on constitutional interpretation, he has also made enduring and influential contributions to the theory of legal interpretation generally, to the analysis of procedural justice, to Aristotelian virtue ethics as applied to legal decision-making, and to the philosophical underpinnings of the idea of freedom of speech. He is especially interested in the relationship of law to the philosophy of language and to, the moral and, and to moral and political philosophy. He has published several books and more than 80 articles in law reviews and philosophy journals. He is best known for his work in three areas. His most prominent scholarship published widely in several books and in major articles in Harvard, Yale, Chicago, Virginia, law reviews, among others, focuses on issues of constitutional theory and constitutional interpretation. He is perhaps best known for two related contributions. The first, what he calls the fixation thesis, is the way in which constitutional meaning is fixed at the time of enactment. What makes this thesis so important is that it captures how it captures the insights of so-called constitutional originalism while remaining agnostic among competing theories of originalism, including most prominently original intent originalism 
and original public meaning originalism. By being agnostic, as among these and other forms of originalism, Lawrence is able to theorize and also to relate to important ideas in the philosophy of language, the basic impetus behind all of the originalisms and the way in which, for him, they capture something central about the idea of constitutionalism itself. Lawrence's second major contribution, perhaps even better known and more influential than the one I just described, is the distinction that he draws between constitutional interpretation and constitutional construction, between what the language of the Constitution means as a semantic matter and how courts then apply that language to particular controversies. Lawrence has carved out a position largely distinctive to him, widely cited and discussed in the literature, which draws on insights and scholarship in the philosophy of language in a sophisticated and cutting-edge way matched by no one in the legal academy. Lawrence's second most important area of scholarship has been in virtue jurisprudence. In a series of major works, including a book of that name, he has situated legal and judicial decision-making within a rich philosophical tradition dating back to Aristotle, and he has engaged a large number of the world's most prominent philosophers on these issues. Somewhat distinct from these areas of scholarship is his writing about procedure. His almost book-length article on procedural justice remains the standard source on the philosophical underpinnings of legal procedure. And in a much more practical vein, Lawrence con continues to be one of the contributors to the annual updating of Moore's Federal Practice, a treatise on federal civil procedure widely considered to be the standard for practitioners who litigate in federal courts. I am constantly amazed, not only by the depth and expertise of Lawrence's scholarship, but by its breadth, which seems to know no bounds. Whatever topic is up for discussion, intellectual property, freedom of expression, law and linguistics, law and artificial intelligence, evidence, and law and the philosophy of public reason, Lawrence has written about it. And even when the topic is somewhat distant from his major preoccupations, his contribution is often of crucial importance to the field. His ideas are discussed, borrowed, embellished, challenged, and in various ways located at the center of the academic debates about the subjects in which he is involved. Lawrence's generosity as a colleague and a teacher are as noteworthy as his influence and prominence. He authors and maintains the legal theory blog where he curates and disseminates the most important work in the field. And his related legal theory lexicon explains scholarly ideas and concepts for students and the broader public. As a teacher, Lawrence's deep knowledge is matched by his enthusiasm for and engagement with his students. And I will note again how many of them are here today at their lunchtime to hear him speak. And I did indeed begin hearing about Lawrence's attachment and care to his students when he first uh, began teaching here in, the fall, in 2019 um, and from the very beginning of his time here. They could not get over the amount of time that he spends with his students individually and in groups um, and that this legendary scholar is as committed to teaching as he is. When he was interviewed for an article for our website last year, he said, quote, I love teaching and especially enjoy teaching first-year students. Even after 35 years, I still prepare for several hours for each class I teach, and I learn new things almost every time from every class. My goal is to teach a first-year class in such a way that the students acquire the ability to say new things and make new arguments about the cases and to teach me about the cases. Lawrence's is indeed a rare mind, incisive and expansive, brilliant and generous. We are lucky to count him as one of our own. I look forward to hearing him speak today about the return of legal formalism. Please welcome Lawrence Solom, our William L. Matheson, and Robert M. Thank you, Risa, for that um, very, very generous introduction. Um, it, it has been a, a great pleasure 
to spend time here at the University of Virginia uh, as a visitor and now for almost a year and a half as uh, a member of the faculty. And uh, I want to express my gratitude not only uh, to Dean Golboff, but to Fred Schauer uh, and Debbie Hellman, who both played important roles in enabling me to be here. Um, and uh, uh, to my former student, Greg Strauss, uh, uh, who for me was one of the great attractions of coming to the University of Virginia. I'd like to acknowledge the presence uh, of my sister, uh, Alexandra, um, my partner, Allison Bailey, her father, Holmes Bailey, uh, his wife, Sarah Bailey, and my longtime friends uh, and treasured colleagues, Randy Barnett of Georgetown University and Kurt Lash from the University of Richmond. Um, one of the most special things about being at Virginia is that somehow, after all these years, uh, I'm only an hour away from the homes of two of my uh, closest, dearest, and uh, longest-term friends. So uh, today's talk about formalism uh, begins with the question, what is formalism? And there is no single answer to that question. Formalism is many things. There are many theories that are called formalist. Uh, uh, Fred Schauer, who is in the room today, is the author of some very influential work on legal formalism. I think that most, but perhaps not all, formalist theories are united by a central idea the view that judges ought to apply the law, they ought to apply pre-existing legal norms, and that uh, judges should not be lawmakers. Even courts of last resort, the formalist says, uh, should rely on laws that already exist uh, before they apply them, uh, the Supreme Court, the Supreme Courts of the various states, and of course this theory uh, transcends the American context. Uh, uh, courts in other legal systems should be law appliers, not lawmakers. The great opponent of legal formalism uh, is sometimes called legal realism, sometimes called uh, legal instrumentalism, and the debate between these two uh, families of views has in some sense been uh, the most important and dominant debate uh, in at least American jurisprudence uh, for more than a century. Legal formalism ranges across uh, all of uh, the, the great topics of legal theory, all areas of law. There are formalist views about the Constitution. That's constitutional originalism. There's a very influential formalist theory uh, of statutory interpretation which is sometimes called plain meaning textualism. There is 
a formalist theory of contract interpretation. Uh, I think Professor Gulati, uh, some of his students are here today, and, and they've heard about that uh, in class from him. Uh, and there is a formalist theory of the common law, uh, of uh, the great topics where legal norms are recognized and articulated by common law courts, topics uh, that are studied by first-year law students in courses like torts and contracts and property. So what are these theories and how do they work? I want to just give a brief overview of some of the most important forms of legal formalism, beginning, I think, with the form of formalism, the kind of formalism that is uh, sort of most prominent in public discourse, uh, constitutional originalism. Risa has already mentioned the idea that um, originalists believe that the linguistic meaning of the constitutional text, the communicative content, to use the philosophical phrase, of the constitutional text is fixed at the time each constitutional provision is framed and ratified. So for example, Article 4 of the Constitution uh, includes the phrase domestic violence. That phrase today means violence within a family, spousal abuse, elder abuse, child abuse. But in 1787, when Article 4 was written, that phrase had no such meaning. It referred to uh, riots, uh, insurrections, rebellions within the territory of a state. Uh, and if we're going to get Article 4 right, we ought to use that meaning, the original meaning, not the meaning that the phrase has acquired in subsequent years. The second idea that characterizes contemporary originalism is the constraint principle. The constraint principle expresses the idea that the original meaning of the constitutional text should be binding. It should constrain judges, uh, that judges are not free to modify, alter, nullify, disregard, make up rules of constitutional law. They are bound by the original meaning of the constitutional text. There are many forms of originalism, original intent originalism, original methods originalism, most recently original law originalism, but the predominant form of contemporary originalism is public meaning originalism, and the case for public meaning uh, can be expressed as the public meaning thesis, uh, this is my current project. An article is forthcoming shortly in the Boston University Law Review. Uh, the public meaning thesis is the claim that the best understanding of the meaning of the Constitution, of the content communicated by the Constitution, 
is the public meaning. It is a document that was adopted by we the people. Its first three words are we the people, early uh, exponents of the Constitution, uh, consistently emphasized the idea that the Constitution was written for the people, for the public, that it was written in a way so that its meaning could be accessed by the public. Now, of course, there are some technical phrases in the Constitution, letters and mark and reprisal, uh, doubtful that everyone in Western Massachusetts would have understood exactly what that meant. But even in the cases of technical language, the idea is that the public could access that meaning because it would be visible to them, recognizable to them, that a technical term was being employed. And then they could consult an expert, look up a phrase in a dictionary, and acquire, uh, if they wanted to, an understanding of the um, meaning of the phrase. Of course, there are many rivals of originalism, common good constitutionalism, sort of a right-wing form of uh, living constitutionalism is the most recent. Uh, constitutional theorists talk about common law constitutionalism, uh, constitutional pluralism, and the Thayerian idea of deference. All of these are uh, uh, among the diverse forms of living constitutionalism. In the statutory realm, uh, textualism has probably been even more influential than originalism has been in the, constitu in the constitutional realm. So uh, textualists accept two of the ideas uh, that are central to originalism. Uh, textualists accept the idea that the meaning of a statutory text is fixed at the time the statute is enacted. And they accept the idea that statutes should constrain judges, that the communicative content of a statutory text ought to be binding on judges. Uh, but statutes are different than constitutions. Uh, constitu the Constitution of the United States was written for the public. It has public meaning. But not all statutes are written for the public. Some statutes are. Some statutes, criminal statutes of general application, are written in such a way to be understood by the public at large. But other statutes, are addressed to regulatory agencies uh, and regulated industries. They may pervasively employ technical language and use ordinary words in ways that differ from uh, the way the same words are used by the public at large. So the public meaning thesis, 
the central idea that makes, uh, uh, excuse me, the, the central idea that makes constitutional originalism uh, 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 distinct uh, is not, does not hold in the statutory realm. Instead, we have what is sometimes called the plain meaning thesis. The idea that a statutory text should be read the way that its primary intended audience would read it. So a statute that is directed to a regulatory agency might have pervasively technical meaning. A statute that is addressed to uh, uh, chemical factories and regulates the way in which they treat uh, harmful compounds should be understood the way that a chemical engineer or a chemical plant manager would understand the language. Once again, there are rivals. The rivals of textualism include purposivism, the idea that statutes should be interpreted not in light of their communicative content, but instead in light of the objective purpose of the statute. The purpose that would be attributed to the statute by an idealized legislature uh, motivated uh, by the public good. And intentionalism, the so-called congressional intent theory or legislative intent theory the idea that statutes should be interpreted in light of the intentions of the lawmakers, the, the will of the lawmakers, the policy goals of the lawmakers. Like uh, public texts, public law texts, statutes and constitutions, so too formalism comes to private law texts, to contract interpretation and the interpretation of wills and trusts and corporate charters, uh, documents created by private parties, but with important legal effects. And so formalism says that when we interpret contracts, our goal ought to be to determine what the contract says but contracts aren't written for the public and they are probably not written for regulatory agencies. Contracts are usually written for the parties. And so the relevant question is how the parties to the contract would understand the text. But not all contracts work that way. Some contracts are written by lawyers for lawyers. Uh, they are written in technical legal language, and there might be quite a bit of boilerplate in those contracts. And some of the words and phrases in the contract, and indeed whole clauses of the contract, might be decades old, or in some cases more than a century old. And so we have a complex problem of deciphering old language and figuring out what meaning that language was intended by the contract drafters to obtain in the event that uh, the contract gave rise to a legal dispute. 
there is in all of these areas something new and something important about contemporary formalism, uh, sometimes called the new formalism. And that is a much deeper and more sophisticated approach to the interpretation of language with legal significance. Part of that approach relies on a very old distinction that Risa mentioned, the interpretation-construction distinction. The distinction between interpretation, the activity that discerns the communicative content or meaning of a text, and construction, the activity by which we give a text legal effect. Interpretation of the Constitution, we want to know what the words mean in context. Construction, we're talking about what legal doctrines or constitutional norms are derived from the text. The interpretation side of the equation uh, has become much more sophisticated and interdisciplinary. So I think that if you think of the legal formalists of decades ago, they relied primarily on the linguistic intuitions of judges to discern the meaning of legally significant texts. But in the 20th, 21st century, uh, there's an increasing awareness of sophisticated work in the philosophy of language and in linguistics. One uh, aspect of that work that is especially important has to do with what is called the semantics-pragmatics distinction. So semantics is about word meaning and uh, syntax, or what we sometimes call grammar, punctuation. Uh, uh, and lawyers call the kind of meaning that we can get from the words on the page alone, uh, they call that kind of meaning literal meaning. And a sort of a grave under, misunderstanding of contemporary formalism is the idea that formalists are seeking the literal meaning of legal texts. And nothing could be further from the truth. And that's because once we become acquainted with the philosophy of language, we realize that verbal communication, oral communication, written communication, uh, does not rely on words and punctuation marks alone to convey meaning. It also relies on context. Uh, we almost never say explicitly everything we wish to convey. Instead, we rely on a mutual recognition of reader or listener and author or speaker of the context of communication to fill in the gaps. Uh, so 
a famous example uh, from the philosophy literature. Jack and Jill are married, and most of the time we fill in that utterance with to each other. Because usually when you say Jack and Jill are married, you mean to each other. Although there are contexts where you might say those words in order to convey that Jack and Jill are actually married to other people. In the law, it is the same. Context does much of the work of legal communication. So the United States Constitution almost never includes geographic qualifiers. Most constitutional provisions are limited in various ways to the United States, but that to the United States is not explicit. It is understood. It is part of the context of communication. The role of context is what the philosophers of language call pragmatics. An unfortunate word for us, because pragmatism in the legal context has many other connotations that are unrelated to this sense of the word. Another way in which the new legal formalism, the legal formalism of uh, the 21st century is, is radically different than the legal formalism of decades ago is uh, the use of big data techniques to determine meanings, to determine the meanings of words and phrases uh, and grammatical constructions. So this is called corpus linguistics. Uh, and uh, the idea of corpus linguistics is that the way to figure out what a word means or what a phrase means is to actually investigate the linguistic data to, if we are dealing with the Constitution of 1787, to go back to a corpus, the corpus of founding era American English, or COFIA as it's called, uh, and systematically uh, code uh, all of the usages of the word or phrase in order to determine what the range of meanings are, what the frequency of various meanings was, uh, and then to revisit the problem of interpretation in that light. That is very different than relying on the linguistic intuitions of 21st century judges, which may not reflect the linguistic practices of 1787, for example. Uh, and it is very different than simply looking up words in dictionaries, whether they're contemporary dictionaries or the dictionaries of the period. Dictionaries attempt to capture the data, uh, but uh, the dictionaries uh, of 200 years ago uh, were the efforts, for the most part, of single authors. They're incomplete. In the case of Noah Webster's dictionary, um, it 
sure looks like Noah Webster was aware that some of the terms he was defining were involved in constitutional controversies, and his definitions include positions that have legal significance that might be contested. Uh, and, uh, of course, a single dictionary compiler, even one as diligent and hardworking and meticulous as Noah Webster uh, uh, can only partially reflect actual linguistic practice. So the new formalism is different than the old formalism. Formalism is back, but the formalism that is back is not a formalism of dictionary definitions and literal meanings. The formalism that is back is a formalism that fully takes context into account and that attempts to use the tools of modern linguistics and the theories from the philosophy of language to systematically investigate the communicative content of legal texts. What about the common law? I think that for many lawyers, common law formalism is the toughest nut to crack. Uh, I remember vividly uh, a conversation from, I think now some 30 years ago, with a very uh, distinguished young scholar uh, at the University of California at Los Angeles, uh, Eugene Volokh. Uh, and we were talking about legal formalism and uh, Eugene made the, what he thought was just an undeniable point that it just has to be the case that in common law cases, courts of last resort are lawmakers. They must be taking into policy account. There is no alternative to that. Well, common law formalism is back, and uh, it has an answer uh, to this challenge, and it turns out that this is a very old answer an answer with a very long and distinguished historical pedigree. Um, one way of articulating this answer is uh, in the, the phrase, uh, the common law is discovered, not made. But what does that mean? What does it mean to discover the common law? What is out there to discover? Um, and of course, Immediately to American lawyers, we think of uh, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. and uh, his uh, famous opinion uh, in uh, uh, Southern Pacific versus the Jensen and the brooding omnipresence in the sky, accompanied by the assertion that all law must be the command of some sovereign or quasi-sovereign. Uh, 
And hence, Holmes thought, common law judges are legislature, legislators. They make law, they must make law, there is nothing else that it could be. But of course there is something else that common law could be. Uh, in the first instance, in a well-developed common law system, of course, uh, the content of almost all the law is given uh, by already rendered legal decisions, by precedents and the doctrine of stare decisis, but that only pushes the question back another step. Where do those precedents get the law? And the answer to that question is that they derive the law from custom, from social norms. Uh, Aristotle, in his uh, Nicomachean Ethics, uh, in Book Five, offered the first uh, systematic theorization of the nature of law, and. Uh, he used the Greek word, so a law is a nomos. Laws are nomoi. But uh, th that Greek word had a different meaning than our uh, 21st century word law. Uh, it included what we call laws. But for Aristotle, Laws were fundamentally, at their bottom, at their core, social norms, widely shared and deeply held norms that govern human interaction. So the common law then is discovery, but it's, it's, it's not it does not need to be the discovery of a brooding omnipresence of the sky. No brooding omnipresence is required. It's the discovery of the norms of the community that constitutes the polity. It's the discovery of pre-existing customs and social norms that govern human interaction. So once again, 21st century formalism uh, is, is very different than the formalism uh, of many decades ago. If our object is to discover the social norms of our community. We now have tools to do this that might be both more accurate and more objective than relying on judicial intuition. There, there's a problem with relying on judicial intuition alone. Uh, for one thing, uh, the, the views of one person about the social norms of their community could be inaccurate. And for another thing, people who have power uh, 
might be tempted to report intuitions that accord with their own desires about what the law ought to be. Uh, of course, we are equipped in the 21st century uh, with um, the methods of empirical legal studies and what is now called experimental jurisprudence, that is, uh, research methods that can answer questions about the content of social norms in a rigorous and an objective way that is not reliant on the intuitions of individual judges. So at this point, with, with only uh, a few minutes left, I come to the big question. I've, I've, said it, I've said quite a lot about what formalism is, but I've said nothing about the fundamental normative question, why would you want to be a formalist, what's normatively attractive about formalism? After all, don't we all want the law to reflect our views about what the Constitution ought to mean, what the statute ought to say, what the common law ought to be, uh, and formalism says that uh, our views, that what I want uh, is not the source of the law, that the law is already out there, and it's in texts and norms that are independent of the judge. Well, there is a fundamental and serious problem with the view that the content of the law should reflect each individual's view about what the law ought to be. And that problem is that we live in a pluralist society in which there is fundamental disagreement, not about everything, there is so much agreement about many basics, but there is fundamental disagreement on many questions that the law must resolve. So, <clears throat> realist judging, instrumentalist judging, common law constitutionalism, purposivism and in statutory interpretation, the theory that the common law is incremental judicial legislation, they have to cope with that problem of pluralism, the problem of disagreement. And of course, if we entrust judges to create the law, to make the law, to decide what the Constitution is, to give two statutes their content, to legislate the common law, then we run into a problem of legitimacy. If the United States Supreme Court has the power to create the Constitution and the state Supreme Courts have the power to create the common law and 
both kinds of courts have the power to determine the actual content of statutes, we have a juristocracy, not a democracy. If you believe that the United States Supreme Court has the power to make the Constitution, then you have given to a committee of nine the power to make ultimate decisions about the most fundamental questions facing our democracy. And it is hard to imagine uh, a system that is less democratic, although history teaches us that there are systems much worse than ours. And there is an even graver problem with the instrumentalist or realist approach to judging. And this is the problem of politicization. This problem is especially grave in 2021. So if you assign to judges the ultimate power to make law, sooner or later, the politicians will figure that out. Sooner or later, presidents and senators will come to realize that the process of nominating and confirming justices of the Supreme Court and judges of the Court of Appeals and the district courts is actually where ultimate political power rests. And that creates an incentive to politicize the judicial selection process. And you can hope that even though the process is politicized, that uh, the judges will retain a devotion to the rule of law, except maybe on a few important questions where we really want them to decide our way. But the history of judicial selection in the last 50 years is a story of a downward spiral of politicization of increasing politicization of the judicial selection process. And as a consequence, the increasing politicization of the judiciary itself. It is no accident that uh, three Supreme Court justices have recently given speeches in which they have loudly asserted, we are not political hacks. The, we are not at the bottom of the downward spiral of politicization. But the bottom of such a spiral is a very, very grim place indeed. Because we know from the experience of other societies with thoroughly politicized judiciaries what the bottom looks like. At the bottom of the downward spiral of politicization are judges who view every case as pure partisan politics, as an opportunity to reward your political friends or to punish 
your political enemies. The bottom of the downward spiral of politicization is an end to the rule of law. And here, in, in this building, in these halls, and elsewhere, in the legal academy, and in courtrooms, and law firms, and public interest law offices, and government lawyers across the country, we still know the value of the rule of law. So what about justice, you ask? If you are suggesting that the law should be formalist, how can we achieve justice? And of course, this is a very powerful idea. Many American lawyers were motivated to become lawyers because they believed that the law could be an instrument of justice, and that as an advocate or as a judge, they could tame the law and achieve just outcomes. And I would like to suggest that those energies need to be rechanneled into very different mechanisms for the achievement of justice. Now, of course, legal justice, the rule of law, that is the domain of lawyers and judges. But the transformation of society and the transformation of social norms, that's a different business. That's the business of democratic politics and uh, what is sometimes called norm entrepreneuring. Changing the social norms of your society and changing the legal structures of the Constitution and the statutes. Right? That's the business of democratic politics and civic engagement. Well, the title of the talk was Formalism is Back. It's a title that was uh, intended to be provocative, but it, it perhaps is a bit misleading. So formalism is back in legal theory. Formalist ideas are more important in 2021 than they have been for many, many, many decades. But legal realism is still here in the courts. Legal realism is still taught in the law schools. An instrumental approach to law is in some sense still the dominant approach. So maybe the topic of the lecture should have been formalism should come back and that would be a very good thing. Thank you all very, very much for coming. <laughs>